Into the Weird and Longbox of Darkness team up. Halloween Special 2019 Vampires Galore. Greetings, weirdos and horrorlings. This is Herman Lowe coming at you straight from Into the Weird and the Long Box of Darkness. The two shows are finally having a crossover, or a Marvel team-up, if you will, since we're discussing lots of Marvel titles today, and lots of horror, plus lots of vampires, and that's especially for you listeners on this Halloween of 2019. First off, We've got Ryan Daly from the Fire and Water Network, who's discussing the Tomb of Dracula on the Long Box of Darkness. That's our first chapter of this lengthy podcast episode. Secondly, for chapter two, we've got Billy Delicious on our Into the Weird segments, talking about vampires again, this time around Vampire Tales number four, one of the Marvel magazines from the early Bronze Age. But without further preamble, I'm going to get right to it, listeners. So enjoy Chapter 1 of this Halloween special where the Long Box of Darkness and Ryan Daly discuss the Tomb of Dracula. Welcome back to the Long Box of Darkness, constant listeners. It's been ages, but I did not forget about you. In fact, I've been missing you so much that I secured a guest for this week's show. It's quite a challenge to provide an introduction for him, though, since he's one of the comic book podcasting greats and has quite a body of work behind him by now. 
but I'll rattle off a few of his uh, greatest hits. <laughs> He's a mainstay of the Fire and Water network of comic book podcasts, where he has been responsible for such shows as the Secret Origins cast, the Power of Fishnets, the Cheers cast, and the Batman Night cast, and others. But he's also the host of my favorite horror podcast, which is Midnight the Podcasting Hour. And that made him, obviously, a perfect choice to feature as a guest on LOD. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mr. Ryan Daly to the show. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing, man? <laughs> Trademark. Trademark that laugh. <laughs> well, it was either that or I had to do the PJ Frightful voice, and that just that, that would have killed me for the rest of this <laughs> Hello, Herman. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm so glad you, you had the time to do it, Ryan. Um, thanks uh, again. You know, I've thanked you, I've thanked you profusely off mic, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, so, Ryan, we'll, we'll get right into it. Um, since we've, you know, already... Uh, dealt with uh, the how are yous and, and what have you been up to in your lives off mic. <laughs> We're discussing listeners, Tomb of Dracula, specifically uh, uh, um, issues 12 to 14. I should say Marvel's Tomb of Dracula, affectionately known by fans as Todd. <laughs> um, by, and, and of course, by us who like to fling around acronyms. I've recently uh, renamed my podcast Lot in honor of Tomb of Dracula. <laughs> And um, it is, of course, considered unequivocally one of the best Marvel comics of the Bronze Age and is even considered to be one of the best horror comics of all time. Uh, written by Marvelous Marf Wolfman, if we can use some of the uh, bullpen nicknames that Stan was so fond of labeling people with. Penciled by Gene the Dean, colon, inked by terrific Tom Palmer, edited by Roy the Boy Thomas, or uh, I guess he's not a boy at this point in time, right, Ryan? He's probably... What or already the the, the senior editor t- taking over the reins from right. Stanley, so I guess we'd call him Rascally Roy at this point in time. <laughs> and um, covers uh, for the most part by Frank Bruner, but also Gil Kane and uh, inked by Tom Palmer. Palmer. So Ryan, um, first off, though, as I do with all new guests on the show, before we talk Tomb of Dracula, I want to find out what's your horror comics origin story and also your origin um, of horror uh, horror fan in general. Um, I know you must have mentioned this before uh, in the beginning when you started Midnight, but um, uh, there might be some listeners out there who don't know. So uh, first off, how did you get into the horror genre specifically? I actually, I think I sort of went through my own little self-discovery recently because um, not on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, and you, you, you threw me off by thinking about like acronyms and shortcuts for the names with Todd for Tomb of Dracula and Lod and I was like Midnight the Podcasting Hour MTPH there's no there's no good short way of saying that but anyway so I, I should have been thinking about branding better when I when I came up with that podcast title but um on a different podcast though on a, a recent episode of FW Presents which is the sort of general anthology mm. show for the Fire and Water Network I reviewed Marvel Spotlight number 2 which was the first appearance of the Werewolf by Night right and I talked about seeing the Michael Jackson music video for Thriller <laughs> I think was probably my first experience with horror and with the sort of conventional tropes that we think of um and seeing a man turn into a were creature uh, followed by the whole zombie dance routine and everything, and as wonderful and exciting as that is, 
Um, so that was kind of, and it, it appropriately terrified me because I was a very young child the first time I saw those things. Um, but going forward after that, I always loved Halloween. Halloween was my favorite holiday more than Christmas, even though I loved getting presents and I loved the, mm. all the, the stuff that went with Christmas. Halloween was my favorite holiday. I loved getting dressed up in costumes. Um, I loved just going out and trick or treating. There was something about the, the atmosphere. Like even I think at a, at a young age, I knew that, nighttime the 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 end of october when the leaves are falling this is a creepy season this is a time of darkness this is a time of witches and ghosts and evil spirits and i just knew that there was something really cool about putting on a costume and going out there and sort of even if i couldn't have put it this way as a young child like sort of metaphorically giving the middle finger to all of that <laughs> that, that idea of like the ghosts and goblins because we're just going to go out there and we're going to go get candy from people by dressing up like a mummy or like spider-man or whatever it was Ooh, nicely so, put <laughs> yeah so halloween was my favorite holiday and what happened was i would always go out with a friend or a couple of friends and we would go around the neighborhood and collect our candy and at the end of the night after we came back I was allowed to stay up later than on any other night, later than Christmas Eve, later than my birthday, later than New Year's Eve, anything. On Halloween night, I could stay up late with my sometimes with my mom, but usually with my older brother, and we would watch scary movies. Now, these were like on TV, so like a lot of it was censored, but this is how I first discovered the Halloween movie franchise, um, like American Werewolf in London, um, and my my personal favorite depiction of Dracula, which was the 1979 version with Frank Langella and Donald Pleasance. Um, and um, yeah, like other stuff like that. Like there was a TV movie called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow that I thought was great. Um, so yeah, like Halloween just became, it kind of became like my thing. And that's where I discovered a lot of horror movies. And it, I, I sort of kept it like I, I would never say that I became a connoisseur of horror because as I grew up, like I, I liked the universal monsters and I liked some aspects of like slasher movies and everything like that. But I didn't really pursue like I've seen all of the Halloween movies, but I haven't seen all of the Friday the 13th. I haven't seen all of yeah. the Nightmare on the Streets. I haven't seen the Saw movies or like I don't watch a lot of body horror movies. I actually don't really like zombie fiction, like zombie like fiction and, and movies and TV shows shows like The Walking Dead, I've seen some of them, but that's actually something that has more of a kind of disturbing effect on me. Like, I just, I don't like that as a genre. Like, there's something, like, psychologically repulsive about zombies in that genre, like the George Romero thing that just bothers me, so I don't watch those a lot. Um, So I I guess I'm sort of more into a little bit more of the romantic angle of, of, or, or, you know, what scares kids, like what scares babysitters, that type of thing. (laughs) Um, I know that makes sense. Uh, Then um, uh, the reason why you started Midnight Podcasting Hour, because if you think about those old DC horror comics from the late 60s and 70s and early 80s, they're kind of like that. You know, they're not so much about the gross out, but more about setting up the atmosphere, the ambiance. And then uh, creating the scares that way through story and uh, right. through yeah setting. So right. I know. and I've and I've never been scared by a comic book. I like the titillation. I like the I like what they're going for. I like the emotional hook that horror comics are going for. But I've never really been scared by that. I've only kind of been scared, and even that's kind of pushing it to use that word um, with prose or with fiction 
maybe two times one like once or twice with a Stephen King book uh, and then with Peter Straub's book The Ghost Story or just Ghost Story yeah yeah um, those are some of my favorite novels but yeah so I mean the big picture where did how did I discover horror a lot of it was through you know just Halloween nights watching those scary movies and yeah kind of gravitating to you know Stephen King books or other other literature like that Hmm. Oh, well, that's a great origin story. I mean, especially the part where you you mentioned the you know way back when when it was thriller that first <laughs> you know uh, introduced you to horror because that is very disturbing for a kid to see that music video, right, Ryan? <laughs> for for yeah. any small kid seeing that on screen and it was shown widely. It wasn't censored, I think. You know, when it when yeah. the music video showed on TV, I remember that as a kid in South Africa seeing that when I was young. You know, so uh, wow, that is a good inroads to horror if you can deal with that. You might have the stomach for horror later on. <laughs> but like you say, that's more a, a bit of uh, the gross-out type of horror, zombie horror. But um, still, it gives you that, that um, flight or fright response, <laughs> as I like to put it. But, oh man, that's a great origin story. Uh, now I know a little bit more about you know how you view horror. And this is actually also the kind of horror I prefer, Ryan. You know, like you said, the more romantic side, where you get into more the artistic side of horror. Like, how can you convey... Uh, horror to an audience without, uh, you know, going the easy route, you know, which is, mm-hmm. you know, just blood and guts and, and splatter punk. Not that that isn't skilled. I mean, uh, that side has a whole different skill to it with, with the makeup effects and, you know, the, the um, uh, designers who work on those sets. But, you know, I'm saying in stories especially, I like what, what you like, I think. I'm, I'm on the same page as you. Um, but this begs the question then, Ryan, so how did you transition from a more kind of pop culture horror, or should I say a more, you know, um, commonly um, uh, known form of horror, which is TV and movies, to something like horror comics? So when I was sort of just getting into comics at some point in the early 90s, um, I've, I've told the story, and I've, I'm, of course, I'm always subject to my own memory betraying me. But I think, <laughs> as best as I can recall, as, as in the early 90s, one of my friends who lived down the street from me, and we collected a lot of the same comics uh, for a little while, um, uh, his cousin or somebody was visiting him. Somebody was staying with him because I think his parents were going through a divorce or something. So he just, he couldn't be at home. So he came to stay with my friend. So he would come over to my house or whatever. And he just became like this little hang around this other kid who was friends with us for like two weeks or something. And he had a shoebox of what I assume were his dad's comics from the seventies. And it got left at my house just for the time that he was there. So I had access to this for like a week or two. uh, And then it went away. But in the shoebox, there were like, a dozen to 20 issues of Tomb of Dracula. Wow. Uh, not the ones that we're going to be... I don't think the ones we're talking about tonight. I think they were a little bit later in the series. But uh, Tomb of Dracula. Like half a dozen issues of Werewolf by Night. I think there was a Ghost Rider or two in there. I don't know if it was the actual Ghost Rider series or if it was from Marvel Spotlight. I don't remember. I just remember seeing Ghost Rider on the cover. Yeah. Um, then like a, a few like weird one-offs that were not horror, like one of the jungle actions starring the Black Panther. Yeah. Um, I think actually I think I think it was the issue drawn by Gil Kane, which I think has Black Panther fighting zombies. Wow. Um, so it was, there was a little bit of a horror touch there. Horror theme um, to that shoebox. Right. Right. <laughs> the shoebox um, of darkness. Think, 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I think some Master of Kung Fu, which wasn't good. But basically, like a smattering of seventies horror genre mm. books that weren't like the superhero stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I had this. I had access to this for like a couple of weeks because it was left in my house, and I would just kind of flip through these. And I don't think I read them that much, but like because I thought, you know, I was a kid getting into comics in the 90s i wanted the stuff that looked like x-men and image and everything like that so you wanted pouches I was kind of, yeah all the pouches <laughs> of course yeah but i was fascinated by the art and the stories and the fact that these were like monsters and i recognized these characters and i knew who ghost rider was and things like that so i was just kind of getting into it. i i don't think i read them that closely but i did look at the art and and that was kind of like cool and i always just sort of remembered those things where they were eventually i got rid of them hmm. now cut to a decade later or something like that, I'm just kind of like browsing a bookshelf like during college or something. And I came across the essential volume of, did I find tomb of Dracula first or werewolf by night? I don't remember which one I found first, but eventually I got like, I got them both. So yeah. I started going through these series um, at first with the black and white essential volumes. Um, and those were like the two big ones, the tomb of Dracula and werewolf by night were the ones. And I've started to kind of go back through the other seventies Marvel stuff and fill out some of the gaps. I haven't read all of the Frankenstein series, but I've read a bit, bunch of it. Um, some of the, the, the like vampire tales, magazines and other stuff. Yeah. Um, I just, I love these characters. I love Marvel's take on them. I think if there is a criticism uh, uh, leveled against Marvel's horror books, it's that some of them do tend to read more like just supernatural versions of superhero tales. Yeah, whereas DC's horror books, especially with their, because they leaned more on the anthology books and had fewer like standalone titles, just really Swamp Thing and Phantom Stranger, if you could call it a horror book. Um, those definitely felt more of a piece with the kind of conventional horror stuff. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I, I just, I fell in love with the Marvel horror comics, the Tomb of Dracula, World by Night. These were my jam. I loved those. Yeah. Now, that, now, then, now Ryan, this is a okay. revelation for me. Uh, sorry to, to yeah. interrupt because, you know, you, you think you know a person and you think <laughs> you can, you know, before they tell you their horror origin, you think you can sort of, you know, which way they're going to go with it. But this is completely uh, a 180 for me. What I thought you were going to say is you, you're gonna, you got into DC horror first because, <laughs> you know, no, you're, you're no, like... like the, no, it was it was the opposite. In fact, like, wow. I was kind of... I was wondering along... As I was doing Secret Origins, I was kind of thinking, I was like, could I do a Marvel horror <clears throat> podcast and just cover all of these things? And that was kind of in the back of my mind. And... Then just as I was wrapping that up, I met, I had a chance to meet Bernie Wrightson just shortly before he died. And I, and I got into it and I started reading his original Swamp Thing. And I was kind of thinking, I was like, why didn't Swamp Thing get a, a secret origin appearance? And just kind of going, and that spiraled into me just reading through that more of like Dead Man and Swamp hmm. Thing and all these things. And that just kind of turned it. And then wanted to read the book for the same team as the two of them. And wanted to get on that. So that just kind of like, where like midnight the podcasting hour kind of fell into its own over the course of a couple of days it really was those things where <laughs> if i had probably spent more time thinking about it i probably would have said no nah, i'm not gonna do that as a podcast uh, you know maybe i'll go back to the marvel stuff or something i'll just i'll read these books for enjoyment but i just kind of like leapt into it and started doing the podcast first and foremost and, but i i did enjoy it because it it allowed me to you know discover more of like Swamp Thing and more of these other DC horror books and especially their anthology tales because I do think there is 
there's a kind of purity to horror in, in the short form. Yes. Um, I, I, I do think horror lends itself more to short anthology comic books, but also short stories, whether it's, you know, Stephen King or H.P. Lovecraft or Edgar Allan Poe or just other things like that. I mean, it's it's really hard to, for, to, to sustain that for a full-length novel the way certain people can do it and for a full-length movie, too. I completely agree with you there, Ryan. I find um, horror anthologies far superior to, you know, like the long-form horror, which uh, features recurring characters. And you, you're definitely right to criticize Marvel for that because basically every single character they introduced in the horror line, you know, in their horror line, was uh, intended to have staying power. At least, mm-hmm. you know, none of them really had, but some, you know, if you think about it. But but again, I think, again, looking at looking at my proclivities, looking at the way that I liked horror when I was a kid, I didn't want it to be really creepy. I liked... I like the atmosphere. I like the set dressing of horror, the things that you associate with Halloween. So in that, I liked the ideas that, you know, Jack Russell was really just kind of Spider-Man, except he turned into a wolf. And so it was, it was kind of like he was Peter Parker, but with a different set of like problems and like this whole werewolf thing. So I could connect with that character a little bit more when I was at a younger age, because that was the type of horror that I kind of liked being a little bit older, a little bit more sophisticated. Well, we can put air quotes around sophisticated, but now I, I mean, you know, I, I might want a little bit more, you know, kind of sort of traditional non-superhero horror, but a little bit more pulpy, a little bit more nihilistic, a little bit more just sort of, (laughs) just, yeah, kind of. Basically uh, classic bronze age DC horror. Because that that fits the bill almost <laughs> perfectly, right, Brian? Uh, Ryan? Yeah. yeah. If you think about it, like um, Secrets of the Sinister House, and uh, you know, of course, the big two, which is House of Secrets mm-hmm. and House of Mystery, you know, they gave you that. And later on, I don't know if this was to compete with Marvel, they did have long form storylines running through. Uh, you know, like I'm thinking of Andrew Bennett, I Vampire, yeah. yes. Uh, and then they also gave you sometimes even two or three extra tales. Um, you know, to satisfy that craving, which was the the short form horror. And then, uh, you know, I I even like that. But, you know, I agree with you. Uh, Essentially, you know, when you're an older reader, I think you can appreciate the stories, um, you know, from a reader's point of view better um, as an adult reading those classic DC tales. But, you know, Marvel uh, gives me that kick of nostalgia, you know, because I also kind of, I actually encountered DC first, but Actually, it was at the same time, you know. So um, Mm. for some reason, I just have more nostalgia for the Marvel horror titles uh, simply because I had more of them. You know, so when I pick up an old issue, I remember where I was when I was reading this. But DC, not so much in in terms of horror, though. I think predominantly I was a DC kid. If if you look at total amount of, you know, uh, comics from, uh, you know, the big two. But um, in terms of horror, um, I definitely had more Marvel. So I get what you're saying. yeah, I mean, I also think, I mean, what Marvel had over DC was horror characters. Yeah. They had, like, the, the characters that you could grab onto that were based in this horror sort of mythos and this sort of subset of the universe. Dracula, the werewolf, Ghost Rider, yeah. Brother Voodoo, Satana, Damon Hellstorm. Yeah. These were characters, you know, Blade. The, the, these were characters that you could find and, like, they could go on their adventures. Yeah. 
DC had a lot of horror stories and a lot of horror anthology mags, but not a lot of recurring characters, just Swamp Thing. I mean, yeah. Dead Man is a supernatural character, but his stories weren't horror stories no. for the longest time. That's true, yeah. Um, Spectre, again, a supernatural character, but didn't, I mean, didn't really get into the horror realm until the 70s yeah. with the Apparel Fleischer run. Yeah. And then later on when they brought him back with the Mandrake run. Yeah, um, that's right. The uh, Ostrander Mandrake, yeah. Yeah, so basically um, just three, if I can think of them. Phantom Stranger, Stranger you can't really count. I mean, you can, but... You know, he's more like a framing character who frames a storyline. Sometimes he gets involved. But yeah, I, I'd say you're right. Just Swamp Thing, Spectre, and not even Dead Man. You can't really count him because, you know, right. like you say, he was more like a superhero <laughs> type right. uh, character right. with, you know, just from, uh, had a horror origin maybe. So right. basically, Ryan, uh, you, you'd, so you'd say that now as an adult reader, you appreciate the, the nuances of the DC stuff more from the 70s but you've still got you still get this kind of feeling of um nostalgia when you read the marvel stuff because that's kind of how you got into it right yeah absolutely the i mean marvel is marvel was my home for a long long time yeah and i definitely get a more of a nostalgic kick out of that yeah um but dc i mean even if i pick up a dc horror book that was printed 40 years ago to me it's brand new yeah, um, yeah, and that's always that's always kind of exciting. Oh so. man, yeah, I love it. I, I agree with you. There's always more stuff to buy, more stuff to find. You can never fill up those runs. I mean, some people have, right. but you know, that's like uh, those guys are legends. So yeah, every time I find a new old Bronze Age uh, DC or Marvel comic, it it gives me that special kind of uh, thrill. <laughs> you know that, but but there's always more to buy. So uh, Ryan, just to give the listeners a brief recap. Basically, uh, you encountered Todd, at, you know, uh, uh, Tomb of Dracula in that shoebox of darkness. And the first time you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that's, though, fr- that's what the podcast should have been. <laughs> shoebox of darkness. Woo. That would have been, I would have uh, had to sue. No, no, no. <laughs> that would have been before me, so. But you would have had to sue. But um, listen, Ryan, I wanted to then just, uh, this is just from what I gathered from what you were mentioning. So your first encounter with the character of Dracula, though, that was the Frank Langella 1979 movie. Uh, was that the first time that, that you you realized who the character of Dracula was? Or, or did it happen some other time before that? I, I, got, I, I think I kind of knew who the character was just through sort of cultural osmosis. Right, right, um, right. Maybe even like an episode of like the Ghostbusters cartoon, like the animated series or something, <laughs> might have done a version with those or something. Like, I, I think I knew who Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and those characters were. But definitely my first real like experience with him was the Franklin Jello one, right. which I was aware of. And I think... I, I didn't necessarily know. Well, yeah, no, I, I know that wasn't the first one because I must have known what the Bella Lugosi Dracula looked like, or I had some sort of idea of that image. Yeah. Um, because I was aware, even at a, again, talking about a pretty young age, I was aware that the Franklin Jella version was going for a younger and sexier vibe, that he yeah. wasn't an elderly kind of like old. Um, old world sort of like statesman, like with like the weird kind of like high, like Pete, like Pit Widow's Peak, Widow's Peak, yeah, and like the brow and like the fierce <laughs> eyes. There was something about him that was like alluring and sexy and and cool, and that he attracted women that way. Yeah. And I was kind of aware that I was like, oh, this is this is different. Um, so I must have known 
at least sort of what the Bela Lugosi classic Dracula looked like. Yeah. If I ha- but I know I hadn't seen those movies yet. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, it's always interesting for me, you know, to ask that question to people. Like, how did you first, um, you know, uh, realize this is Dracula? Because there are so many versions out there, right, Ryan? Like, my first encounter with Dracula was obviously through the Hammer films, which was pretty big in, mm-hmm. in the UK and in South Africa and a little bit in the States, too. But, um, you know, then when I saw Tomb of Dracula, which, which happened... Around the same time, I remember there was this jarring kind of uh, uh, feeling in my mind where, where this disparity that was created because I was like thinking, this guy's not Dracula. And then I was looking at, at the Tomb of Dracula version where I'm like, this guy cannot be Dracula. So, you know, I couldn't square the fact that they look so different, but they're the same character in my mind. <laughs> but then eventually, you know, obviously I developed my favorite, which is in fact this version of the comic book. Um, I love Christopher Lee. Uh, I love the old Bella Lugosi, uh, Lugosi stuff. Uh, Frank Langella, you know, I've only seen that movie once, so I can't really say he's my, you know, uh, who I think of as Dracula. But of course, Frank Langella is a great actor. I I love him. So, but definitely this uh, Gene Colan version of Dracula is who stays in my mind. If I think Dracula, this is the image that pops into my head. Yeah. So, um, you know, all of us have our favorites. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, uh, now, final question before we get into the meat of discussing the issues, uh, Ryan. Uh, where okay. does this series, Tomb of Dracula, rank in your pantheon of greatest horror comics? Um, I think it might surprise you to learn that this one might be number two on my list. Wow. <laughs> so where, where would it be high. on your list, Herman? Well, I'm exactly the same, Ryan. I, <laughs> yeah. I just recently, you know, uh, my number two um, had always been House of Mystery. Just because mm-hmm. I had had a huge uh, number of House of Mystery issues given to me by my uncle when I was really, really young. And, uh, you know, I could reread them at my leisure as much as I wanted to. Number one was and is and will always remain, I'm, I'm pretty sure, Swamp Thing, um, as we discussed when I guested on your show last year. But or I should say earlier this year. But, um, you know, number two definitely has recently become the Tomb of Dracula because it's just they, they play with so many you know, character nuances and horror tropes and settings and and twists and great art from Colin and Palmer and, you know, uh, Gene Colin being my favorite uh, artist, you know, um, other than Bernie Wrightson. I should say my favorite Marvel artist is Gene Colin. And and so, you know, I, I first, you know, fell in love with his stuff on Doctor Strange. And, you know, so the fact that then he did Tomb of Dracula at the same time as I was reading Doctor Strange, that just... It was like heaven, you know, it was like things cannot get better than this. So I have to concur with you. It's definitely my second favorite and and very close to Swamp Thing. Very, very close. I'm I'm the exact same way with you. Like I almost I would have Swamp Thing at number one, but I'm kind of I'm kind of conflating two different series. I'm thinking about like the original Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson run. Yeah. Um, I mean, even with, you know, Len Wein kept going for a couple of issues after Wrightson left. Um, but then towards the end of that original series that went on, like, was it 24, 25 issues, I think 24, towards the end of it, it gets a little bit weird and the quality really takes a dip. But then once the saga of the Swamp Thing, the new series comes out and it eventually just became Swamp Thing again. Like, yeah. even before Alan Moore came aboard, even before that, when it was like Marty Pascoe writing, yeah. I still, I really liked those stories too. Yeah, And then I agree. what Alan Moore was able to do with the whole American Gothic type of thing and just like exploding this, this entire 
like revolutionary horror genre within these pages. I, I think that just from from House of Secrets '92, like the first appearance of Swamp Thing or whatever, yeah. like through that series up to Alan Moore stuff and even beyond that, I definitely think you've got to you've got to look at the sort of whole body of work of Swamp Thing for like the '70s and, yeah. and '80s, yeah, well, you as see... as the number one. But then, I mean, and then because then I would go because just like you, I mean, I think Wrightson is possibly my favorite artist, but Gene Colan is right there, like neck and neck. Yeah. Both of them I love, and they're both like the signature horror artists, probably. Be- for Gene Cole, I mean, Gene Cole did a ton of superhero work, but I think of him as a horror artist because of this series yeah. and because of his <laughs> his real his use of like shadow so much. Even though he didn't do his own inking, but yeah. you see so much shadow line work in his in his stuff. I mean, yeah. even though even though I really like Werewolf by Night and I might have gotten more enjoyment out of Werewolf by Night, I can't say that it's a better series. I think. Yeah. The mm. consistency, because World by Night had definitely had peaks and valleys. It had some really high yeah. points, and then it had some lows. But, I mean, even consider Marv Wolfman didn't take over Tomb of Dracula until issue seven. Yeah. The first six with three different writers. That's some right. of them you don't even think of as Bronze Age writers. Like, two of those guys, like, really started the Bronze <laughs> Age. And, and yeah. yeah, Archie Goodwin and, and Gardner um, Fox. Gardner yeah. Fox. Yeah. yeah. Like, you don't think of them as Bronze Age writers, certainly not horror writers and everything. But they, they contributed some good stuff. But the quality from, from Colin's work to go through that entire series, I think you by sheer dent of how long the book ran and the consistency and the quality, I think just on every technical level, Tomb of Dracula is better than Werewolf by Night, even though I kind of like the Werewolf by Night character and that that idea a little bit more. So. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there, Ryan. Yeah, I'm also a big fan of, of Jack Russell and his exploits. So that's something, you know, I want to discuss in, in future episodes. But, you know, um, it's as you say, Swamp Thing led into, indirectly led into Vertigo. So it sort of mm-hmm. created this horror explosion, you know, the sophisticated suspense, which then, yep. you know, became horror. And uh, Tomb of Dracula never did that. You know, it, it lasted from 1972 to 1979. And then it was obviously many people uh, <laughs> attribute this to Jim Shooter at the time, not, you know, getting along with Marv Wolfman. But, you know, there were other concerns why they canceled it, low sales and so forth. Um, but it was canceled. And then nothing more came from the horror genre from Marvel. You know, after that, whereas you could argue that by the time that, uh, you know, House of Mystery and House of Secrets had been canceled in 1982 or early 1983, you know, that sort of led into, you know, a Swamp Thing, you know, uh, which which was uh, a little bit later than that, 1984. But the Swamp Thing title had already been running at that time, volume two. So it's sort of as if DC's, you know, uh, foray into horror in the 70s created more horror fans and that led into vertigo if you know what i mean ryan but tomb of yeah. dracula never did that and that's the only reason i can't put it on the top of my list is the fact that it it, it was great it was an amazing series but it had no legacy for at least yeah. 20 years uh, before people yeah. started to to rediscover it again and that's a shame that's a real shame but of course you know um editorial decisions sometimes you know uh impact history so that's what happened there <laughs> But that's why, Ryan, I picked issue 12, 13, and 14, because the first reason was Marv Wolfen said that this is where he really started to gel with the storyline and the characters. But he had been writing, like you mentioned, from issue 7, and I already saw some uh, smatterings of greatness in his uh, you know, earlier issues that he wrote for this series. But in issue 12, 
and issue 13 and then following issue 14, there are three major events. And we'll get to that when we discuss the, the issues themselves. But that's why I picked this, because everything after Tomb of Dracula 12, 13 and 14 was great. It's as if the series just, it's a snowball effect. Mm -hmm. I can't think of any bad issues that I read after this. Of course, some issues were greater than others, but every single issue gave me what I wanted. Um, you know, every time I've, I've reread the series, it's the same. So that's why this is sort of the start of the greatness of the title, at least in my mind. And also, you know, uh, according to Marv Wolfman. Mm -hmm. So um, we're going to get into it, Ryan. But I want to tell the listeners uh, one other thing before we do that. Um, Ryan, I've picked, uh, you know, two issues for you to do a synopsis on because um, you are definitely better at me. Uh, in summarizing content and, and making it sound as if it has a little bit of gravitas. And, um, you know, I really enjoy that in uh, your show, uh, you know, Midnight Podcasting Hour. So I'm going to make use of your talents here. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. Could you do the synopsis for issue 12 and then later 14? I'll, I'll jump in in the middle with the synopsis for 13. Sure. Uh, okay. Sure. So we'll start it off, Ryan. Uh, tell us about issue 12 of tomb of dracula uh well according to some guy named mike who runs mike's amazing world of uh, <laughs> a legend yeah a wonderful website resource that is invaluable to us podcasters um issue 12 was written by marv wolfman as we've said penciled by gene colon inked by tom palmer lettered by john costanza colored by petra scotis and edited by roy thomas the cover was by frank bruner and tom palmer the cover price was a whopping 20 cents the cover date was September of 1973, and the on-sale date, according to the website, was June 19th, 1973. Issue 12 is titled Night of the Screaming House. From out of the London fog, Dracula descends on a hapless woman named Elizabeth Langley. But before the Count can feed on her, the fearless vampire hunters, led by Quincy Harker, intervene. The would-be victim runs off, screaming into the night, as the beautiful Rachel Van Helsing takes aim with her deadly crossbow and fires it right at Dracula. Just as he has before, Dracula turns his body to mist as the arrow flies harmlessly through the air where he had been standing. The Count rematerializes next to Rachel and effortlessly swats the crossbow out of her hand. Luckily for Rachel, the giant Indian manservant Taj leaps onto Dracula's back and wraps his arms around him. Dracula struggles, but Taj refuses to let go. Dracula then takes to the air, transforming into a giant bat, but still Taj clings to him. The weight of the man is too much to keep even the vampire master aloft and they begin to fall. Dracula shifts his position so that Taj takes the full impact when they crash back to the ground. Dracula recovers quickly and takes Quincy's daughter, Edith Harker, his hostage. Frank Drake tries to free her and is easily batted away by Dracula. The Lord of the Vampires tells Quincy that he will receive instructions on where to find his captive tomorrow night. Then Dracula takes off, flying into the night with Edith. Quincy is in despair, his greatest fear realized. Frank tells him that they will find and rescue Edith somehow. Dracula takes Edith to an old mansion outside the city and tells her what we already know. He's using her as bait so that he can kill her father, all of his friends, and then her too. 
Nothing of importance apparently happens for the next day, because we immediately cut to the following night where Quincy, Taj, Rachel, and Frank drive up to the mansion known as Whispering Hell, having received Dracula's summons. A fierce rainstorm pelts them as they get out of the car and approach the house that shakes from the driving wind. Meanwhile, in a different part of the city, the vampire hunter called Blade is enjoying an evening with his girlfriend, Saffron, when he receives a telephone call from none other than Dracula, telling Blade where he can be found. Blade takes off, leaving Saffron so angry that she throws one of his patented wooden daggers in the door after he leaves. Back at Whispering Hell, the quartet of hunters enter the decrepit old mansion to be greeted by a blinding flash of light followed quickly by pitch darkness and the Count's voice addressing them, telling them that if they wish to see Edith, they will have to play his game of death traps. Frank and Rachel see Edith on the landing at the top of the main staircase. They head up, but Rachel's foot breaks through one of the floorboards. As Frank tries to free her, a swarm of bats flies in and attacks. The bats scratch and claw Rachel's face until Taj drives them away with his blazing torch and a shield procured from a suit of armor in the hall. Dracula takes Edith away and continues to taunt her would-be rescuers. Frank tells Rachel, whose face is badly scarred by the bat attack, to stay with Quincy, while he and Taj follow Dracula, knowingly right into another trap. Once upstairs, Frank and Taj split up to cover more ground. Alone, Frank Drake tries to give himself a mental pep talk, stealing his nerves for the confrontation with Dracula, but any bravado he might have been able to muster is dashed away when Blade steps out of the shadows, revealing how easy it would have been to kill him. But the only one Blade is interested in killing is Dracula, so they agree to work together. Of course, while they were talking, Dracula released a set of poisonous Black Widow spiders and used his telepathic power to send them after Frank. But Blade notices the spiders as one is crawling up Frank's leg. He shakes them off and then rolls the spiders in a rug and throws the rug down the hall. On the other side of the house, Taj finds Edith cowering on the floor, but as he approaches, Dracula sneaks up and knocks him out. Edith screams, drawing the attention of Blade and Frank, who rush to that part of the house to find Dracula looming over her. Blade and Dracula struggle. Dracula maneuvers the vampire slayer near the edge of the second floor railing and then turns to mist, allowing Blade's own strength and momentum to push him over the edge. But Blade is lucky or skilled enough to catch hold of the chandelier as he's falling. As Dracula threatens him, Frank Drake grabs an axe from the wall. His attack is futile. Dracula swats the axe away and leans in to kill Frank, but Blade swings back just in time and tackles the Count. He kicks Dracula in the face and then slashes his ancient visage with one of his wooden knives. The pain of the gash caused by wood is unbearable. Dracula's hands cover his face and he runs off screaming in agony. He crashes through a window and falls, but at the last minute, his body changes into a bat form and he flies off into the stormy night. The vampire hunters regroup around Quincy and call Edith down to join them, but she refuses. She tells them Dracula may have left the house, but his legacy remains. And then she reveals the horrible failure of their rescue attempt, for Edith Harker has already been turned into a vampire. She feels the change overwhelming her and begs her father to leave before the hunger that she can no longer control takes her. 
she feels the change overwhelming her and begs her father to leave her before she can no longer control the hunger. When they refuse to go, Edith does the only thing she can think of to spare them. She leaps from the landing and falls to her death. Quincy Harker mourns for his daughter, but of course he knows her death will not last. She will rise as one of the undead to feast on the blood of the living. And so he does what must be done. Quincy draws a wooden stake from his cane and plunges it into the heart of his daughter, destroying the vampire. As Rachel and Taj grieve with Quincy, Frank Drake goes to the window and screams into the night, hoping his screams find the ears of Count Dracula, and he swears they will find the Count, they will hunt him down, and they will kill him. To be continued. Wow. Ryan, now that... now. Listeners, you're going to see how paltry, how pathetic my synopsis looks next to that later on. <laughs> you're giving me an inferiority complex here, Ryan. Mine's, all, mine's... <laughs> all, I'm, all I'm doing is copying the story. <laughs> no, but you've got that trademark flair that you use to, to tell it. You don't even need to have the issues in front of you, listeners. <laughs> you, know, you can just listen to Ryan recounting what happens. So... A great issue. I th I'm sure you'd agree, um, Ryan. Uh, uh, what happened here was momentous. Mm -hmm. And basically, like you say, the setup is Dracula luring them to this house, which has a great name, this this mansion, Whispering Hell. <laughs> wow, talk about an ominous sounding name. <laughs> so you'd think a mansion like this might be haunted or something um, for them right. to, to call it this. But then, um, you know, Dracula's just toying with them at this point in time. He First, he releases uh, the bats. And then we have mm -hmm. the, the first important event that happens, which will be a mainstay throughout the series, the scarring of um, um, Rachel Van Helsing's face. And that will stay with her throughout the series. And then, you know, later on, he's got some spiders <laughs> that mm -hmm. he sets on them, which is great. You don't often see a vampire manipulating spiders. <laughs> and, you know, then he's got he's got these elaborate traps uh, set up. Uh, but basically, then after toying with them, after separating them, you know, forcing them to split up, really, he uh, gets into more of his traditional sort of uh, confrontational fighting style, which is just menacing Edith and allowing Blade to come to him. And then we see some hand-to-hand -hand combat. And uh, we see Blade, like you say, has some mad skills. He's obviously... Uh, it hasn't been established that he has the... Uh, partial strength of a vampire yet up, you know in this point of the story that would come later but he's definitely capable of handling vampires i think in a, when he was introduced in issue 10 he took out three <laughs> vampires lickety split you know um so yeah he's a dangerous foe for dracula but dracula kind of bests him uh, on multiple occasions yeah but and we'll definitely see this in the the, the three issues that we talk about like Blade has this reputation, and I wouldn't say that Dracula respects him, but Dracula respects the reputation. Yes. Um, enough so, I mean, he's, he's definitely arrogant because he wants to wipe him out, too. So as a, as a sort of loose end, he invites him here to this house. Um, but yeah, this is, a, this is a great issue because, for one thing, we get some much-needed characterization from a few people. Yeah. Like Frank Drake, we meet him in the very first issue. But almost immediately, he is caught up in this whole saga with Dracula, and he's swept up eventually by these vampire hunters, and he's brought in. But you're kind of like, he's sort of like a hanger-on, like, 
why is he with them? Like, what is he like? Uh, we, we just need to know, like, kind of what we need a reset. What's going through this guy's head? And when we actually see him alone creeping around this mansion, you kind of get into it. It's like he doesn't know what he's doing. He's he's like afraid for his life, but yeah. he's going to give it his best shot. And it's just great when, like, he sees Blade and Blade is like, yeah, just karate chops for, his, yeah, his Luger are, out of his hand. Right, right. That's a good point, uh, Ryan. You know, this is actually going to become, later on in the series, this is going to become a a significant part of Frank Drake's character. He's actually going to feel himself becoming impotent with fear, and he's going to question his validity and usefulness as a member of the companions, of the hunters, Mm -hmm. later on. I think it happens in the late 20s or early 30s. I I can't recall now, but then he's going to set off on his own personal journey to to discover his, his courage. And and that that's uh, I think it's a standalone issue where Frank is 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 trying to find a way to become the man he's supposed to be by by traveling the world for a brief bit and you know so this is the first time we see him really quaking with fear because in the previous issues leading up to this one he's been quite brave and resourceful if you think about it just mm-hmm. a normal guy who's suddenly thrown in uh, thrown in his lot with vampire hunters and he's he's um, proven himself time and time again but in this issue yes this is where like you say the characterization comes forward and uh so kudos to marth marth wolfman for showing us a bit more of the human side you know this is how you and i would feel <laughs> if we're in this mansion <laughs> hunting a vampire all by our lonesome but blade mm-hmm. seems to be immune to this i mean he's an old hand at killing vampires in in haunted mansions so he seems completely unfazed but either way, that doesn't avail him against Dracula. Now, Ryan, no Dracula, no Tomb of Dracula issue would be complete without the trademark Dracula backhand slap, <laughs> which Dracula administers. And we get to see another trademark of, of Gene Colan's uh, art, which is the Gene Colan tackle, <laughs> which he does really well. You have, uh, you know, Blade tackling Dracula. And then, you know, of course, Dracula backhanding um, Frank Drake just before that. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you see that a lot in, in Gene Colan comics. Um, you even saw that in some obscure titles like Gem, Son of Saturn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, Gem tackling people. I mean, he tackles Superman at one point. So so um, it's, it's just great. I love this, this art. The, it's dynamic. The action is great. And then we also have um, in a sort of uh, weird uh, karmic retribution-like moment, Blade uh, scarring Dracula's face, similar to how he had scarred uh, Rachel's earlier with the wooden mm. knife, which you mentioned so well in the synopsis. That that caused Dracula a lot of pain and, and must have uh, cemented his hatred for Blade. I mean, like you say, he does have respect for Blade, but I think this is the, the point where he really started to despise Blade because he has mentioned before that Blade has killed many of his so-called legions. Mm-hmm. So that's where the respect part comes from. But I think here he really, you know, uh, decided that, you know, he was going to um, uh, enact a horrific revenge on Blade for scarring him. So, but then, Ryan, let's discuss the, the most tumultuous, the most important event in this comic. This is something, I think, the complete turnaround of the series up to this point, And I, I think must have shocked readers at the time which is that Edith was in fact turned into a vampire. And I was, throughout reading the issue for the first time, I remember this distinctly because I only read this issue when I was a little bit older. I never had this issue as a kid. I, I started, started collecting Tomb of Dracula with issue 25, the introduction mm-hmm. of Hannibal King. You know, yep. So that's where I got it. And I never read these early issues until much later. So I was sh- 
wondering throughout the issue, like, why hasn't Dracula, if he really wants to hurt Quincy, why hasn't he turned into a vampire yet? But of course, Wolfman was saving that revelation for the last, like any good writer would do. And uh, how did you feel the first time you read this? This part where Edith reveals that she's a vampire. I mean, it's a it's a great moment. It's a shocking moment. It's it's always. I mean, it's it's a big deal when one of your core cast members or somebody close to them is killed off um, because it kind of raises the stakes. Obviously, it yeah. shows that anything can happen. Um, it's a very tragic moment for Quincy who has already lost some of the that he loves and like you know that like his whole preoccupation was protecting his his daughter and everything and yeah. how he fails to do that you know not only does she die but she turned into a vampire and then he has to be the one to kind of put her um but it's I mean it's just so it's it's this horrible tragic moment for him but it's also done so beautifully by uh, by uh you know Gene Colan. I mean, mm. he he always gets like you know the power and the majesty of of Dracula. But this last, the penultimate page where you see her in that middle panel, where you see her with the red eyes and the fangs for the first time, and the horror on her face, the pain, the the like the pathos and how, and then like as she's leaping to her death, you see like real humanity in these characters for mm. like you know the, considering they've been fighting a monster, and this is just a, such a terrible tragic moment for them, and and you see like the 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 loss. So I think this is really well done and. You know, speak. I mean, we we both talked about how great Gene Colan is. Um, one of one of the things that I've I've heard other people describe is is that unlike a lot of artists, like Gene Colan, always drew characters as if they were in motion. Yeah. Like yeah. there's there's a real fluidity about his work, and it helps like pass like that. Everybody is always doing something. You don't get characters standing around, and it's it was yeah. one of those things moving. where like I tried like I, I sometimes I try looking for like a, a Gene Colan picture, you know, to use as like a desktop wallpaper or mm. you know like an a, like a profile picture <laughs> on like a social media or something like that. It's really hard to do that because he doesn't draw like poster shots. It's not like a Jim Lee or a John Byrne. Where yeah. You, Oh, you see that image of the character like striking a dynamic pose, and you get it. No, he doesn't draw like that. Half the time, the characters, the main character, the main focus, has his back to you because he's doing, like you said, a tackle of some characters. Yeah, like yeah. That. Like his his art is like you know it's washed in these shadows, but it's very dynamic because the characters are always doing something. Nobody is ever just standing around waiting, you know, to be posed as like mm. a superhero type of thing. Exactly. That's a so, great, great observation, Ryan. Yeah. I yeah. I didn't think about that, but but that is exactly the reason why I love some of Gene Colan's superhero stuff too. Like, uh, I love it mm. when he draws the Submariner and when yep. uh, Subby's swimming underwater and you see that same, same swirling effect, you know, from the water, which you see when Dracula is in the process of transforming into a bat or into mist. And Subby's always swimming. He's always, you know, uh, in motion. And you have these gene... Col- I mean, it, there's no speed lines. Uh, unless Dracula slaps someone, there are some speed lines. But most of the time, there aren't any. The motion is felt by, by simply right. the way he draws the characters. So that's a very good observation. That's probably why he's so suitable for these kind of, you know, um, comics where where people need to seem more real. You know, he's a very realistic artist, if you think about it. He's not cartoony. And, you know, uh, they were going to give the title of Tomb of Dracula to artist Bill Everett, the creator of the Submariner. Now, mm. later on in, in his career, and, and early on, of course, Bill Everett's art was still a little bit too cartoony. So I don't think it would have worked on Tomb of Dracula. Who knows? I might be wrong, 
But of course, you can't think of anyone else except Gene Cullen drawing Tomb of Dracula. So, um, you know, uh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> thank goodness for yeah. Stan Lee. Or actually, we should thank Gene Cullen's wife, Adrian. You know, um, uh, Adrian. She uh, <laughs> she convinced him, kind of like Stephen King's wife, Tabitha, convinced mm-hmm. him to publish Carrie. She convinced him to send in a sort of audition type page, you know, for yeah. Stan because Stan had promised it to Gene, but then he reneged on his promise and promised it to Bill Everett. So, you know, thank goodness that we got Gene instead. Not that I don't like Bill Everett, you know, Ryan, but still, this this whole motion effect that you're dis- discussing, it's it's definitely the reason why his art's such a standout on this title. So that's it for uh, um, issue 12, one of the great issues. Well, yes. Before, before we leave this yeah. one, there is a scene, and we can come back to talk to it, but I do want to draw attention to it before we leave. Of course. Um, it's the page when... It's it's the sort of like uh, intermediate scene with Blade when he's at Saffron's place. <laughs> that top oh, panel, so of course, classic. like there there she's coming in with like the martinis. But if you look at where he is, he's on what looks like a bed with like a shag blanket and everything, and like a lot of pillows. The bed <laughs> is suspended by chains. It is like held up, so it's sort of like a almost like a hammock, but like flat. Like this is so seventies. Like yeah, like that. The they, only reason that bed is like suspended is like for like you know for like to, for making love. Yeah, for hoo ha or like something. The, the, the like the motion, the movement, everything. Like this is such a a you know like. <laughs> yeah, is Blade is Blade a vampire hunter or is he a rich pimp? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I think definitely Saffron, Saffron knows her man. She knows how to catch him. But, and then, of course, the thing was, when he leaves, she throws one of his wooden daggers and it sticks in the door frame. She was going to murder him, basically. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. She was intent on murdering him for being stood up. Well, kind of stood up by him. Yeah, uh, but like, like I mean, obviously, like, like a wooden knife, like sticking that into like flesh and bone like if for their vampires that's one thing sticking wood into other wood or metal like that's like like she's got a superman arm yeah it requires incredible strength to do that no no i don't know i mean she might be a half vampire too who knows maybe her mom was attacked (laughs) you know we'll get to that in the next issue but i I love that scene when they're when they're together and they're about to uh, they're about to go at it when he gets the phone call interrupt the fact that he's just he's lounging on her bed that looks like it's like a shag shag with like yeah. chains holding up that bed. you know a... ryan what this reminded me of this is a total aside but it is definitely in the horror vein i you you remember stanley kubrick's the shining right yeah of course. stephen yeah. king's the shining but you know stanley kubrick's the shining is so different from the stephen king book there's a yeah. scene where where um you know the cook um the black cook i forgot his dick name Hall- now dick halloran yeah. right he um you know he's since left and he's in florida in his retirement home and he gets, you know, the, his shining kicks in and, and warns him of the danger that Danny oh, and yeah, the Torrance family is in. Yeah, and he's lying on this lavish bed, looking at these <laughs> nude paintings, paintings of these black uh, beauties, these African-American uh, uh, beauties against the wall. And this was the same scene. This is like a total aside, you know, just a peek into the characters' lives and their proclivities and their <laughs> predilections. And, and this is the same with Blade. You, you, so this is what he does in his free time. That's what Dick Halloran's up to in his free time. <laughs> I love it. Love it. I love it. It's it's awesome. I'm glad you 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 took us back to that scene. I I kind of glossed over it. <laughs> awesome, Ryan. Awesome. Okay, so so this is the part that I that I dread to get to because now my synopsis is going to be compared against yours, Ryan. So 
Don't expect the same level of quality here, listeners. <laughs> okay, we get to issue 13 now. To Kill a Vampire. Cover date 1973, uh, October of that year. Price 20 cents. And this time the cover is by Gil Kane and Tom Palmer. Uh, writer Marv Wolfman again, penciler Gene Colan, inker Tom Palmer once more, and letterer John Constanza. So this time around we don't have the colorist Petra Scotes. Uh, Tom Palmer does the colors. And here is the synopsis. <clears throat> Rocking on their heels after witnessing the death of young Edith Harker, the companions bicker among themselves before descending into a dark state of depression. Eager to lighten the mood, Blade decides that this is the perfect time to recount his origin story, to show that he can somehow commiserate with Quincy's suffering at the hands of the Count. Dracula, meanwhile, heads into the nearby town for a snack and ends up saving a young woman from a sex fiend before putting the whammy on her. As Drac is steadily placing more and more of the townsfolk under his hypnotic control for some sinister purpose, we are introduced to a gang of Asian trigger men working for the mysterious Dr. Sun as they collect vampire victims from the London morgue. After bizarrely attending a boxing match of all things, Dracula decides to cruise over the countryside in bat form where he spots an old-time revival gathering. One of the attendees of said gathering is a contact of Quincy's and reports the whereabouts of the Count to the companions. They track Dracula to his newest lair, which is yet another hilltop mansion overlooking the revival ministry, and the companions attacked en masse. As the battle commences, the townsfolk are hypnotically drawn to the mansion, shuffling zombie-like towards their master, who is now in dire peril. The fight eventually ends with Blade hurling a wooden knife through the heart of Dracula, seemingly putting an end to the Count's reign of terror. And of course, this story will definitely be continued. <laughs> so that's my very short synopsis of, of issue uh, 13. But a lot happened in the issue, right, Ryan? Which we'll discuss oh, yeah. as we go through it. So um, uh, what did you think of this particular issue? And what are the highlights? What are the high points for you in this story? So... I really like this issue and I've like probably for a lot of people the the highlight or the important thing would be we get at least part of Blade's origin. Um we get like the basic we don't we like there will be other pieces added to his origin or you could even call them retcons later on down the road. Yeah. Um but we sort of get the the origin story of him and why he hates vampires, why he goes after vampires, that that whole piece of it. However, what I really liked about this issue is it sort of put front and center one of my favorite things about the character and concept of Dracula. And this goes to another podcast that I did years ago. Um, uh, again, going back to the Fire and Water Podcast Network, of which I'm a part, on an episode of Fire and Water Team Up, or FW Team Up, uh, Siskoid and I covered the two issue i don't even remember who the publisher was now but it was zorro versus dracula oh. um so it, it's not a recent uh comic like dynamite has the zorro license i think it's not them no this was this was way back 90s, when early oh, 90s okay, okay. um 
but on that we were kind of like talking about like what we liked and i I kind of reflected on that one that one of the things i really like about dracula what sets him apart from other vampire characters is i like the sense of the old world regality the aristocracy that he's not just this vampire this creature of the night like what sets him apart from like nosferatu or the lost boys even though i love the movie the lost boys and and there's a lot about that but i like the fact that he is regal he's royal he command he he puts himself above the common people but he also commands them and we see in this issue how he is not just preying on the people but he is turning them into his servants and the scene when they go into the the post office um and gosh the face on this guy this postal (laughs) worker when they go to see him like this must have been gene colon drawing somebody at like the marvel bullpen or the offices or something (laughs) um when when Blade shows him the picture, the wonderful sketch of what Dracula looks like, the way this guy's face just goes dead and he becomes like in the stupor. And they know they're like, Dracula has mesmerized this guy. He's put the whammy on this guy. Yeah. And then later on, as they're attacking and he mentally summons, he's calling all of his people and like zombies, like they all just kind of pick up their guns and their weapons and they start storming the house to protect their master. Yeah. And I just love that because it's a different kind of threat. It's a different kind of power that you don't think of dracula right away but it's important to his character and i just really like seeing that executed the way the story does so yeah i mean Mm. obviously like you know the the fact that the story ends with dracula being staked in the heart and we the fact that we get a lot of blades origin in this one for me those are sort of secondary to i just like the scenes when dracula is commanding the villagers and yeah. putting their, him, them under his spell that's what i really like about this one yeah it's got a real village of the damned feel to it <laughs> yeah, right yeah, this yeah. whole issue it's it's kind of like marf Wolfen was playing with with some other tropes that was popular at the time you know um mm-hmm. you know you had uh, uh lots of horror movies that had already been shown in the 50s and stuff about you know mind control and and aliens slowly taking us over right. and and this is just one of those i think uh, also you know uh, something that's been generated by the american uh horror you know um uh, franchises up to this point but i like the way he does it here because this is a vampire without turning people into vampires necessarily showing that humans are basically just playthings to him yeah. you know um yeah. kind of like an evil charles xavier <laughs> who's mm-hmm. like decided, okay, mutants should rule. This is kind of like what Dracula is. You know, he's a vampire. He's decided, okay. But uh, of course, later it would be established that if you're very strong-willed, it's more difficult to control. Right. But, you know, we'll get to this later. These townsfolk, I'm not saying they're weak-willed. I'm just saying they're very gullible and naive. After all, most of them attend an old-style revival ministry, <laughs> <laughs> which which we'll also get to in the next issue. But yeah. um, it's oh. it's seemingly easy for him to control them. But now I have a question, Ryan. There's this um, excellent scene. I think it's on page uh, four uh, where Dracula is confronting this would-be rapist of this uh, lady, mm-hmm. Cecile Parker, who's being accosted by this guy. And and let me just say, Gene Colan draws an awesome, sinister bad guy in this <laughs> rapist because look at his expression uh, on yep. the top left panel when Dracula's like grabbing him on the shoulder, turning him around. Man, that guy's evil. <laughs> you can mm-hmm. just see it in his face. And then he's so surprised when he sees Dracula with these fangs glaring at him. And then uh, just after Dracula gives his trademark, you know, backhand uh, slap, uh, you know, you have this wonderful series of three panels where Dracula leads this girl. He's already placed her under hypnotic control. And this is why Gene Colan is such a master of mood and of um, atmosphere. 
Dracula leads her, covering with his, her with his cape, into the darkness. And slowly, as they enter the darkness, you just have this scream emanating from it. <laughs> and that, I'm so glad you brought that up because oh, that like brilliant. little series of panels, like if we come back to that later on in the episode, like that might be my favorite little sequence or favorite panels it of all these three issues. I brilliant. love that scene so much. Definitely a contender. Definitely, it's 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 amazing. And you know that that is when we uh, now this is the question I have for you, Ryan. Uh, it seems as if he he did in fact uh, give her a vampire bite, even though she didn't turn into a vampire. So he can either place you under his hypnotic control, as he did with Clifton Graves in the earlier issues of the series, Mm -hmm. by just staring at you. Or he could possibly place you under a deeper control uh, by uh, biting you, but then controlling the vampire effect to the extent that you just become a mindless slave. Or in this case of Cecile Parker's case, to be activated later. She's kind of like a sleeper agent for him. Mm-hmm. Um, he sort of inserts this hypnotic uh, command while she's lying there shivering in the mist th- that she will only be activated later upon his mental call. Um, so I don't know quite how it works, but it seems that sometimes he does in fact bite people just to mind control them and not to turn them into vampires. Uh, right. what, do you th- what do you think of that? They never explicitly say exactly how he does that. Yeah, the rules, are, they sort of play fast and loose with the rules from sometimes like a simple bite doesn't transform you but he can also i mean he changed edith into a vampire without killing her all the way so yeah it it does kind of he kind of makes up the rules based on the convenience of the story yeah or Um, or you could just yeah because later on when they when they see the guy at the post office we see he does have two bite marks on his neck too that's why i i Um, noticed that yeah but or you can also just describe it to the fact that Dracula has many powers, and you know he, in fact, in the next issue, reveals some powers that we, uh, unless you've mm-hmm. read Uncanny X Men, uh, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't know that he would have, you know, um, which we'll talk about next time because it, it, Dracula seems to be able to con- do many things that the Draculas in the movie, you know, right. uh, movies uh, can't do. Um, so the Marvel Dracula is arguably the most powerful iteration of Dracula, unless you count the Bram Stoker version done by Francis Ford Coppola who also seems to be able to you know have like elemental powers which we'll get right. to yeah but then Ryan what do you make of this Dracula says that he wants to know humans better so he's back in London we see him flying past Big Ben after he you know saved Cecile Parker and he goes to a sports arena because in his own words he wants to if he is to conquer humans he must know their every whim their every mood and where best to observe them than in a place where their passions burst free. And that is a sports arena. <laughs> then he says, tonight none shall fall beneath my hand. Tonight's a night for study. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we see him uh, attend the boxing match. That, that is so bizarre. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit weird. Um, but it's, I mean... Uh, it's fun. I get it. it, it I mean, it's... <laughs> You do sort of have this thing. I mean, it's it's a sort of necessary thing whenever you have a man out of time type of character is they have to get acclimated to modern yeah. society. So yeah, you need yeah. to kind of watch like, okay, wh- what are modern people like? Where do they get their entertainment? Where do they get their knowledge? Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, but, but, but like <laughs> you said, very weird. I wonder if Gene Cullen was just like, I want to just draw something like this. I want to draw boxing matches. Yeah, well, I kind of always liked it when they drew boxing matches in comics. I'm not just talking about Superman versus Ali here. I'm talking about, you know, even in the Batman comics that Don Newton used to draw, every now and then Batman would be either 
practicing sparring with Robin or something in a, in a boxing mm -hmm. ring, and then he would have that Don Newton look where he's still wearing his cowl you know, or, or, the, or the mask, and then he's just in his boxing shorts. And <laughs> you know what, what image I'm talking about, Ryan? It, it's from the early 70s Batman. And then there's even a Batman issue where he goes up against, I think it was, um, who is it? Oh, I've forgotten. One of Batman's trademark villains, the guy with the bald head and the glasses. I've forgotten his name now. Oh, Professor Hugo Strange. Yeah, Hugo Strange, where Batman is involved in a boxing match, but he's drugged. And then you mm -hmm. know he gets taken out in the boxing match. So, you know, I, I love it when they draw these things in comics, but... You know, I think the reason why Colin included it, it here is he wants Dracula to look down on humanity and think just like, you know, Dracula would have done probably in ancient Roman times when he looked down on a gladiator match, say, match saying that these humans should be conquered because, you know, they're so fickle in their pleasures. You know, they like bloodshed right. and they like entertainment and, you know, they're they're not worth being the dominant race. But then we've got a, a great series of panels where, in fact, we do see this this boxing match. And uh, Gene Cullen draws some, like you say, he's good with motion. So he draws a mean boxing match. <laughs> <laughs> but then before that, um, or or I think, yeah, just before that, we have the introduction or at least the name drop of a, a classic Dracula Marvel villain uh, from the Bronze Age, which is Dr. Sun. And uh, what, do, what do you think about him, Ryan? I mean... I know you've read the later issues where we get to see him more, but this is the first time he appears. A bit of a sinister subplot going on here where his henchmen are collecting bodies. Yeah, and I'll confess, I don't remember exactly how this plot plays out. I know some of the broader strokes, but I, I kind of forgot about some of these details. So like after this, I'm going to keep reading because I want to kind of revisit that whole aspect. I was When I got to this, I was like, Oh, Dr. Sun, I forgot about this part. Yeah. Okay, then I'm not going to spoil anything for you because yeah. it, it's pretty great. I mean, he's arguably the the, the best Tomb of Dracula villain, I, I mean, at mm -hmm. least in my mind. But, of course, there, there are many down the line who challenge Dracula's uh, supremacy. But, you know, for me, this he's it. He's Dracula's arch foe, at least in Marvel, mm -hmm. you know, in the Marvel comics, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you think about, obviously, Quincy Harker, he's actually Dracula's foe. But a, but another villain who's on the same level as Dracula. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, and and he's obviously derived from Fu Manchu, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know this, this Asian overlord. But um, he's totally different, um, as you'll see later on down the line. He's actually not Fu Manchu at all. So right. um, I, I, I really like him. One of, one of the, my favorite Bronze Age villains. Wacky Bronze Age villains, in fact. <laughs> so, Ryan, then we get to to uh, Blade's origin. Now, I found this to be incredibly horrifying because think about it. You're a pregnant woman. Put put yourself in Blade's mother's shoes, you know, um, during the, rec the uh, when he recounts his origins. She is um, in labor. She's helpless. She's in pain. They can't find a doctor. They call a doctor. They get this doctor. It turns out to be Deacon Frost. Later on, we'll learn it's Deacon Frost. Sorry, I hope I haven't given anything away for, for, for readers of future issues. He enters... And instead of helping her to deliver the baby, he basically drinks her blood. Now, think about the terror. Look at the panel where you see him about to, to, to savage her neck. She's screaming in terror because she's in labor. She's completely helpless. She's probably fearing for her baby's life. And he's drinking from her. And then he, in fact, kills her, leaps out of the window, and there you have Blade's origin. Now, this is very savage, very disturbing and terrifying for me. This part really scared me uh, when I read it the first time. What do you think about that, that origin? <laughs> Born in terror. 
Yeah, I mean, I think probably a lot of readers were just disappointed that this version of Deacon Frost didn't look like Stephen Dorff <laughs> from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, he's totally different. Um, yeah, no, I I mean, I like, I really like the sequence. I like the details, like everything, like the, the, um, the patterns on the dress of his mother, like the sweat beads on her oh, forehead and everything like this. Brilliant. Like it's a really sort of just part, like the, again, the details and the emotion that, that Colin can put in this, the, the use of shading on the final, the final pattern, uh, panel on that page, just when you see the teeth and then you write like that sequence, the three little panel running across the page and they're not like you know typical like you know straight edge box panels that kind of like breaking apart as the scene is sort of like shifting into this sort of nightmare um with him attacking her and the people kicking down the door and then him diving out the window and everything it's yeah just really wow. great detail great great stuff yeah yeah and even then the eventual fight when they when they do mm-hmm. then you know like you say they interrogate the villagers they realize this guy at the post office has been hypnotized and then they they you know follow the directions to this castle and then you know uh, this this fight though is uh, more haphazard at least for dracula because he didn't plan on it he didn't you know uh, have all these elaborate traps set as in the previous issue here basically the companions if you want to call them that the the vampire hunters are out for blood because of what he did to edith so they're mm-hmm. um, attacking recklessly but this works in their favor i mean you've got this great panel where blade sort of approaches dracula and then uh, Dracula is is uh, well stapled to the wall by this crossbow arrow <laughs> uh, fired by presumably Rachel, right? And then you have this amazing uh, fight sequence where Blade again tries to you know grapple with Dracula, and then Dracula picks him up. And this is another. Uh, this is not so much a Gene Colan uh, you know drawing trope as it is a Dracula fighting style kind of trope. He likes to pick people up and <laughs> hurl them. At walls, other than his backhanded slap, this is his favorite move during a fight. Or <laughs> what yeah, would you say, right? He does it twice in two pages. First yes. he does it to Blade, and on the next page he does it to Taj. He throws Taj out the window. Exactly. Yeah. And then you know, this is that's a funny part too, because you know when he throws Taj out of the window, which is a great panel, he says, um, you know, uh, the frigid waters beneath the mansion will. You know, beneath this hilltop morgue will will kill you, Taj. He says, and if you have luck, perhaps you'll survive this ordeal, though none have ever lived through it before. Which implies that he has thrown people out of this exact same window and into this river before. <laughs> so <laughs> that part was very strange, but but fun to read. I, I really enjoyed this action sequence between them. And And Ryan, don't you feel that the juxtaposition of panels where... As they're they're engaging in the battle with Dracula, you have panels cutting to the villagers walking up the hill with these staring eyes, these wide eyes, um, you know, completely zombified, walking up the hill. And then you cut back to the battle scene. Then you cut back to the villagers, you know, kind of heightening the tension of mm-hmm. this whole this 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 whole um, series of panels. I, I loved it. I do too. I think it's it's very cinematic. The intercutting of like the fight scenes with the people walking up, it does kind of call back to like Village of the Damned, as you said, or even like something sort of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, oh, yes. just sort of like the visualization mm. of that. Or mm. yeah, um, yeah, just kind of it's it's great. Like and you'd think you know all these people coming up to the house like with their guns, and are they going to help? And it's like no, of course they're there to serve <laughs> their master and 
and it's yeah. it's just again like the, the looming threat that our our heroes the companions can only focus on just kill dracula kill dracula kill dracula they have no idea that if they did kill dracula and they stepped outside they might be gunned down or stabbed yeah. by like villagers with pitchforks or something like that yeah so time is running out for them but they don't know it we as readers know it mm -hmm. hence the the tension that we feel and the enjoyment the suspense is there and then you know uh ryan the very last okay you've you've got quincy i should mention this firing off his wooden poison filled darts <laughs> which is a, a classic he's gonna do that at least uh, another two dozen times throughout the series but this time dracula you know does not in fact get wounded by them which which is what happened the very first time quincy tried to you know, use this technique to kill him. Dracula, in fact, was wounded by the darts in a previous issue. But this time around, Dracula uh, has yet another trademark move, which he does whenever a crossbow bolt or a, or a something approaches him that could harm him, he turns into mist. And then the mist can still talk, <laughs> which yeah. always happens. There's a, there's a speech bubble from the mist. Your mind fails you, Harker. <laughs> it's great. And then you have reform, him reforming in front of uh, Quincy, intent upon killing him. And I think this is quite brilliant. They don't really show how Blade, you know, impaled him with the wooden mm -hmm. knife. But it happens. You just see Dracula screaming, no. And then you have this amazing final panel with Dracula lying there and the, the wooden knife protruding from his heart. I love the way Colin drew Dracula there, you know, yep. in death. It's yep. just an amazing panel. And Blade is you know, ecstatically exclaiming, I've killed Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> so a very unexpected turn of events, I think. Um, th that's why I love this series. It kept you guessing, right, Ryan? Yep. You, yep. you never knew how they were going to end on what kind of cliffhanger they were going to end it. You'd think it would be uh, disadvantageous to the companions. That's every basically how every issue ends, but not this one. In this one, there's mm -hmm. a seeming moment of triumph, which you know is not going to last. <laughs> <laughs> well i know that this book ran 70 issues and we're at yeah. 13 so <clears throat> but back at the time you know the readers probably didn't right. so so definitely they might have thought what they canceled yeah. it already damn them yeah. no it's a it is a great cliffhanger yeah, yeah it's amazing so uh this brings us to uh the final the third and final issue we're going to be <laughs> discussing ryan and i'll leave it in your capable hands to yet again All introduce right. this issue and forgive me because this is a lengthy synopsis. Sorry. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Go for um, it. It's the same creative team as before with Wolfman and Colin, Tom Palmer doing inks and colors, Costanza doing letters, Roy Thomas Art. Uh, the cover was by Gil Kane and Frank Giacoya. Uh, the cover date was November of 1973 on sale date August 14th, 1973. Issue 14 is called Dracula is Dead. Dracula is dead. The vampire hunters who gather around his body cannot believe it themselves, but it appears to be true. As they check his vitals to confirm there is no longer any un to his undeadness, Rachel hears a commotion from outside the house and goes to the window. What she sees is nearly as terrifying as the vampire they just defeated. The street is full of townsfolk, all of the locals that Count Dracula had mesmerized in recent days and weeks. And though the Count may be dead, his psychic control over them remains. Dozens of villagers rush toward the hilltop morgue with guns and weapons in hand, fulfilling Dracula's final mental summons. Protect their master, or protect his body, and kill anyone that tries to stop them. 
Knowing they have precious little time, Quincy Harker orders Blade to sever Dracula's head, else the vampire could possibly recover from the wooden knife in his heart. But Blade and Frank throw themselves against the front door, trying to stop the onrush of possessed villagers. Their efforts are futile. The zombified villagers crash through the doors and pile in. Blade tries to fight them back, but is lifted off his feet by the crowd and tossed aside. Frank and Rachel and Quincy are trampled violently underfoot. They were so close, mere seconds from ending the threat of Count Dracula for all time. Now, as they crawl beneath the feet of the villagers and find cover in dark corners, it is all they can do just to survive the surge. At last, the villagers carry Dracula's corpse on their shoulders out of the hilltop morgue and out into the pre-dawn morning. Blade, Frank, Rachel, and Quincy regroup and realize that Dracula may once again snatch victory from the jaws of certain defeat. Meanwhile, on the northern coast of Ireland, a small truck drives up to a large estate house. From out of the truck, Mr. Chen and Lo carry the body they retrieved from the morgues last night. They bring the body into the laboratory of Professor Morgo, an elderly Chinese man who runs a series of specialized tests to confirm, scientifically, that the body Chen and Lo brought is, in fact, a vampire. All of the men agree this news will please a Dr. Sun, whoever that is. Back at the hilltop morgue, the vampire hunters take solace in the revelation that their mute friend Taj survived his fall into the water last issue. Elsewhere, a group of the villagers wander across the hillside carrying a coffin with Dracula's corpse inside. But his body has been decomposing ever since the knife entered his chest, and as his brain physically begins to break down and crumble into dust, so does his mental hold over the people evaporate. Slowly, cognition returns to the villagers, and with it, a sudden dread of their own actions. Remembering just enough of the horror, the villagers drop the coffin on the ground and flee back to their town. Unseen by the townsfolk, but still very close by, Father Josiah Dawn sits in one of the many empty chairs of the Church of the Forever Resurrected, the revivalist tent church over which he presides. But attendance at the church has been pitiful lately, and Josiah feels abandoned not only by his congregation, but by his God, too. Angrily, he throws his Bible to the ground, and then immediately regrets it. He begs God's forgiveness and asks for some sign, some miracle that he is on the right path. Just then, Josiah sees a flash of light from something on the hillside. He follows the light until he comes across the coffin of Count Dracula. It is glowing. Josiah lifts the lid and sees the skeletal remains of the vampire lying there, and he believes that this is the sign his God sent him. Three days later, Frank Drake rushes into the parlor where Quincy Harker and the other vampire slayers are playing chess. Frank shows them the poster he found on Fleet Street, that of a Josiah Dawn's revivalist tent promising a miracle that the dead will return to life, accompanied by a picture of Dracula's corpse. That night, Blade and Frank attend the tent church, which is no longer empty. Father Josiah Dawn now preaches to a full and rabid congregation. The parishioners hang on Josiah's every word and shout parts of his sermon back to him when he calls them. For these people want to see the miracle he has promised. They want to do the Lord's work he has promised. Josiah reveals Dracula's coffin as he tells them God will resurrect the dead to demonstrate his power. Blade and Frank rush toward the stage to stop him, but the crowd is too thick. They try to warn Josiah, 
but as he they try to warn Josiah, but he accuses them of blasphemy and orders his parishioners to grab the vampire hunters. Then Josiah removes the wooden knife, and before the astonished crowd's believing eyes, the flesh and tissue reconstitute on Dracula's bones, and the Lord of the Undead lives again. Naturally, the first thing Dracula does is tell Josiah that Blade was right, and he plans to kill Josiah, and then everyone else. But Josiah brandishes a massive crucifix, the power of which slams into Dracula like a physical blow. As the vampire retreats, he is surrounded by parishioners, all with holy crosses. Josiah reveals that Dracula was not resurrected so that he could spread his power of evil and death over the world. God brought him back so that the people could see him killed again by God's own power. Blade and Frank try to force their way through the crowd to Dracula, for they know that Josiah and his flock have underestimated the Count's power. As the parishioners swarm him and grab him, Dracula lashes out, cursing them, and transforms into mist. He reappears, hovering in the air above them. He tells the fearful people that he is like a god unto himself, and demonstrates his power by calling down a lightning bolt from the sky. The people cower in terror, but Father Josiah steps forward defiantly. Dracula goes to attack him, but once more Josiah raises his heavy crucifix to thwart the vampire. Again, Dracula summons a lightning bolt. This time, it strikes Josiah, splintering and shattering the cross in his hands, breaking his bones and scalding his flesh. Dracula looms over the dying Josiah and makes mockery of his faith. Dracula says that belief in anyone's power but one's own is foolish. The only thing we can count on in life is ourselves, and that is why Josiah's god let him die. But as the life slips away from him, Josiah tells Dracula that he's wrong. For though he dies while Dracula flies off into the night, Josiah Dawn dies with his soul at peace. And that is something that Dracula, no matter how long he lives, will ever have. Wow. To be continued, of course. <clears throat> Amazing. Uh, next, bloodbath. <laughs> if that doesn't bring you back, listeners or readers, I should say, then nothing will. Uh, again, Ryan, a great synopsis. Thanks. Uh, you know, I felt myself immersed in the story again as I was listening to you. And, um, you know, I really like this issue, too, for completely different reasons than uh, the first two. But I'll let you give your take on this one first. <clears throat> Overall, as a whole, uh, with this whole revival setting and Josiah Dawn entering as a new character, I think this was Marf Wolfen kind of, kind of saying Dracula is you know, the enemy of the Christian God and sometimes directly mm -hmm. faces the Christian God, not just through the crucifix or through the church, which we've seen him, you know, in previous issues being plagued by. But here it's sort of him taking on the Christian God and, dare I say, it's sort of besting him, even though at the end, the you know, uh, Josiah Dawn gives a parting shot, <laughs> mm -hmm. which doesn't seem to face Dracula. So I don't know, Wolfman was sort of setting this up as... Because if you think about it, the companions were just spectators. <laughs> they right. basically just went to this revival and witnessed Dracula battling this this minister, this preacher. <laughs> so what do you think about this whole setup? I think it's it's good because, as you say, if you're going to have a symbol like the crucifix, if that is going to be a weapon against a vampire or something like that, I think eventually, if you're going to do a long-form serial story like this, you have to <clears throat> you have to put front and center like what does what does the symbol mean? What is it about? And talk about 
um, the the power of of the faith um, and the symbol of Christianity and what that means. So I think getting into the actual church, and we've seen it before. We've seen how Dracula responds to being in a church in a previous issue. Um, you know, these these are important things. So I think having him actually have this this face off with a man of God, a man who has who is a man of faith and having Dracula sort of defeat him kind of saying like his faith didn't save him from a mortal death, but does father Dawn still get kind of the upper hand in his, his spiritual, uh, like, you know, denouncement at the end. Um, is there, I mean, you could, I, I wasn't even thinking about this at the time that I read it, but I just kind of like kind of went there. I mean, could this be a sort of commentary on on people who sort of put ascribe that like you know faith alone is enough to sort of justify certain things, like hmm. um, whether it's like Christian scientists or you know in politicians who think you know just they offer their you know thoughts and prayers, but where's the actual action? Things like that. You could say, you know, you know, you know, Father Don brought his his faith and his prayers and his belief in God to this fight with Dracula. It didn't save him. Exactly. <laughs> like, like, so what? How much victory does he actually achieve? And I just went and looked it up because this scene reminded me of um, another scene, which my actual favorite vampire story is the Stephen King novel, Salem's Law. Oh, yes, me too. Um, Ryan, yes, that is the, that's my favorite Stephen King novel, bar mine none. Too, mine too. Oh, it's my favorite oh, Stephen King amazing. book, and it's my favorite vampire story. Oh. Um, and I was wondering, I was like, I wonder if Wolfman was thinking about that, but then I realized, I was like, no, Salem's Lot was published two or three years after this one. Yeah. So, But that one, you have the scene when um, Barlow confronts, uh, what is the father's name? What is the priest's name? Father... Uh, Father Callahan. Callahan, Callahan mm, thing. Yeah. Um, when he kills the boy's uh, parents, and he, he has that confrontation, and and he calls Callahan out. He's like, "Your faith faithless fails you," and priest. that's why he's able yeah. to, yeah, faithless priest. And he he's able to actually bite Callahan and sort of curse him. And he's like, he's like, you, he's like, I'm I'm condemning you to a fate worse than death because he yeah. doesn't turn him into a vampire, but he's sort of cursed and he has to leave the town, and, yeah. and he can't go into his own church. Yeah. Oh, that's um, a brilliant scene. No, this is so, definitely reminiscent of that, Ryan. I was thinking the same thing, definitely. It's a good, yeah, great so that I you brought that up. It's, it's an interesting sort of confrontation when you have this this person of of faith and this person of God going up against Dracula, and Dracula is still able to win on every physical level. It's not like just being a priest or being a, a person uh, like who has their own congregation is going to mean you can go toe to toe with the king of vampires. <laughs> exactly, that itself is not enough, but it might spare your soul and is that enough or what does that say yeah it's again it's it's a thought-provoking issue i don't think it's narratively or dramatically as strong as the previous two but it definitely raises a lot of questions and interesting ideas yes that just by changing the setting which is literally just um downhill from the the previous setting in the in the previous issue which was the castle you have this uh, uh revival uh these um uh canvas tents set up you know uh typical of a revival ministry and uh, they showed it they previewed it in the previous issue when dracula flew over the 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 town right ryan so um we didn't know at the time you know when you first read it that this was going to play a part but you know it did and um you know i the reason why i like this issue so much it's definitely not my favorite of the three we discussed but it's up up there with one of my favorite tomb of dracula issues is because here we see um well dracula has always in my mind been 
one of the ultimate Marvel comics smack talkers. <laughs> He's up there with Thor and with Namor. <laughs> now you could... Oh, Doctor Doom probably. Okay, yeah. Doctor Doom is a classic too. Yeah, but uh, if you think about, it, I mean, just listen to some of this dialogue, right? So Dracula <laughs> escapes the the claws of the 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 insane, you know, congregation, and then he reforms and he says, "Now you wanton imbeciles! Now you shall see the full power of Dracula, Lord of the Undead." And then he continues to 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 insult them. Observe, you lowly fools. Look skywards as I summon lightning. And that's when we learn Dracula, in fact, has more powers than we assumed up to this point. He can actually control the elements uh, mm. to an extent. And then, you know, it, it keeps going. He says, okay, uh, you know, for, uh, Josiah Dawn, you have rescued me. And for that, you may expect your boon. Death shall be your favor. Death beneath <laughs> the fangs of Dracula. <laughs> and then the priest, uh, you know, or, or the minister, he, he kind of... Um, does well for himself too in the smack talk department he says uh, nay the lord shall crush you the lord and his totem of truth <laughs> you know so it keeps going on and on and on and it just made me realize why i love dracula so much because he is one of those larger than life personalities like namor you know like mm -hmm. thor they like to to tout themselves they like to to speak about themselves in the third person sometimes usually with nicknames they've ascribed to themselves prince of darkness you know uh, <laughs> scion of of, uh, of odin you know uh, the avenging sun you know all of right. that kind of stuff but i love it because when you're in the midst of a confrontation of this scale uh, of this epic nature you know you've got the elements at play you've got lightnings uh, you know slashing all across the countryside you've got god in the midst this crucifix shattering there's an explosion you know, uh, this kind of e epic smack talking is, is, is you know, uh, unforgettable. Right, Ryan? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, yeah, it definitely is epic. It's so great. And then, you know, you can just feel the storm raging around them as this is happening. And don't you think that that first time, that first panel where Dracula is calling down the lightning, isn't that amazingly penciled by Colin? And also, oh, obviously, yeah. inked by Tom Palmer. But Colin, or, or Tom Palmer did the coloring on this as well. And, and right, right, I yeah. think that was an amazing panel, even though I don't really like it when Tom Palmer. I mean, I like it. It's just not my uh, the ideal art team if Tom Palmer also colors, because you can see some of his ink lines kind of blurring and getting lost. Yeah. You can see that. But, um, you know, it's still a great, you know, a job by Tom on the colors and that that panel especially. And then, Ryan, we've got uh, just just before I forget, we've got something that Colin is is actually well known for. Uh, if you go a, a little bit earlier in the issue, you see Dr. Sun and his henchmen performing this experiment or this this check uh, and they're on this vampire that they've acquired and there's this machinery all around them and you've got this humming noise, uh, which was brilliantly <laughs> done by the lettering, like mm, all over. Now, this is also another one of Gene Colan's artistic, you know, uh, kind of tropes where he draws machinery uh, you know, uh, during an experiment, we see a lot of this in the Gem Son of Saturn series, which yeah. I've mentioned twice now. That doesn't mean I'm a fan of the series. It's a horrible <laughs> series, but great colon art. As a student of colon, take note, listeners. Gene is good at drawing machinery and then people lying on tables being ex being experimented on during said, you know, workings of this machinery and then creating this sense of you're a lab rat. You know, you're right. stuck in this. And, and you'll see that a lot in some of his early Iron Man comics, even in some of his Submariner comics where Namor is, you know, manipulating Atlantean machinery 
for some uh, effects. Or, or I'm thinking of m- maybe a villain like Plant Master, you know, where mm. he is a Plant Man or Plant Master. Marvel Plant Master is Jason Woodrow or Plant Man. No, Plant Man. It is Plant Man. It's Plant Man. Plant yeah. Man is the Marvel version. He, you know, uh, in fact, appears in quite a few colon drawn submariner issues and he has this machinery in his ship which has the same kind of effect and i find that very interesting when colin draws that coupled with his sound effects that he puts in (laughs) now i'm thinking that's colin and not the letterer but you know it could be so you know I, i love so many things about this issue and still it's not my favorite of the three we've discussed so that says a lot because this is a great issue I mean, Ryan, just look at the panel where Dracula is reforming himself after they pull the stake out while he's lying in the coffin. Yeah. And I don't know, have you ever seen the the TV series uh, True Detective? With of course. The yeah. first season with Woody Har- Harrelson, you yeah. know, and, and um, Matthew McConaughey. And Matthew McConaughey, that scene where they are at an old-style uh, revival ministry ga- gathering. It's an, it's an episode two or three, and I thought of that scene too. Oh, yeah. man, that's great. I like, definitely thought of that. Now, Ryan, doesn't this explain why these villagers were so easy to control? Yep. If you listen to yep. Rust Cole's dialogue, you know, <laughs> Marty, I'm, I'm sure it's safe to say that none of these people will be splitting the atom anytime soon. <laughs> this explains why these weak-minded sods... Now, I'm not saying all religious people are weak-minded. I'm just saying that the people in this town, they're so easily swayed by Josiah Dawn. There's even a, a part... He's, he's engaged in the battle with Dracula, and he starts screaming it. He says, Scream it, brothers! I'm killing Satan's demon! Lord, I'm killing Satan's demon! And everybody yeah. starts chanting. And this is scary in itself, Ryan, because this is mob mentality here that we're witnessing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have uh, you've probably been to, to church meetings or, you know... Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a revival. I've never been to it, but I've been in South Africa, which is a fairly religious country. You know, I've been to, you know, a church. Uh, I've attended church uh, as a kid where things go off the rails. You know, people start chanting and, and praying and, and fainting and jumping up and down. It's just, it's scary for me because <laughs> this is people losing it, at least in my and the mind. the funny thing, we kind of see two different examples of this because in the beginning of this issue we have the crowd busting down the door and taking the body out and everything like that like as again like this sort of like mob sort of stampede um and like i i love like just like the page where you see they're just like carrying away blade and like frank is like crawling on the ground trying not to be stepped on and like especially like if you've ever been like in a, in a building like when a fire breaks out or something or you hear like stories about like fires breaking out in like concerts or public spaces um the, how dangerous it is for people just being trampled on and just being i mean it's so easy to die that way you can just get smothered and suffocated to oh, death yeah. that way oh. just by the sheer weight of like people who just don't even realize they're stepping on you um so that was that's kind of like its own little terrifying moment that has nothing to do with the vampires yeah you feel that terror coming through the off the page here you're right yeah yeah so i thought that was a great way to open up the story and a great way to like kick off this like cliffhanger but yeah but like you said that there's some disturbing implications here ryan if you think about it basically the issue culminates with dracula literally calling down lightning from the heavens and killing Mm. the priest shattering the cross sort of cementing the fact that he is in fact not uh, afraid of you know the, the the Christian God and that he is at, well in his own words more powerful. But you know think about it, Ryan. This kind of subverts the idea of God smiting someone, you know, by by striking them with lightning, which sometimes happens. And people ascribe that to you know in the past, you know, ignorant people describe that to the fact that yes, God in fact smote that person <laughs> by <laughs> allowing them to get hit by lightning. Here, Dracula, you know, does it himself. 
showing that he has that power. <laughs> you know, no other being, in fact, has that power. He can literally do what God is supposedly, you know, um, capable of doing. And, um, you know, it does work. The priest dies or the minister, he does die. Josiah Dawn dies. And isn't that a great panel when he's clinging to Dracula's lapels <laughs> of, mm-hmm. his, of his clothes? And he's saying, you know, obviously trying to get in a word, uh, uh, the, the last word. And Dracula is slowly, as this priest is dying, slowly he's transforming into his bat-like shape. And that is an amazing panel where the guy is dying, Josiah Dawn's dying. And Dracula is now half formed, in, half transformed into this bat-like monster, and he's he's in fact getting in the parting shot. He says, "No, you are wrong, fool. It is Dracula who shall win. Dracula who shall succeed." Again, you know, referring to himself in the third person there. So uh, I th- found that an amazing series of panels. That that those last three panels. I did too, and I was just I was just thinking how how you were going in off like a. Um... How you're describing Dracula's whole his rant and like the very yeah, larger than life speechifying and like how he's like smacking down these people, you just gotta imagine like this is Dracula. He's probably more pissed than he's ever been in a hundred years because he was dead for a day or something like, or, or three days or something. Like this is him. Like I mean, he was at a point of like his le- most vulnerable, least power. And when these poor saps bring him back, he is just mad as hell. I mean, I'm just going to call down some lightning and wipe you people off the face of the earth. Yeah, so. exactly. It's, it's the wrath of Dracula here on a biblical yeah, scale. Yeah, right. Right. So a great And I like I, I do like in um you mentioned this also, the uh the Bram Stoker's Dracula Ford Coppola version, um, which I also I really, really like that movie too. That's yeah, same here. that's a favorite just for, for so many of the, the visual aesthetic purposes that mm, things mm. about that movie. Um but yeah, they really played into Dracula's ability to manipulate weather and the elements, like how like he could control like the ships and like the during especially during the, the final like chase back to his castle when he's kind of controlling the weather to slow down the yeah, hunters. The hunters. And and I also, I mean, that, that movie also really showed how he, like, you know, Dracula keeps his, his familiars, his human agents. Yeah. Um, that kind of, like, protect, like, protect him during the daytime. And it yeah. kind of goes back to this idea of, of the sleeper agents throughout this town. Yeah, yeah. Renfield and, and others. Right. You're right, you're right. And, and even those gypsies yeah. that assisted him the at the gypsies, end in the, yeah. in the novel. Yeah, they're all yep. under his control. Yeah, so this is definitely from that. Uh, a lot of that was directly mentioned in Bram Stoker's novel, not just in the movie. So it's it's true that, in fact, in the novel, you never quite know what Dracula's full abilities are. That's why he's so sinister, you know, because Stoker just leaves it up for the imagination through these diary entries. So this, though, Marf Woman, I mean, he's admitted that he read the novel Dracula shortly before, you know, he was going to write the seventh issue of, of Tomb of Dracula because he knew he had gotten the assignment and he had never read, read Dracula before, apparently. So the, the novel made a big impression on him. So you must think that he took all these things from the novel and just expanded upon it and, you know, mm-hmm. made made Dracula even more powerful because later on in the 80s, when the, the series has already been canceled, right, we'd see Dracula interacting more with superheroes and so forth. And he, he takes on the X-Men, right, um, uh, uh, Ryan, and he proves to be more than a match for the entire X-Men team. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so um, he manipulates, you know, the weather and that issue too and, and so forth. But, yeah, I like the, the fact that, you know, um, uh, Colin and Wolfman just kept upping the stakes, you know, right. just making him more of a threat. So, yeah, definitely uh, a great addition to, to the Dracula mythology, at least in the Marvel Universe. 
Yeah, definitely. But uh, now let's get to something we, we've mentioned but not discussed yet, Ryan. Before we give uh, talk about our favorite panels and so forth and, and favorite bit of dialogue, and uh, which cover made the biggest impression on you of the three comics we discussed? I mean, the first one obviously being done by Frank Bruner, who's known for his mm -hmm. work on Doctor Strange, and uh, I think inked by Tom Palmer as well. And then uh, the second one, uh, Gil Kane and Tom Palmer. Gil Kane would, in fact, show up doing many covers for the series. You know, um, he'd done some he'd done some of the previous covers as well. And then, I think yeah. Gil Kane did more Marvel covers in the 70s than anybody else. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think, like, I think that was kind of his, his thing. Like, I think yes. he was just like... Yeah. I think if you cut, like, I don't, like, I mean, maybe, like, whoever was, like, uh, I mean, if it was, like, Ramita or Ross Andrew, whoever, but no, I think Gil Kane was doing a lot of 70s Spider-Man covers, too. But, yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah. No, he was a, a preeminent cover artist of the of the Bronze Age. And, okay, now, Ryan, I don't know if you know this, it's been well documented, uh, Rob Kelly has taken me to task for this. I am not a fan <laughs> of Gil Kane's interiors. In fact, the way he draws, you know, he always draws these bug-eyed people and these, yeah. these, these, these weird, sinister-looking bad guys. Now, he's, he's an excellent artist, of course, but his art, it, it disturbs me a little. You know, also, <laughs> you know, he it kind of like, okay, when I see an Olympic athlete, you know, uh, a lady or a man, they, they, they're not attractive to me because their muscles have been stretched and elongated almost as if they've been placed on a rack, you know, tortured in a medieval torture chamber. You know, they've, it's been stretched to the maximum. <laughs> so I, I don't like Gil Kane's anatomy, but I love Gil Kane's covers. All the covers he yeah. did. He did a couple, couple of covers for the Man-Wolf series as well. You know, I think when it was still Marvel Presents... You know, Man Wolf, you know, J. Jonah Jameson's son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You know, and um, those covers were so scary, so incredibly horrific that he is a great cover artist, superheroes or horror. It doesn't matter. I love his cover art. I just don't like his interiors, unfortunately. And that's strange because he created one of my favorite characters, co-created Morbius, and in fact penciled the interiors on that first Spider-Man issue 101 of Morbius. So, you know, I, I should love this guy. I should love Kane, but I just don't. <laughs> But I agree with you. The cover is is his covers are superlative. So so, uh, what would you say would be your favorite cover though? Would you go for the Kane cover or the Brunner cover? Um, I go for my favorite cover of the three that we've looked at is the cover to number thirteen. Uh, it is a Kane cover. Okay. Um, it's the one where they the hunters you got Rachel, Blade, Taj, and Quincy, all sort of like holding Dracula down as he's trying to climb out of his coffin. Yeah. And they're about to stab ran the stake through his heart. Um, this isn't just my favorite cover of the three. This is probably in my top five Tomb of Dracula covers. Um, obviously that's just the main series that's not counting like annuals or the magazines that would have yeah. to look closer at some of those um, but of like the 70 issues of the main series this is probably top 5 all of, of all the covers hmm. um, I, I really like this one I agree, uh, there's, no, there's no contest even between 12 and 14 and 13, 13's definitely the standout I, I have to agree with you Ryan I mean I would go so far as to say number 12 is one of the very few, if not the only, Frank Bruner cover I, in fact, don't like. Mm -hmm. Because Frank Bruner is one of my favorite artists of, of all time, and, you know, especially the stuff he did on Doctor Strange, the covers he did for things like Man-Thing. Uh, but this cover is uninspired, and um, I don't know. It does tell the story of what's happening. It's just, you know, the, right. the, the, the Dracula snatching Edith, and it just doesn't work for me. 
it looks sort of unfinished almost, um, especially if you look at the transformative effect behind Dracula of transforming into a bat. Yeah, it because we're sort sense. of getting that effect from both above and below Dracula. It's yeah. sort of like he's he's transforming from like different angles or something like that. And I'm not sure if the colors really help that cover or not. Um, yeah, they don't. Yeah, it's 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 a serviceable cover, but it's not it's not really great. Um, and 14 is kind of yeah, generic. The monster is holding yeah. the prone, unconscious girl kind of above, and you got like knives and pitchforks and and the crowd and everything. It's it's fine, but I just think there's something really striking about um, about n- number thirteen. Yeah. Now there there is one thing that I do. Uh, one good thing I have to say about cover number fourteen. I also don't really like this cover. Like you say, it's very run of the mill. Uh, nothing new about it. I don't like Dracula's face at all. I don't know what Kane was going for with Dracula's face there, but it doesn't even look like a typical Gil Kane face. Mm-hmm. However, I wonder the... if it was redrawn. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I mean, I will have to look into that. I'm sure Back Issue Magazine, <laughs> they're they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, no, they're notorious for covering the, covering these minute details, which I which I love. You know, they're very pedantic, <laughs> the guys at Back mm-hmm. Issue, but I love that. But you know, look at the bottom right. I love it when there's someone on the cover looking back at the reader, you know, kind of breaking the fourth wall, saying, join us, get in here, let's kill this vampire. <laughs> now, do you know who did this really well, Ryan? Whenever a cover was done by Joe Kubert for, for one of yeah. the war comics, like Weird War Tales, for instance, you sometimes have some characters on Weird War Tales or Sergeant Rock or Army at War breaking through a wall or attacking Nazis and then you had these Nazi soldiers glancing back at the reader like fearfully you know like just turning their heads saying oh shit we're in trouble we're dead (laughs) now this guy doesn't do that he's saying like come come join us come into the cover but I love it that's the only thing that I can say about this cover that really works for me Uh, cover 14 other than that cover the cover to 13 is near perfect so I, I definitely concur with your choice now Ryan, before we get into ratings of, of the, the three comics, um, your favorite panel overall. This is from all three comics. We don't have time to go into every single comic's favorite panel. Which panel or panel sequence was your favorite among these three that we discussed? So I do want to give a special shout-out to my runner-up, which is uh, from issue 12, which is the panel with Blade sitting on the laying down <laughs> carving one of his wooden knives Dick um, Halloran in Saffron's apartment sitting on the bed <laughs> held up by chains getting ready for his uh, his night in with his woman oh. and she's going I just love that panel I love everything about that sequence that whole thing is just like I'm I'm hearing Barry White in the background and everything and it's just, um that's, that's such a good moment that's my that's my runner up um yet um but my favorite my favorite little sequence um, is the one that you pointed out from issue 13. It's when he goes to uh, when he rescues Cecile or Cecily Cecil, um, Cecile Parker. From, yeah, yeah, Cecile from the um, from her would be attacker. That whole page when him like stopping the the guy and like knocking him out and then kind of putting the whammy on her, punctuated perfectly by the three the triptych of panels on the bottom with them walking into the darkness and then like the shadows just kind of swallowing her up and then the scream yeah Um, yeah. it's just it's such a good moment yeah um it's one of the even like like, yeah like yeah like if i could get like a gene colon page that whole page would be great to have oh Um, original art oh that's that's a dream 
Well, we'll have to fork out some serious cash for that, Ryan, but <laughs> or kill some yeah, people yeah. in the process of acquiring that. Yeah. But okay, so. I was going to pick exactly the same panel as you, but but if I think about something that has real pathos, something that really grabbed me, that hurt me, I would have to go for the final page, specifically three panels that I'm going to highlight. Actually, it's four panels. The final page of issue 12, where we see Quincy having to kill his own daughter. He has yeah. to, to slay Edith. And at first, I was kind of like thinking, what the hell is he going to do? And then you see him when he says there is nothing, nothing but the prescribed methods, and he, he takes out the, the handle, he removes the handle of his cane, and in fact it does not reveal a cane sword, as you would come to expect from people like <laughs> Steed and Mrs. Peel. It reveals <laughs> a, a sharpened wooden stake cane, but you know what's going to happen. And then we have the panel where you almost see one of Edith's eyes opening, you know, she's kind of regaining consciousness after hurling herself off the balcony and then or off the walkway. And then you see this great panel, which is stark red and white, where you don't see Quincy stabbing her, but he kills her. And just, you know, the, the, the death is shown as the death of a vampire, but also the death of a, a person who is not yet a vampire because she still has control over her bloodlust. And she dies and then you have Quincy, no, just a wordless panel. Quincy just holding his hand, tear running down his eyes, uh, hold, holding his head in his hands, a tear running down his face, and then his mouth slightly open, showing that he's grieving, he's, he's you know, wrecked by grief. So I have to go for the, that sequence of four panels. Favorite panel being the one where, she, where she's seen screaming you know, at, at her death, which is all in red and white. It's just yeah. Instead of good. instead of using the black, yeah. uh, using the red instead of that wash. That's a really great. I I thought about that same sequence too. That would have been next on my list too. So that was her. I think we've been right in sync this entire episode. Yeah, <laughs> true, true, true. Because it's so obvious, right? And so I mean, how can anyone? So you're kind of wasting like my time. You could have done this whole <laughs> show without me. I'm just saying the same things you would have said. <laughs> yeah, but you say it so much better than I could. So <laughs> anyway, but you know, I I definitely agree with your pick too and I, I'm glad you gave a shout out to Saffron and Blade what a great moment what a great just insert that was totally unexpected and, and, and amazing so unfortunately I don't have any honorable mentions here there's so many that I could mention but but um, mm-hmm. I'm just gonna gonna probably mention the the, the uh, ranting and raving at the, the, the revival ministry because it, it felt like some real tempestuous moments happening there uh, and then Dracula at the boxing match, which is so incongruous, and the, the 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 horrifying death of Blade's mother while in labor at the hands of a vampire. Mm-hmm. All of those things. Just there's too many to mention, so I'm not even gonna gonna attempt to go for you know uh, an a sh- an honorable mention here. But yeah, I you know great great panels all, and uh, you picked the perfect moment, I think, Ryan. Mm-hmm. So um, that concludes our you know uh, favorite bits i'm not going to go for favorite bits of dialogue uh, ryan there's just so many i don't know if you have one yeah. that you picked up but it's almost impossible because <laughs> you know there's so much but i do want to ask you you know if you have to rate um you know these issues individually obviously you know your favorite will have the highest rating we're going to use the uh bloody wooden knife rating um <laughs> for this you know in, in honor of Blade and, and what he's accomplished in these three issues, which was quite significant. And um, I'm going to let you go first. How many bloody wooden knives out of five 
would you give to issue 12? Oh, God. I, I, would give, I would give issue 12 an enthusiastic four. Huh, huh. Um, oh, gosh, it's a... Because 12 and 13 both have some really, really high moments. I'm almost tempted to give them fives. But I'm not going to go all the way to fives. I'm going to give 12 and 13 both fours. Okay. Okay, so wait, wait a minute. Before we get to 13, we've okay. got a different writing system for 13, which is oh, okay. how many vacant stairs out of five, <laughs> you know, in honor of the, the, the townsfolk who, who've been totally mind-controlled by Dracula, the, the village of the damned. How many vacant stairs out of five? You say four out of five vacant stairs? Four. I think just because the interlude with the boxing match maybe takes <laughs> yeah, it down. That's but... weird. That is strange. Yeah, gosh, there's again, like, they, like there are so many like good, but yeah, I would give four vacant stairs to thirteen also. Yeah, and I'm, then, I'm, yeah. it's it's hard for me to give a perfect score, and especially like with a series like this when I know there's some really really great stuff like going forward, like looking ahead, uh, like as much like even if I said like you know this was a great ep- issue, like if I know there's something ahead, going ahead like five issues down the road that's so much better, it's hard for me to give it a perfect score right 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 i know what you mean and uh finally for issue 14 we've got the shattered crucifix rating (laughs) how many shattered crucifixes out of five would you give that one you know i was tempted when we when we began to give this one just a three but you kind of i think you brought me up even to a four with this (laughs) one too just because of like all the dialogue like the first time I read the dog, I was like, "Oh man, this is really overwrought and kind of like purple spit. prose." Like, mm. Yeah, I was like, "Marv, you can turn it down a little bit." But now you're like, it's like "No, this is pure Dracula. This is pure Bombastic. Marvel Dracula." Yeah, this it's is, yeah. It's it's like, it's Namor. Is... It's Thor. It's you know all of those guys. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's just he is he's just pissed off because he was dead and he got brought back to life by these idiots with their crosses and everything. I'm gonna yeah, that would also get a four. That would get four shattered crosses too. So I'm, awesome. I'm four across the board awesome okay so mine differs a little bit from you but not by much but i'm gonna be bold and i'm gonna say issue 12 gets a resounding five out of five um bloody wooden knives uh, for me ryan because that is the issue where everything was turned on on its head and i was like oh shit they did it they went there they killed Mm -hmm. edith this is this is heart raining this is i really felt it and uh, she had just the right amount of screen time in the previous issues leading up to issue 12. You just got, got used to her, you know, and, um, you know, and they went there. And the art, obviously, with Tom Palmer returning after a hiatus just did it for me. So it might be an emotional choice that I give it five out of five. But I would have to go for that as my favorite issue of the bunch. But, you know, that's not shortchanging the second issue which we discussed, which is 13. For 13, I would have to go for 4.5. Vacant stairs out of five. Because it's just Drac first Edith dies in the previous issue, then Dracula dies. It leaves mm-hmm. you on such in such a state of indecision and, and and you're so emotionally invested and now it's just hanging there. You know, so I'm uh, definitely uh, love that issue too. But it didn't have the pathos or the, the emotional, you know, um, uh, devastation that was present in the previous one. But but still there on the art everything everything gelled for me so 4.5 vacant stairs 
and also Blade's origin. You know that that was for me mm-hmm. very horrifying. Definitely something in the horror trope line that I was that I, f- I found very disturbing. If you think about the movie Blade's origin, which they showed, she was attacked on a train. It wasn't that horrifying because. Um, even though Deacon Frost in the movie did know that he he was intent upon creating a daywalker, he did know she was pregnant. It didn't really disturb me that much because she wasn't in the process of labor. You know what I mean, right. Ryan? So as as a horrific scene and as a fan of horror, someone who likes to be disturbed, you know, which is disturbing in itself, but <laughs> don't blame mm-hmm. me for that. This really disturbed me. So for that, I give Cullen and, and Wolfman a 4.5 out of 5. And then, you know, uh, number three... I would go for a 3.5 out of 5 Shattered Crosses for the third issue, I mean, for for issue 14. Because um, while overall the story worked and I like the the change of setting, you know, and the change of pace when it came to the revival setting and I love the art, I I think the reason I have to give it a little bit of a low score is because basically uh, the, the... uh, the companions, the hunters, they were just spectators. They weren't engaging. They were just yeah. witnessing this battle. That in itself makes no sense. You know, they could have engaged in the battle and and it would have led to possibly another triumph if they assisted Josiah Dawn. But they were just, you know, uh, enwrapped watching the spectacle of the elements and this Wagnerian conflict. They didn't do anything. It doesn't make any sense. And then also uh, the art uh, is um, great, but... The fact that Tom Palmer, Palmer, who's not usually his own colorist, had to do the coloring on this one, it it kind of muted the the normal brilliance of his inking and of Colin's pencil. So that's the only reason I have to go uh, for a bit of a lower lower score for three point five. Well, I didn't know we were doing half scores. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So <laughs> you I would have, sorry. <laughs> if I if I knew that I would have bumped both twelve and thirteen up to four point five. Oh, okay, well well we can so, make the change. Sorry, I should have so, mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, so so I guess we're, we're on the same page for thirteen because then we both gave thirteen four point five, um, and I would be a little bit I would be half a point lower than you for number twelve, and I guess half a point higher than you for uh, <laughs> for uh, fourteen. Um, but I'm definitely with you. And I did notice that, like, yeah, the, the companions are really kind of taken off the board and marginalized in that one to the point where we don't even know if, like, the entire group went to the tent. We only really see Blade and Frank. And I think Blade is the only one who gets any dialogue. And, and they kind of disappear, like, for the last four pages. Yeah, exactly. So, it's it's a little yeah, bit of a weird choice. But, you know, it, it worked overall for me. Just um, some inconsistencies that would later not appear any longer. It would be completely ironed out. In later issues, yeah. I mean, this is the last issue I can think of where there's something that, that's completely um, illogical. You know, in the right. earlier issues, it happened a lot, Ryan. Issues 1 to 11, I would say, or, or maybe 1 to 10. Well, 11 was pretty tight, you know, uh, the revenge issue against the biker gang and, and uh, that, that guy called Faust. But, you know, yeah, the first 10 issues, there were lots of inconsistencies, especially time dilution or, or a time... Uh, fluidity which uh, he plays with so you never know what the timeline is between Dracula appearing in one scene and the next you know you never understand that quite, uh, very well in the first 10 issues you know um, time passes and, and you don't see it happening whereas here it's more fluid you know you can f- uh, it one scene flows from the next and it feels natural and, and, and elegant so you know but in this I think this was the last misstep they had as a creative team was in 13 and it was a very small misstep so that's mm-hmm. the only reason for my lower rating there. 
Wow, Ryan, this I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed this discussion because I've been hankering to talk Tube of Dracula for a while, and I think I picked the perfect uh, partner, the perfect guest to do that with. So <laughs> thanks well, for that. Again, I, I love the series just as much as you do. So if you ever want to talk about more issues in the future, I would probably be up for that. Well, I mean, you're going to be my go-to Tomb of Dracula guy. It will probably be down the line, but I, I'm taking you at your word. You, you, you Basically, you agreed on online that you would appear again. So I'll hold you to that. <laughs> as long as scheduling Thanks, allows. No, of yeah, course, absolutely. of course, yeah. of course. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks a lot, man. Now, before I let you go, I do want to ask you, though, this is customary when I have a guest on the show. I've only had three guests in the past, but, you know, <laughs> I've I asked them all the same thing. Can you leave the readers with some recommendations, which doesn't necessarily have to be uh, new comic books. It could be old comic books that you've recently read or that you read in the past, um, but it has to be in the horror vein. Something that you, you think they might enjoy other than what we've discussed. Ooh, other than what we've discussed. Well, I mean... I mean, other than Tomb of Dracula. It could be anything sure, yeah, from yeah, the yeah. DC horror staple that you're so well-versed in. It could be other Marvel, you know, horror stuff that you've, uh, you know, that you love. Yeah. Anything from your past. Um, I, I mean, certainly the first thing that I would recommend would be uh, Swamp Thing, um, as yes. we talked about on episode of Minute. Um, I know that, like, the... The original Ween rights and stuff has been collected. They, I recently got the the Bronze Age um, Swamp Thing Omnibus, which is a big hardcover oh, collection. Beautiful. And I think they're starting to do soft cover, smaller collections coming out of that. If they haven't already, I think they're doing that soon. Um, they've done the hardcover omnibus collections for House of Secrets and House of Mystery. I haven't gotten those, and I have a feeling that now they're probably super expensive if they're if they're out of print. Um, but you can definitely get those for the DC side to get some of those great, great anthology short stories. Um, yeah, there's just there's amazing work in there. But yeah, any anything Swamp Thing related um, on the Marvel side, you know, you can get the entire the entire Werewolf by Night run. Uh, you can find that it's been collected in three. Um, full color like epic collections or the complete collection or something in three volumes they've been doing a lot of that with tomb of dracula um the marvel horror magazine collection is a trade paperback that i got i think last year um that's got a lot of like um satana and gabriel the devil hunter stories and stuff like that mm. um i'm looking I, I really want them to, to do collections of um the living mummy and brother oh, voodoo supernatural tales yeah, yeah, super, yeah supernatural thrillers. Oh yes, yes. I, I, I hopefully that's gonna happen down the line. I mean, they do have this Marvel horror omnibus, you know, mm -hmm. slated for publication later this year. I think probably in October when Halloween hits. I'm just not sure about all the issues contained in that. But I think uh, you know, every time an omnibus is over a thousand pages, Ryan, I sort of I'm I'm leery of of buying it because I had a bad experience way back when with Grant Morrison's X Men, New X Men omnibus you know it's so big it's so thick when you read it more than once mm -hmm. it's sort of uh, the pages even though they're if the pages aren't bound uh, you know uh, you know um, if they're glued it's gonna right. there's pages gonna be falling out uh, and you know Marvel's not the best at binding their omnibi but so I'm leery of, of getting that collection however the DC ones you recommended the omnibi the house of secrets the house of mystery and the swamp thing one they're excellently bound so those ones are better and they're not over a thousand pages so you're not going to be 
you know, right. dragging around this this hefty piece of this this piece of <laughs> luggage. <laughs> so, yeah. so great recommendations, all Ryan. I, I'm I'm sure I haven't recommended any of those things to the listeners yet, so I'm sure they would, you know, definitely love to pick those up. And yeah, then Ryan, I'm trying to think if there's oh, the, is there anything? There, well, I was trying to think like. I know there's some great stuff in my mind is just drawing a blank. I'm like thinking of like anything from Dark Horse or Dynamite or IDW and nothing is jumping out at my, but I'm sure there's something that I'm just not thinking of. No, but I mean, I mean, it's great. You've recommended lots already. And yeah. if, if, if there's any others, you can always uh, let me know on some feedback for the episode. And then, you know, I'll recommend that because I find that the listeners, they do, you know, uh, basically anybody who's a more famous podcaster than me, <laughs> they listen to my recommendations. They sometimes, you know, I sometimes get feedback saying, yeah, you could recommend this, but this was actually not that great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've all got our own likes and so forth. I think they might like your yeah. recommendations more. So, and Ryan, then uh, finally, I just want you to uh, tell the listeners, where can they find you on the web, Twitter, Facebook, all of that kind of thing and so forth. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. It's Ryan Daly or Ryan Daly zero one on Twitter. Um, I am part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Uh, there you can find the shows that I've done in the past, like Secret Origins Podcast, Power of Fishnets. Uh, give me those Star Wars. Um, I've got a couple of current shows that are either in ports of hiatus or i'm just sort of backed up and working on them one of them is cheers cast which uh, i'm going through episode by episode my favorite tv show of all time which is cheers <laughs> midnight the podcasting hour which will come back i've got a few episodes recorded and that'll come back probably closer to halloween now um batman nightcast which goes through the post-crisis on the infinite earth's era of batman i have a number of episodes of that already recorded and edited we're just waiting to drop those later on in the year um yeah and i uh, Apparently, I do a lot of guest work on other shows. So, a lot. you want to find me? Yeah, <laughs> Fire and Water Podcast Network. You can find me there. So, awesome, Ryan. Thanks again, man. So, um, I'll leave you to go tend to your wounds, the scars, <laughs> the, the 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 stabbings, the the stakings that we've suffered during this episode. I mean, it's it's uh, sort of imprinted, uh, at least not physically, but but mentally after witnessing all these panels for two hours talking about them <laughs> it's it's disturbing the bat, so the bat scratches on the face oh that that's never gonna go away poor rachel poor rachel <laughs> well herman thank you very much for having me on the show because this was a blast to talk about this material and it was great to talk to you again amazing ryan thanks again and uh i'll see more of you soon in the future i'm sure the listeners will be up for that so thanks again and i'll let you go and uh pleasant screams <laughs> 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 It's midnight, the podcasting hour. From fetid swamps to creepy castles, the podcasting hour is your home for horror on the Fire and Water Network. Join me, PJ Frightful, on this quarterly anthology podcast that gazes into the mysterious and terrifying shadows of DC Comics. The moon is full and the bell tolls for midnight, the podcasting hour. Welcome to Into the Weird, a podcast celebrating the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age. I'm your host, Billy D, and alongside me is my co-host, the demon's head himself, Herman Lowe. How are you, buddy? <laughs> Billy, I'm f I'm feeling really good. You know, the closer we get to Halloween, 
the more my mood improves. I don't know if you're the same. <laughs> mm. Oh, absolutely. Especially when you slap such a compliment on me as, uh, you know, the, the demon's head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. You know, that's the kind of stuff yeah. I like. So, um, you know, Halloween's getting closer. Even though Halloween's typically not a South African holiday or not even a British holiday, ever since I was a kid, I've been in love with Halloween. And, um, you know, we did have some form of celebration back home, you know, in, in, in SA growing up. You know, we had some, um, you know, Halloween movie nights. Uh, the week before Halloween, they screened a lot of stuff uh, that you wouldn't show your kids, but that we all watched in any way. <laughs> My parents were just like, okay, guys, the week before Halloween, watch whatever you want. What, whatever's on TV is fine. <laughs> they, they trusted the censors for some reason. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we kind of did get Halloween. And, of course, we a lot of our programs were from the States, you know, so... You know, mm-hmm. we saw uh, TV shows, TV series, horror movies from the States focusing on Halloween. Stuff like the Monster Squad, you know, I was big into them back in the day. And, you know, um, I, I always saw myself as one of those kids, you know, a monster kid like you were. Yeah, I mean, to me, Halloween has always been one of my favorite holidays, too. And the more I think about it, I come to the realization it's because it's a holiday where even if you're kind of like, you know, a, a, a geek or a weirdo, it, you, you blend right in. So it's like everybody's like everybody's kind of weird on Halloween. And then even the people that aren't, they kind of just, you know, give you a pass if you're a weirdo. Like, yeah, it's Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. man. That's 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 a perfect way to describe mm-hmm. it. Because, um, you know, back home in, in South Africa, we didn't really have a lot of, you know, because I'm from a very small town in South Africa, Ranfantine. Uh, we didn't really have a lot of um, kids, you know, um, there. I mean. There were, but everybody was uh, basically friends with everyone else, you know, so we, we didn't really, I don't know why, but, you know, when I saw, you know, uh, TV series or movies about, from the States where they have the, 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 the outcasts, you know, the kids who were ostracized by their peers, we didn't really have that, you know, because we all grew up together, kindergarten, and, and you know, um, we still all know each other. Um, we went through elementary school, high school, you know. So um, we were all just very inclusive. I don't know why. You know, maybe it's just that small town that worked like that. <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, so I was surprised when I saw, you know, like you have kids being outcast and stuff. But we were pretty weird back then, too. I mean, my friends were into some seriously weird stuff. But I just, we just went with it. We just, you know, accepted that and, and, and moved on. So I guess that's the reason why now, you know, we love the weird. You know, because yep. it's it makes you special. It makes you stand out. And that's something I've always liked. Hell, that's why I've, I moved to Asia. <laughs> you know, I, I was getting bored of, of, of normality back home. And I wanted to see some crazy stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you just got to walk into the markets here, Billy, to see some really freaky shit. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. You and I were just talking the other night about the how the night comes and... Uh... <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> interesting stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, a normal street here in Taipei suddenly turns into this black market <laughs> at night. He- hedonism. <laughs> oh yeah, a lot of that. A lot of hedonism. No Christian morals here, man. <laughs> but no, no, it's it's awesome, Billy. So yeah, Halloween's around the corner. Um, this episode will be released just before Halloween. We're recording it. Um, I think it's the twenty fifth today. Um, at least over here in Taiwan, it might be the 24th, um, the evening of the 24th there, uh, where you're at. Mm-hmm. But um, this will definitely be released at least, um, you know, on the 29th or, or so, or the 28th for the for you people in the States. 
So I'm um, looking forward to it, Billy. And today to uh, get the listeners up to speed, you know, uh, you and I have uh, prepared a very special show because we're focusing on um, things we both really like. You know, I'm a huge Morbius fan. We're going to work him into today's discussion. And you're a big fan of the second story that we're going to be discussing. Me too, obviously, but I think it's your favorite horror tale of all time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think you and I spoke, uh, it might even be a few months ago at this point, about you know some horror stories. And when I was thinking about it and pressed to give an answer on what my all-time favorite horror story, just you know one singular story was, this one popped into my head and I went back and read it again and again and again. Mm. And I was like, mm. yep, this is it. This, this is number one. And it's uh, it's not even close. You know, for a series, I would obviously have to say Tomb of Dracula because, you know, yeah. uh, beginning to end, it's it's that one can't be beat. But just one singular story, the one we're going to talk about today, one of the two we're going to talk about today is definitely it for me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, when we first started the show, Grant and I, we decided to focus on Doctor Strange and Man-Thing and Morbius, you know, as um, sort of our main characters. But then uh, it sort of went a little bit wider than that. You know, we, we decided to include, uh, you know, people like Damon Hellstrom, Ghost Rider, um, and, you know, all of those guys. Every Everything supernatural, everything weird about Marvel eventually, you know, will fall under our, you know, under uh, the things that we plan to discuss, right, Billy, basically. So, right. um, you know, I'm very happy about that because there, there's just so much material to choose from. Looking at it that way, we might never finish Into the Weird. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the goal, you know, to continue with it, to make it something perpetual. You know, I would love that. But, um, you know, um, we're heading back to something we've talked about before. Grant and I did an episode on Vampire Tales number one, way back when, that's episode mm-hmm. six. And, you know, I've always been wanting to talk Vampire Tales with you as well, because not only is it a favorite black and white magazine series of Grant's, but it's also one of your favorites. In fact, you're the one, uh, well, you own the three trades of the the Vampire Tales, the the mini trades that they released about, you know, 10 or so years ago, uh, collecting the the series in its entirety. So um, you and I have talked about that at length on previous shows. We've even recommended it, I think, to the listeners, the Vampire Tales uh, traits, the three of them. Yeah, I always wanted to buy these uh, these mags, but they are just so expensive, um, especially in, you know, a decent condition. But when they came out with these trades, I think maybe they were $20 cover price. So, you know, if you were had a subscription service or something like that, you could get them even cheaper than that. And I think I was able to get them for half price. And it, to me, it was very well-spent money because the material in them, like you said, the, the trade itself is a little bit smaller than the normal size trade, like maybe mm. half the size. But other than that, there's really no downside to them. They're they're very well-made trades, and the material in them is just fantastic. I'm glad I bought them. Yeah, the art has been reprinted beautifully. So we'd still recommend that to you listeners if you, if you haven't uh, picked them up look for them on ebay you know ebay always has them um every now and then um and sometimes you can buy all three of them for a bargain price you know from some from some seller so um you know that's specifically what we're going to be talking about today right billy we're going to skip vampire tales two and three we might go back to them in the future you know or or highlight some uh stories from them uh, in future episodes but we're gonna go straight to vampire tales number four and not only 
does this contain two great tales, one featuring Morbius and one being your favorite horror story, it also has two of our favorite horror artists of all time. I mean, the artist on the Morbius tale is one of your personal favorites as well, Billy, and that is Tom Sutton. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, and I mean, through these trades, there's you know an ongoing Morbius story um, through all three volumes in Vampire Tales, the whole yeah. series, and there are different artists, but to me, he's the best. And I mean, you get other good artists too, don't get me wrong, they're all solid, but mm. to, Tom mm. Sutton is the best. Exactly. No, no, I agree. He's my favorite Morbius artist. Um, and, uh, you know, I like it when they draw Morbius as a monster. You know, when they draw him in, mm -hmm. you know, um, the Marvel superhero universe, you know, the color comics normally, um, like even Adventures into Fear, or when he, you know, shows up in, in Marvel Team-Up or something, they draw him as a, a superhero, sort of. You know, a supernatural yeah. hero, which, which I don't always like. But in these Vampire Tales magazines... They drew him, especially Tom Sutton, they drew him as a monstrous-looking, uh, sort of abhorrent creature with this face that just would, you know, a mother couldn't even love. <laughs> Not even a mother who's a, a vampiric crone-like witch <laughs> could love this face. And yet, Morbius seems to have an endless array of beauties hanging on his arm, <laughs> you know? Right, I'm telling you. Yeah, not even him snacking on someone's uh, jugular vein could turn them off. So briefly, they would be, you know, you know, um, horrified or nauseated. But then they would eventually just come mm -hmm. back to him and say, Morbius, your natural charm just, you know, arrests me <laughs> or something. So, you know, yeah, no um, matter how yeah. scary he looks, he's still a ladies man. <laughs> that's right, man. That's right. It's that European uh, sensibility, that uh -huh. uh, gentlemanly quality that he has, <laughs> since he's this yep. old world style gentleman. <laughs> but um, he doesn't act like it. <laughs> mm, so nope. Tom Sutton draws Morbius, and uh, we both love Sutton. His Charlton stuff, his uh, um, stuff for Warren, everything that he's done. And then, of course, uh, we get to the second tale, and that uh, the artist on that is a Spanish master, Esteban Morato. And uh, Billy, you love him, uh, if I'm not mistaken. You are, you absolutely adore his art. Yeah, this story. I mean, you and I have talked about him off and on quite a few times as well. That's and right. I don't have a ton of his material, but what I do have, and then especially this story, is just gorgeous. I mean, I have some uh, Warren mags that I just bought not too long ago that I've been talking about on my blog for almost like six weeks in a row now. Yeah. and. He has some stories in there, some of them where he actually wrote the story as well, which I didn't even realize that uh, he had written stuff as well. But, oh, it's just <clears throat> he just has such a unique style. He's one of those people uh, like Sutton that you can look at his style or Plug or those those people that just they didn't you know, they were never a house style. They were never generic. You can recognize their work when they pencil ink their own work. You can recognize their style immediately. And I'm like, yep, that's him. And oh, this this story. Oh. Yeah, just perfect. See what when whenever I think Esteban Morato, I think um, how distinctly he draws the ladies. You know, the the women mm -hmm. in his books are they're goddesses. You know, they're mm -hmm. he, he always draws a very a beautiful and striking uh, um, lady, or you know, whether she be a victim or whether she's an evil vampiress, <laughs> you know, or a queen <laughs> of the damned. 
he's he's really good at, at drawing female figures. But you know, um, obviously people criticize that. You know, if you look at an artist like Richard Corbin or Bernie Wrightson, you know, they draw beautiful ladies, but they also draw the other side of humanity, the normal side. You know, not everybody is a striking looker, right? So, um, mm -hmm. but it seems like Murato, <laughs> I, I mean, except for when he drew old ladies, <laughs> he normally has to put, you know, a beautiful woman in his um, in his pencils just because that sells right Billy and that's kind of the mentality yeah. that the guys had when they worked for the magazines of Jim Warren you know eerie creepy and mm -hmm. Vampirella which in fact I think Murato did more than a hundred stories for the Warren magazines alone and yeah, I wouldn't uh, be surprised yeah 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 that's so my point is you're gonna be seeing more of his art popping up because you've recently started collecting those old Warren mags mm-hmm yeah, and and he's always in in one or two of them, especially in Vampirella. You'll find a lot of him in Vampirella, the magazine. So once you start picking that up, but also of course eerie and creepy. I think more creepy than eerie, really. Uh, although he yeah, did do a few right. stories there. Yeah, I think uh, stuff like uh, Dax, maybe Dax the Warrior, uh, yes. showed up in yep. Eerie. You know, that's one of the the ones he's more. Yeah, you know, he's he's famous for, and of course then he he did like lengthy storylines in Vampirella. So, you know, uh, you, uh, listeners, if you're um, of a mind to look at some great black and white horror art, do that. Hunt down Murato. Get the back issues. Or you can, if, you, if <laughs> you've got a lot of disposable income, basically, if you're, if you're rich and swimming in it, try to get the Dark Horse collections of, of Eerie and Creepy, the hardcovers. Uh, but they're very yeah. pricey. And I think they're also out of print. You'll, you'll pay... Uh, an enormous amount for them on eBay. So I wouldn't recommend that, but if, if you do want to spend that kind of cash, it, they're beautiful. So, yep. Billy, um, we're going to get right into this. Um, I'm going to give the first synopsis because the very first tale in Vampire Tales number 4 is the Morbius story we've hinted at. Um, and it's called Lighthouse of the Possessed, <laughs> which is a, an ominous name to say the least but that's the kind of stuff we we like now before i get into the tale here we we have another famous um horror setting which is a seaside town with a lighthouse uh now believe if you think back to to movies like the ring or even uh, famous horror comics from the past like junji ito's uzumaki a lighthouse is a great setting for horror um, there's even yeah. a couple of movies. Okay, obviously The Fog. You know, you've got Adrian mm -hmm. Barbeau's character actually Ooh. being a DJ. Oh, Adrian Barbeau. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Even even as an older lady, she's still very striking. I mean, recently I watched Creepshow episode one and episode two and episode three. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> Creepshow episode one um, has her returning for uh, a short uh, Stephen King pen tale. So she's she's older, of course, much older, but she's still a very arresting, a very striking lady. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, you have her in a lighthouse in the fog. John Carpenter's The Fog. Oh, it just works for me. A lighthouse is a, is a creepy setting for me. What, what do you think about that as, as a horror setting? Yeah, for sure. I think there's actually a story in the Dracula, the magazines, Dracula Lives magazines. Mm. Yeah. A really creepy story with him, and there's a lighthouse setting there too. I think there's like a, I don't even want to get into it because we might talk about it eventually, or you know, this show or Long Box, and it's there, there's like a child involved. Like, oh man, it oh, is yeah, like that... one of the creepiest stories ever. Oh. I remember that one. I, I recently <laughs> looked at it. I just can't remember the name of the story, but yeah, I recently oh. looked at that. Yeah, uh, the the nice thing is about the new 
Tomb of Dracula collections too, is they reprint the color comics, but they also reprint some of the Dracula Lives. And and that's different mm. from the trades uh, from 10 or so years back, Billy. The trades only reprinted the, the Tomb of Dracula series proper, you know, the color comics. Yeah. So um, I like that. You know, I'm reading through those trades for Halloween as well. So, you know, yeah, lighthouses. Cool. Wow. What a great setting for horror. So, Billy, yeah. let's get into this. Um, I'm going to start by giving the listeners a bit, a few factoids and uh, more details on the issue. Okay, Vampire Tales number four. Editor, Roy Thomas. Associate Editor, Marf Wolfman. And then we've got the first story, Lighthouse of the Possessed, written by Don McGregor, with art by Tom Sutton. And this was published in April of 1974. So Don McGregor, Billy, another... Uh, name associated with early Marvel magazine horror. He also wrote some Black Panther stuff and, and ventured into the superhero realm every now and then. But I will always look at him as a magazine writer for Marvel. Um, he's just, he, that's the way he, he features prom- prominently in my mind, at least. Um, I don't know yeah. if you have a history with Don McGregor. Well, he, uh, I, think, I think he has a couple of stories. He was another Warren guy, too, wasn't he? Before Marvel, even, I mm, think. That's right. That's where he started. He, yeah. uh, if I'm not mistaken, he, uh, his first story was actually in Eerie, uh, maybe. You know, Eerie or yeah. Creepy. But this was way back mm-hmm. when, in 1971 at least, or 72. Um, and, in fact, I think he pair, was paired up with Tom, Tom Sutton back then, too, if I'm not mistaken. Probably. I kind of remember something yeah. like that. And then, of course, he did a lot of stuff for uh, Vampirella as well. And um, mm-hmm. uh, then he uh, also did some, you know, the Rook. But that was much later on in the 70s. The Rook, the famous character from from Yuri. Yeah. Um, and uh, then, of course, I think, but fairly early on, even though he was writing a lot of horror stories for, for Warren magazines, he, he started as a proofreader um, in Marvel, you know, uh, in the early 1970s. And then eventually he graduated to writer and you know i think um a lot of the early horror comics of the time journey into mystery chamber of chills he he wrote mm-hmm. stories for them so he's pre- for for me he's just predominantly a writer of suspense um mm-hmm. you know or or weird comics of the time so it, it's apt that he writes morbius here and he does a good job all right yeah. so the synopsis is as follows for lighthouse of the possessed Morbius and his female companion, Amanda Saint, are lodged in the town of Malevolence in Maine, searching for Amanda's missing parents. A strange lighthouse looms over the bay of the town, casting a sinister spell over its inhabitants, and it is soon revealed that it serves as the headquarters of the cult known as Demon Fire. Upon discovering Morbius's presence, the head priestess, who turns out to be Amanda's long-lost mother, summons the demon known as Blood Tide to deal with the matter. This mandate leads Blood Tide to enact a chain reaction of possessions that causes most of the inhabitants of Malevolence to swarm into a murderous mob and seek out Morbius and Amanda. Making their escape into a dark alley, Morbius and Amanda come face to face with Blood Tide who is uncharacteristically wielding an axe. In a freak twist of fate, Blood Tide dies on the blade of his own weapon, and as Morbius investigates their attacker's corpse, it is revealed to be none other than Amanda's mother, 
who had been impersonating Bloodtide. Morbius spirits Amanda away, intent upon solving the mystery of the cult of demon fire, even if it means his death. Okay, so that's it for the events happening in the comic listeners. Now, Billy, I left out some uh, pertinent uh, parts. Um, there's a subplot uh, about a politician, you know, called Duke Mannery, <laughs> and Brock Kilbride, his <laughs> assistant, and um, also a lady, Anne Randolph, I think her name is. But um, that only becomes important in the next issue of Vampire Tales, Vampire Tales number five. So I don't know if we should spoil yeah. too much because we might talk about that in the future. But listeners, that's the reason I kind of left out that uh, subplot because it only comes to fruition in the next issue. But it is kind of important. Um, but Billy, I don't know. Should we spoil that later on? No, we, we could we could hold back on okay. that one. I mean, okay. I got to be honest with you. Most of the time, I'm not really big into... Uh, political stuff in a comic book story now there have been some good ones like i mean hey who doesn't love captain america secret empire i mean oh, yeah. okay that's great <laughs> but just, it's just like sometimes i don't know sometimes it's a bit of a turnoff for me it really wasn't here because like you said it was a subplot so it wasn't really like in the forefront yeah so it didn't bother me in this story at all but sometimes i'm just like eh, whatever because you know it's just politicians just make me sick <laughs> yeah i know what you mean well the the only guy that i trust to write a good politician is steve gerber <laughs> oh yeah yeah no. oh yeah i'm telling you <laughs> because he satirizes them you know he parodies mm -hmm. the heck out of them i love that but here it's not done like that at all you're right this is more straightforward kind of like a, a stephen king style politician if you think about uh some of his works like the dead zone you know um this is kind of like uh, uh, Greg Stilson, the guy from the de Dead Zone. You know, it's someone who's who's abusing yeah. his power, or or you could say also the man in office at the moment <laughs> in, the, in the White House. Who knows? Oh. But that's you know that's just a uh, comparison. So you know, but uh, that's why I don't really like those real world representations of politicians. I like someone who's yeah. who's way over the top. You know, and and someone who's like Steve Gerber's good at writing. Uh, those kind of characters. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. So this is basically... But there is a funny scene later on, Billy, that you already mentioned to me where... <laughs> oh. <laughs> involving Morbius <laughs> and Amanda in the hotel room. So we'll we'll let you know about that when we get there, listeners. But, Billy, first let's talk about the cover of this Vampire Tales issue proper. I mean, um, the covers of Vampire Tales, not, it, they don't always have something to do with the stories we, we will be discussing. I mean, after all, there are five stories in this vampire tales um issue we're only going to be talking about two of them and just quickly glossing over the rest but this cover is quite striking like most of the vampire tales covers i want to ask you like what did you think about it uh, i like it a lot i mean boris vallejo is a master you know these <laughs> painted covers he's one of the people that i immediately think of when you talk about black and white magazines from the 70s it's just he's to me he was the guy Exactly. Um, yeah, there, there were a lot of other good ones too. Earl Norm was good. You know, there, there were a lot of good ones, but he, to me, he was the top dog. And the cover is really nice. And I mean, it does say, you know, allude to the story that the other one we're going to talk about. Um, yeah. And it doesn't. The, what what the cover shows and what Moroto uh, does in the story aren't very. It's not very similar to that, but it's still a very nice, striking cover. Like, it's got a woman in a bright red dress. 
but everything else is you know dark and muted and everything mm. like that so it's it's a very good cover he did a great job on this cover i agree i agree they've got a bit of um uh i think uh, a, a poetry in there too when they say she walks in beauty her touch is death <laughs> now, now you had a lot of these um i don't know who was was uh you know uh, responsible for that cover copy but you had a lot of guys like you know roy thomas and uh you know jerry conway and people like that they come from sort of like a teaching background well at least roy thomas does and you know yeah. um sometimes they would try to work in literary references now if you think about she walks in beauty that's a poem by lord byron right by by byron mm -hmm. uh, the the po the romantic poet so you know um uh, roy thomas was one of the guys who tried to work in these literary references but here they kind of immediately just uh subvert that reference and say she walks in beauty not like the night they just go straight on into the horror her touch is death <laughs> night of the snow vampire and then um of course morbius the, the name of morbius must be featured on the cover well he's featured in the corner box so people know what they're gonna get yeah Extra, yep. Morbius prowls again. Photos, fantasy, and fear features of the undead. Nightmare legends <laughs> of the living dead. Vampire tales. And I just love the vampire tales, you know, title logo. It's it's amazing. I What do you think of that, Billy? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's awesome. And then, like I said about the woman's dress being red, but then there's also, you see some blood dripping out of someone's neck laying on the ground. The oh. person that she just... Uh, bit into yeah. some blood in the snow blood on their neck and the, the the guy is like clutching at his chest or neck area it's yeah it's an awesome cover it's 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 awesome like this is a horror lover's uh, dream here <laughs> i agree with you and you know the thing is the it looks like okay she's pursuing the the guy in the foreground who's running away from her but it looks like she's un this vampiress is unwilling to let go of her victim and she's just dragging him <laughs> in her wake <laughs> you see that effect it's it's just brilliant, and then she's got that kind of um, hand gesture that I uh, gesture that I typically associate with Bella Lugosi or even Christopher Lee. You know, Christopher Lee sometimes does that, where he's yeah. sort of pointing towards you, but not with with uh, his index finger. It's sort of like his whole hand is sort of um, pointing towards you, saying like, "You're my next victim," or either that or says, "Come here, I'm hypnotizing you." <laughs> <laughs> I just love that hand gesture. In fact, I've got some of my, um, you know, uh, action figures that I display on my cell, uh, shelf. I've got them doing that. I've got a, a Morbius here doing the exact same. Listeners, I'll post a pic on sinkingtotheweird.com. I, I just love it when they, and even my Swamp Thing's got that, and my Ghost Rider. I'll, I'll post some pics for you, listeners. I love that, that hand gesture. You see them in the classic Universal yeah. films, but also Christopher Lee sometimes does it. Um, and of course, people draw that on covers all the time, Billy. I think we should post a few yeah. covers with that that um, ma yeah. malignant hand, uh, you know, gesture. So great cover. We we both agree on mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I almost feel like she possibly like in the next scene, she's gonna. Gr she has a hold of that guy on the ground, and yeah. she like a javelin thrower has one arm out and she's going to hurl that guy at the other one or trying to run away and <laughs> knock him down and then pounce on him. <laughs> wow. That's okay. <laughs> I didn't see that, but now I do. Now I can't unsee that, but I don't want to because that's such a good observation. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, I love it. Love mm -hmm. it. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, I don't know. It's a phenomenal cover. 
So well done, Boris Vallejo. You know, I associate him mm. more with fantasy, you know, and, and Frazetta and Earl Norum are the horror guys. But whenever Vallejo did horror, he did it masterfully. So, yeah, great cover. Yeah, but Billy... his tales of the zombie oh, oh those covers man, those covers are just oh, brilliant oh my gosh they're, they're yeah, things they of are beauty incredible. things to be coveted but you mm-hmm. know um yeah I, I shouldn't say that he didn't do a lot of horror he did he just did more fantasy than horror, horror later in his career but mm-hmm. you know actually yeah. all of these guys started as horror artists so mm-hmm. you know when it, basically everything he worked on Vallejo you know he did a yeah. good job of, of it and uh, same with Earl Norum same with Frank Vizetta so, wow, these Vampire Tales, uh, you know, magazines and, of course, uh, Marvel themselves must have, they, I don't know if they knew how lucky they were, Billy, <laughs> to get these guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, later on in the 80s and so forth, uh, Marvel probably wouldn't have been able to afford these guys because they became so famous, you know, Vallejo mm-hmm. and, and stuff by Frazetta that they wouldn't have, Earl Norum probably still uh, was available then in the 80s, but... Um, yeah. Boris Vallejo, he's he became so he he kind of blew up and became so famous that they wouldn't have been able to afford him, I think, to do a no, cover for yeah, a comic. You're right on the money saying that you know back then. I mean, and we even talked about this when we were saying about how you know Barry Windsor Smith when he first started doing Conan was a cheap artist because he was yeah. younger and wasn't a big name yet. But you know how it was years later once these people became a big name, then it was like, hey, look, you know. I'm a bigger name and I'm a very good artist. I, I want to get paid. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. That's that's basically how it works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I it's a shame that, you know, some art will uh, never see because guys were priced out. But, you know, they got to make a living and they become famous and, and, you know, all power to them. I They've earned it, right? Really, but Absolutely. But sometimes the best work is produced by guys slaving away for a living. You know, I'm thinking about Kirby here. But also others. Yeah, true. And um, you know, it's a shame. It is a shame. But you know, we got all that great art, so I'm I'm kind of happy about it. But on the other hand, I kind of feel bad too because those guys. Basically, Kirby should have been a multimillionaire early on already sure. in his career. That you know, that's just how hard he worked, and and he earned that. But would he have kept penciling at that prodigious pace? Probably not. You know, so yeah, we 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 got you know all that great art and also other guys i'm not just talking kirby here listeners i'm I'm saying all artists like barry windsor smith though he went into you know um uh, illustration more you know um uh, and and left comics uh for a while and then he returned briefly every now and then but you know he he became uh famous early on right after his tenure on marvel's conan and you know he left for, right. for bigger and better things at least in his mind and it worked for him you know he, he made yeah. a living doing what he wanted, you know, uh, not just comics. So, but it's a shame, Billy. I would have loved to see way more yeah. Barry Windsor Smith. And there's not a lot of Barry Windsor Smith out there, if you think about it. Not not compared no. to the other guys. No. Yeah. I mean, he was one of those guys that he was smart enough that he knew once his name got big enough that, uh, you know, he could start to do his own things. And it, sometimes it was through smaller publishers, but still, he was doing things where he was the writer and the artist. And, yeah. you know, he he had more of a say. And I don't blame any of those guys for wanting to do that. Even Kirby in the latter days of his career, you know, yeah. uh, he went to, uh, you know, when he was doing deals with Marvel and even with DC too, where he was mm. like writing and editing, yeah, you know, yeah, and, right. and penciling. It's like when you get to be a bigger deal, you should have some clout like that. You know, yeah. and like you said, they still weren't getting paid 
what they should have been getting paid, but at least they had more control over certain things, which is, is always good. And I don't yeah. blame them for wanting to do their own thing. That's right. That's right. So, well, now that we've talked about the cover artists, um, you know, let's get into the interiors, Billy. Um, we've got this great opening page with uh, Morbius. Um, normally, this is how every issue of a Morbius Vampire Tales uh, comic starts with him attacking a victim. <laughs> now, normally it's a lady, <laughs> but this time around it's a guy, presumably a fisherman, because after all, this town of Malevolence, Maine, it is a fishing village. You know, you'd see like uh, mm. lots of fishermen walking around. Some even sport <laughs> hooks and harpoons and fishing tackles. <laughs> and they're wearing these Macintosh, uh, you know, coats that you associate with, with, with people on, on windswept towns, you know, mm. uh, adjacent to the ocean. And uh, Morbius is snacking on this guy now. He takes him out uh, in a very gruesome way. He, he lay, basically, this guy's walking, you know, uh, just enjoying a stroll along the coast. And then Morbius sort of lands on his back, right, Billy? <laughs> Presumably breaking this guy's back because he not only kicks him in the, in the small of the back, he also grabs his hair at the same time and pulls his head backwards. That must have snapped his neck. You've even got the guy's tongue with with spittle flying out of his mouth. Jeez. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Morbius is his face looking down on the guy. Oh, even in the panel, like I shouldn't say a panel. It's like a splash page. Yeah. Just above, you see this guy walking down the street. Looks like he's smoking. Well, probably a cigarette, but we don't know. But you see this clawed hand reaching for him. And then, like you said, Morbius (laughs) grabs him by the hair and kicks him in the back and you know, with supernatural strength, he's definitely going to break that guy's neck. And that's right. Next, you know, chomp. <laughs> yeah. And to make matters worse, the guy hits a stack of crates that shatter. And, uh, you know, so it's not just, it's basically a, a three pronged blow, you know, because you've got uh, the kick in the back with Morbius's full weight on it. Then you've got the hair being pulled back, you know, breaking the guy's neck. And then you've got the, got the guy's chest smashing into these crates. And then, you know, to make matters worse for this guy, if he's not dead already, Morbius then, uh, you know, targets his neck and starts uh, sucking him dry. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. But, you know, this this is Morbius in full possession of, you know, well, uh, he's being possessed by his bloodlust. So you can't always blame him yeah. for, so for what he does during this frenzy. Um, you know, but yeah. um, Morbius, you know, I, I mentioned this when I spoke about Morbius the first time on Into the Weird Billy. If if you were really a good person and you were someone like Morbius, you would just take your own life. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, he does feel remorse for every victim he kills, but then he just keeps on going. <laughs> he just Yeah, it doesn't stop him. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it doesn't. He just keeps... But, but, you know, he does uh, arguably save the world a couple of times, especially from cults or covens. So that, yeah. that's his main foe in the pages of Vampire Tales. And then he strolls back to this, um, what would you call it, a boarding house? Um, yeah, I guess like that. Yeah, boarding house probably, yeah. Yeah, and then on the way he spots this, um, you know, the, the, the poster of this politician, this local mayor, um, <laughs> Duke Mannery. And this is the worst slogan I've ever seen on a, on a poster of, you know... Um, as, uh, of a politician, no chicanery with mannery. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy looks like a complete idiot, like yes. all politicians. And Morbius oh, yeah. is looking at the picture like he would just love to bite his head completely off. <laughs> exactly, just a potential victim. Uh, let's let's file his his image away for for you know, in memory for for tomorrow night's snack. <laughs> 
and he walks <laughs> past this this movie theater called the Majestic Theater, and then there's this, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, salesperson or ticket. What, ticket ticket booth containing yeah. this teenager, presumably with this, <laughs> you know, fear with this face just filled with fear, seeing Morbius stride by, and you do aghast. see, yeah, aghast at Morbius's <laughs> visage because you do see blood, you know streaming out of Morbius's mouth still from the victim he just snacked on. Damn, yeah. that must be frightening for that poor little kid working that booth. <laughs> yeah, and the way Sutton draws Morbius too, he's like Oh, brilliant. He looks like a zombie almost, very gaunt, very very scary like you said earlier. He doesn't draw him like a superhero. He yeah. draws him like a monster. Exactly. He used to draw Andrew Bennett like that as well. Though you didn't yeah. always get the detail because, you know, of the coloring process and the inking done on House of Mystery that uh, that Tom Sutton drew, you know, when he drew the Eye Vampire tales for, um, uh, or Eye Vampire featuring, you know, uh, Andrew Bennett for House of Mystery, he drew him also with these crags in his face, you know, this, this kind of like lined face full of, the, full of pockmarks and stuff. And then that yeah. enhances the horrific quality of, of what he's aiming for. And then you've got this ominous scene of a guy with a hook, you know, lurking <laughs> in the shadows as Morbius approaches this uh, boarding house. Now, that, Billy, is another thing that's, that's, that horror movies are well known for. Think about it. A guy killing people with a hook. I'm thinking, mm -hmm. you, you know, I know what you did last summer, but I'm also going, you know, way back to, to other horror classics. And then the lighthouse in the background. That's just a very atmospheric um, set of panels that Sutton did there. And even yeah. the, the lady who runs this lighthouse, this Miss Agnes, she's reminiscent of the old witch from, you know, uh, who was one of the EC horror hosts <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> from, mm -hmm. from, from the 50s. Um, she, I mean, her one eye is huge and she's glaring at Morbius with this one eye and she's, she's hunchbacked and she's covered in this cloak, uh, this cowl. And then her other eye is, is permanently shut. <laughs> I mean, that's literally the old witch, you know, and her, her teeth are all, you know, broken and mangled and, oh, it's just brilliant. It's just, I love the yeah, way Sutton like, drew it. Yeah, I feel like Sutton's riffing on Johnny Craig a little bit there. He yeah, used to definitely. draw her like that. Definitely. This is Johnny Craig, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's Oh, my that's gosh, then, but her, her dialogue is just absolutely hilarious. Well, read some to us, Billy. Lay it on <laughs> oh, us. Yeah, her, her, her interaction <laughs> with Morbius, he comes up to the place and knocks on the door and she says, kind of late hour to be getting in, ain't it, Mr. Morbius? Especially in this kind of weather. And he says, my whereabouts are my own concern. <laughs> she says, <laughs> not here, Mr. Morbius. My late husband, God rest his soul, and I always run a decent place. You better understand that right from the start. You ask me, I'd say you and this girl ain't exactly kosher. <laughs> Look who's talking. Jeez. This this crone, this hag. witch, this sea hag, yeah. She's oh man. Yeah, she would give Popeye's sea hag a run for her money, man. That's how terrible she looks. And she's laying this on Morbius? Come on. What a what a hypocrite. Uh, what a line. You and this girl ain't exactly kosher. Yeah. And then, you know, you've got Amanda Saint turning up on the stairs and she's looking all alluring and, and Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's really beautiful. The way Sutton draws her, Sutton, oh, yeah. Sutton could draw a beautiful lady. And then they get into an argument with Miss Agnes because even though Amanda's leading Morbius up the staircase, this uh, Miss Agnes, this landlady, just won't let it go. She keeps insulting them, right? And mm -hmm. 
uh, or or at least she keeps uh, warning them, uh, but she just won't let the conversation die out. And then her what handyman shows up, and this is the guy with the hook, <laughs> Oliver, <laughs> and he looks her even one worse. Handyman. Exactly. <laughs> now he's a little bit, uh, you know, excuse me, listeners, touched in the head, which was the the t- the term used at the time, but 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 he's you know um, you know not not all there. Right, um, you don't yeah, know if this yeah, he's is dementia. Like mentally disturbed. Yeah, yeah, it could be dementia, but it could also be um, a, a mental issue. And um, he kind of like menaces them with a hook. But then Miss Agnes says, "Leave the strangers alone. <laughs> don't mind him. He's he's mute, and you know all of that. And he's um, you know, deaf, like she yeah. says, uh, deaf, mute, and touched in the head. So you know. And then uh, Agnes seems to, or not Agnes, sorry, uh, Amanda Saint seems to uh, have enough of this and she's kind of like I don't know this is just a mean thing to say to someone that you've just discovered is not all there she says why is he staring at us like that Miss Agnes (laughs) so she seems to not really like people who are mentally challenged and uh, and then she says oh don't mind him he can't hear nary a word. Now, this being main, Billy, I was expecting a couple of ayers, you know, <laughs> ayer, ayer. <laughs> they had none of that. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. And then again, you see the lighthouse. Now, Billy, this is the second time we have the bottom panel of the lighthouse, and I find that very uh-huh. eerie. Um, on, on the previous page, you have the lighthouse ending the, the page off nicely with this mist-shrouded fog around it, and then the next uh, page again ended with Something wait it waits as it has done for fog shrouded years. So this lighthouse sort of acts as a, uh, as a a device that Sutton uses, or it might also be Don McGregor's at Don McGregor's suggestion, to finish off each mm-hmm. page. You know, showing that this is where all the evil emanates from from this lighthouse. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, you have Amanda and Morbius retiring to their rooms and they're discussing this town. Now this Billy is a, a very strange line uttered by Morbius here. He says, um, Amanda, I know what uh, what you mean. There's a false facade to this place, to this place of, of in Maine. Somewhere underneath, I sense something malignant. Now, Morbius, what did you expect from a town called Malevolence? <laughs> you know, that sort of gives away that the fact that there's some sinister going on, goings on happening here. Uh, but but then we learn a bit of the story that we learned in the previous issue of Vampire Tales. Um, Morbius is helping Amanda Saint to locate her mom and dad who disappeared. You know, well, her mom disappeared first. Um, when Amanda was a child, she joined a coven called Demon Fire. And then her father eventually left to search for her mother, leaving Amanda and her brother all alone. And uh, eventually Amanda met Morbius and, um, you know, they became friends and Morbius decided to help her to locate her parents because he's also got, you know, he's uh, he wants to wipe out cults, you know, um, subconsciously, I would say. But that's Morbius's thing. He takes on cults in vampire tales and basically <laughs> destroys them, even though he doesn't say, you know, that is his main purpose. You know, that basically that is what happens. You know, this he covens and cults are his main uh, enemies. So, Billy, then uh, yeah. Amanda quickly gives a recap of her origin and, and Morbius says, yes, they're still looking for the cult of demon fire. And then we get to a page where I mentioned earlier is the subplot of this Duke Mannery and his assistants, Anne Randolph and Brock Kilbride, uh, who are, you know, uh, helming his campaign headquarters. 
And then mm -hmm. Mannery shows up. And then, Billy, you've got the most beautiful panel featuring the lighthouse, I think, um, oh. where you see this demon called Blood Tide drifting, wraith-like, over the ocean mm -hmm. or over the, the beach towards the lighthouse. And I yeah. just find that to be a wonderfully illustrated panel by, by Tom Sutton. Um, mm -hmm. And then the demon enters the lighthouse on the next page and talks to his followers. And uh, one of them being, of course, the head priestess, who's also the mother of, um, of Amanda Saint. Now, Billy, what do you think mm -hmm. about the, 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 the way Tom Sutton designed this blood tide? Well, it's interesting. It's really almost like just like a huge cloak mm. and almost like a skeleton under the cloak. And you never see a, like a head or a face, but you see these uh, the glaring eyes, almost like headlights from a car. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's cool. I like it. I mean, it's that, that cool. whole page where you first see him. Yeah. Oh, that that page is just incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a great page. Do you know what he reminds me of, Billy? Star Wars, the Jawas. He reminds me oh. of an evil Jawa that had somehow acquired sorcerous abilities and and grown in stature, and now he's menacing folks <laughs> because he's oh, had great. enough. He's had enough of being killed by stormtroopers. His family's been wiped out by stormtroopers. He simply wanted to 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 sell a few droids. <laughs> now he's taking his revenge. So, wow, I, I, love, I love the design. And if you look at his cowl and those glowing eyes that the Jawas also have, mm -hmm. the cowl is dripping with some kind of residue or slime or fungus. I don't know what it is. It's sort yeah. of as if he, okay, he's just emerged from the sea, presumably. So that could be seawater, but it, it doesn't look like it. It looks like slime. Maybe it, it's blood, blood tide. Could, I don't know. Oh, it could be blood. He just left the tide and blood tide. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And if you look at him from the back, the cowl that he has covering his head kind of looks like some kind of a seashell. You know, um, at least it has those ridges on top. And then yeah, blood tide. Clam, something. Yeah, clam. Oh, that's even a better one. Yeah, clam. It, does, it looks like that. And then, Billy, you have um, him telling, well, he, he first gathers some information um, that, you know, from Amanda's mother. She says that, you know, her daughter is here al along with Morbius, who destroyed the San Francisco sect. So Blood Tide immediately starts enacting a plan to, to destroy Morbius and Amanda. And uh, he sort of shows up. He seems to be able to teleport, or, or, or we don't know uh, how he came there, but he appears in the room of Oliver, the mentally challenged uh, man with a hook. And he sort of mm -hmm. gives him a command saying that you have to go into the hotel room and kill Morbius and Amanda. Now, this is a great scene, Billy, because you've got <laughs> Blood Tide showing up, yeah, in the room. And then the very next panel, they, they cut to Morbius and Amanda in the room, lounging around watching TV. Now, we're going to get to this funny part just now. But uh -huh. Morbius, at first, he's, he's, he's at the window, staring out at the window, his hands folded behind his back. And then... As Blood Tide in the very next panel commands Oliver and Oliver exits his room to obviously go on this murderous spree, um, you've got Morbius slowly walking towards the TV with Amanda, you know, to keep, to, to presumably just watch a bit of telly <laughs> with Amanda on the bed. And then Blood Tide sort of teleports again. Now, I don't know if you can call this teleportation, but he seems to shrink and then just fade out of existence. 
and he he exits with with the words go and rip open her scalp oliver and then she won't scream when you touch her <laughs> what does that mean what that dialogue makes no sense she's going to scream her head off if someone rips off her, her scalp yeah i don't know that's Jeez, crazy. that's just a crazy bit of dialogue there from Blood Tide. Um, uh, now then, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the synopsis, eventually when they do confront Blood Tide, it turns out not to be the actual demon himself. But this guy showing up in Oliver's room, this is probably Blood Tide himself, right, Billy? There's, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's oh, no doubt. Sure. Because he's got the powers of mind control. He's got this teleportation effect. It must be him. And then, you know, you've got Morbius sitting in a very strange way on the bed. Amanda's looking all <laughs> demure and all <laughs> cockwittish. And, and Morbius is, you know, with his legs and his arm crossed and he crosses his legs over his... <laughs> it just looks strange. <laughs> and, and, you know, and then the, 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 the TV reports the clandestine lighthouse still stands today. So the very fact that this lighthouse is known by the name the clandestine lighthouse means it's off limits to the general public. And this lighthouse yeah. seems to be the, the focus of this Duke Mannery's political campaign. Apparently, it was slated to be torn down and he saved the lighthouse. And that caused all the, the inhabitants of Malevolent, uh, Malevolence, Maine to vote for him. You know, and to uh, now ho hopefully, you know, he became the mayor and he wants to be elevated to the Senate or something. So this lighthouse is definitely the focal point of the town and of all the strange happenings. Now, Billy, I'm going to let you talk about the next page because this is one of your <laughs> weirdest scenarios that you've mentioned to me before. What happens on the next page? <laughs> oh, this is so crazy. Yeah, this is my favorite page of the entire story. You see Amanda and Morbius watching television and... They're talking about the political climate in the area. And Morbius, <laughs> sitting on the bed, has his arms crossed and his legs crossed. And he has his head cocked to the side. And in the background, you see Oliver with this grin on his face, peeking in the door with his hook. And the next panel, he opens the door a little more and starts creeping in. And then in the third panel, he's like got his hook in the air, ready to bash Amanda over the head with it. And you can see Morbius, he doesn't really move per se, but his eyes kind of drift over as if he can hear him coming. And at the last second, pulls Amanda out of the way as Oliver tries to <laughs> rip her head off with the hook. He even got a couple of strands of hair, I think. Yeah, he did. And yeah. Morbius just tosses him right out the window. <laughs> Dude, that is an amazing sequence because, yeah, Morbius, he, he doesn't suffer fools lightly or attackers lightly, especially not those threatening his ladies. <laughs> So, yeah, he hurls this guy through the window and then the guy dies by literally being impaled by glass shards. Oh, it looks awful. It looks absolutely yeah. awful. And there's blood everywhere. One of them's huge piece of glass sticking right out of his neck yes. and blood squirting out. And Morbius yes. looks like feral and yeah. like he's been on steroids, too. Like he is jacked and he's looking down at the guy. <laughs> well, yeah, that that's, a um, you know, uh, what's going to happen next is going to disturb Amanda. But Morbius is now presumably Billy uh, in the throes of his bloodlust because this this is just like a, a free free meal. Right. This is like an all you can eat yeah. buffet just thrown into his face and he's not going to let it go to waste and then amanda she sees a morbius pursuing this guy through the window and morbius is bending down and then uh this is the first time amanda realizes what morbius really is i mean she might have known he's a vampire but she she hasn't come to grips with it but now the reality is staring her in the face she says michael michael what are you what, what are you doing <laughs> yep 
And, and do you see who's to the far left over there? Yes. Blood Tide by the moon? Blood Tide <laughs> in the background, <laughs> drifting past the moon, observing events, seeing that his plan hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Good point, Billy. Good point. And then, you know, Amanda screens, I can't believe this on the very next page. And Morbius has now snacked down on poor old Oliver and, and had his fill. And Amanda <laughs> makes a run for it. No, stay away from me. But, you know, things aren't going to go that easy for you, Amanda. Morbius is, is, is pursuing her, but half-heartedly, you know, he's racked by guilt. He didn't want Amanda to see him like this. But then, Billy, <laughs> the very next panel, she almost gets beheaded by an axe. <laughs> And, and it, yeah, like one hmm. of the crazy villagers, you know, that's under the under the spell tries to behead her. And then it almost looks like she's having a wardrobe malfunction there in that uh, panel, too. Like one of oh, her yeah. uh, boobs slips <laughs> out, <laughs> slips out. Yep, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Well, it wouldn't have mattered because this being a, a magazine, they could have done whatever they wanted. Yeah. Right. It wasn't subject to the uh-huh. comic code. But this is Miss mm-hmm. Agnes, right? Miss Agnes wielding the axe. Um, seemingly also under Blood Tide's control, because it turns out, Billy, this entire town um, is is uh, subject to the whims of Blood Tide or of the cult, you know, living uh, the cult of yeah. Demon Fire, because they're all either being mind controlled or they're all in cahoots with the cultists, because they they attack in mass, and Morbius and Amanda mm-hmm. are immediately fleeing for their lives. So Amanda has no choice now but to accept the lesser of two evils, evils, which is Morbius. Yeah. <laughs> but she does say something at the at the end there. She says, "Michael, I don't understand you. You and those others. Look at them. Are they all mad?" Meaning she also thinks <laughs> Morbius is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dare I say the whole it? town basically yeah. comes after them. The whole clan, whatever cult, whatever they are. like. And you know, Morbius. Hey, he's supernatural superhuman but when an entire you know village is coming after you you got to just get out of there (laughs) yeah yeah but he handles himself well i mean there's a point where he just tears through these cultists by you know what i think this is his trademark tom sutton attack where he like leaps into the into them feet first (laughs) like he did with a flying dropkick like he did with the the poor hapless (laughs) victim on the first page of the issue and uh you know he he breaks through the the mob and then saves Amanda's life but you know Amanda's still reluctant to go with him and Morbius just settles that by saying you can prattle on to your heart's content but later Amanda (laughs) 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 and then it seems that they've they've got Amanda slated for some kind of sacrifice because the the crowd keeps Uh yelling the girl we want the girl right and then Uh yeah Morbius sort of protects her and then uh, again, uh, Amanda tries to say something and Morbius just say, later, girl, later. This is not the time for idle questions. <laughs> and don't you think... And then they go they yeah. go booking out the door and then somebody throws a harpoon <laughs> at them. And all <laughs> yes. <laughs> this being a fishing village, everybody's got a, a harpoon uh, at home. Wow. Oh and it God. seems almost like Morbius is sort of dodging that harpoon because he's running with his yeah. head down and the harpoon uh-huh. barely, you know, just... just grazes his, his, his collar, that massive mm-hmm. collar that he has. Now, Billy, you'd think that having a collar like that would seriously impair your peripheral vision, making you all that more vulnerable to a mob attacking you from all sides. But nope, that doesn't phase Morpheus, uh, Morbius. He just runs through this mob. And then we see, this is a funny bit, where we see the two uh, assistants of this uh, politician, Duke Mannery, 
Uh, I think Brock mm-hmm. Kilbride and Anne Randolph, they're walking down the street. And Morbius yeah. and um, and Amanda are just making a beeline for them and just knocks them out of the way. <laughs> you know, you'd think like this is heartless because they're they're knocked off their feet and now the cultists are right behind them. And yeah. uh, they're creeping up on these two people who've been flattened. Uh, but, but you know, come the next issue, we learn that nothing really happened to them. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, there's this great panel uh, where Morbius is again confronted by someone wielding an axe. But we don't see that. We just see the shadow of the axe huge against the back wall of an alley. And yeah. um, Morbius sort of uh, shying away from that. And Billy, then mm-hmm. I think there's a another great page where... You know, this uh, we at this point in time think it to be actually blood tide, um, yeah, attacking Morbius. And I found that quite horrific because here blood tide is sort of besting Morbius because Morbius is getting hacked by this axe, and he's even got mm-hmm. his his wrist. I don't know what you would call that, impaled against the wall by this axe. Yeah, yeah, and then um, you know um, we get the the denouement, which is the the ending. Which is very, very <laughs> weird. Well, this being into the weird <laughs> listeners, this is what you'd expect from us. How does she die? Or or blood tide? How does he he bite it? I found this oh, to lands be... on his own axe. Yeah. yeah I mean that's... right on the head right through the head. And I mean it's not like Ugh. it is the the axe is literally like halfway through a brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Embedded in the skull of Blood Tide, who turns out not to be Blood Tide. We know by my synopsis we've we've learned that this is in fact Amanda's yeah. mother. But, you know, Amanda then faints. Now, I'm thinking, Billy, they didn't show why she fainted. She could have fainted, yeah. you know, because they were being attacked and she just, you know, couldn't handle it. But I think she fainted because when Morbius, you know, discovers that this person that just died by falling on her own axe, when he discovers that this is Amanda's mother by pulling this mask from her face, I'm thinking Amanda must have seen this and then she must have just fainted because of the horror of it all. This is horrible. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, they kind of leave it up to your own interpretation there. But she's in the page before. She's not, you know, passed out. She didn't faint. She's looking at this person coming forward with the axe. And then exactly. it isn't until after the person falls on the axe, right, splits their head wide open. Precisely. That you see her, then she's passed out. Yeah. Precisely. Now, Billy, that's one of my favorite pages, that final page of the, the Morbius uh-huh. story where, you know, um, you know, Amanda's mother dies by falling backwards onto her own axe. And then, I mean, I, the reason why she fell backwards on her axe is because I think Morbius just literally made a grab for her throat. And then she stumbled yeah. backwards, dropping her axe behind her and then falling on the blade. Mm. And then, you know, uh, Morbius takes the ring from her finger, uh, presumably to prove to Amanda that, you know, well, it was the wedding band, um, you know, of Amanda's mom. Um, yeah. And uh, he says he wants to give it to Amanda because it's her legacy, which is very mm-hmm. strange, you know. But why would you want to keep an evil woman's wedding band, <laughs> even if if she was mm-hmm. your mother? But, okay, uh, weird bit of, um, you know, uh, story there. And then he carries Amanda off into uh, the moonlight. And that is a wonderful little panel with Morbius's face as the background. And then him yeah. striding off into the moonlight. The lighthouse is still there, but you've got this... A creepily written uh, ending end by Tom Sutton. I think he did the lettering for that as well. What do you think of that page? Oh, I love it. And I got to be honest with you, and this is kind of terrible, but like the first time I looked at this page, 
I didn't even realize Morbius's head and face and all was the actual backdrop for that whole page. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then all of a sudden I was just like, oh, wait a minute. What's going on here? There's his face. And I'm like, oh, that's not just his face. That's his whole head. Like the way Sutton did it was, you know, it's just like the outline of his face mm. and his hair, you know, it's a black and white. So it's like stark white. And then that's where the, the part is where <laughs> the axe splits right through the skull of uh, Amanda's mother. That's right. That's it's brilliant. Right. Yeah, it is yeah. right. I mean, that that speaks to the power of the panels in the foreground. They're so compelling that you can't look away from them. And, and even that brilliant panel of Morbius's face being in the background, that in itself, you know, is not the first thing you look at simply because the other panels are so striking. So yeah. I agree with you, Billy. No, Sutton did it. He outdid himself here, really. Um, mm -hmm. Wonderful job by Tom Sutton. So, Billy, that's yeah. that's it. Basically, now Morbius is still in pursuit of the cult. Now, Vampire Tales number five will sort of give us an ending to the story, not a penultimate, not not a final ending, but um, it will definitely uh, finish up the Malevolence main storyline, where we learn yeah. out, where we, where we learn the true identity of Blood Tide and so forth and so. So um, we might discuss that in the future, but we might also not, you know, we might skip a couple of Vampire Tales issues. Who knows? Um, but I, I like this story a lot. What did you think about the story as a whole? Well, I thought it was really good. And to me, it's like I usually don't care for uh, more than maybe one uh, tiny bit of humor in a horror story. And this one had more than one funny bit in it. But I found them hilarious, and I found them perfect. They McGregor did a great job at you know the pacing, and then also having a few bits of humor in it as well. <laughs> he he did a very good job. <laughs> yeah, I would never, um, I would never peg Morpheus as the kind of person to watch a bit of TV with with a, a lovely lady on a hotel <laughs> bed, crossing their legs and discussing <laughs> politics of all things. That that's just great. Mm. So so wonderful. Okay, Billy, so before we get to your favorite tale, I'm going to let you go um, with that. I just want to mention to the listeners now, there is a couple of other stories. There are a couple of other stories in this Vampire Tales volume. We're going to leave that till the end, Billy, to briefly talk about them. Just just uh, give a rough summary of each tale. So we're going to skip three stories ahead to the very last tale um, in this volume of Vampire Tales, which is your favorite story, Billy. So I'm going to let you run with it. But I just want the listeners to know that we will be talking about some of the other uh, content, some of the content available in this Vampire Tales, but at a later because at a later stage, because this is basically, uh, we're focusing on the two best stories, at least in our minds, featured in this uh, uh, volume of the magazine. So, Billy, I'm going to uh, let you run with it, your favorite horror tale in comic book form, um, and let's go. Okay, so... I don't, you, you're right on the money. These two stories are the best in the book. I don't even think it's close. Uh, this one's called The Drifting Snow, and it's actually a story by August Derleth. Uh, you know, we, talk, we talked about him. Oh, boy. I can't remember which episode it was on, but it was one of the Doctor Strange episodes where there was some of the uh, uh, horror and, uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft kind of Robert E. Howard right. stuff going on. That's right. And... Uh, you know, he was the first person to uh, publish the uh, H.P. Lovecraft stuff. And then he put his own contributions into it as well, mm. you know, and wrote some really good stuff. And this is actually a story of his, uh, but then it was adapted uh, 
by Tony Isabella. And as we said earlier, Esteban Maroto uh, was the artist. So really, really good story. But it's just to me, it's a perfect horror story. I don't yeah. know how do you feel about no, it. No, no, no. I'm I'm in full agreement because if you compare the two stories, the one that we've already talked about, the Lighthouse of the Possessed featuring Morbius, um, that is a great story in itself. But this one is so far beyond even that tale. You know, this is like classic horror, uh, a story that I, yeah. I think could stand, you know, with the greats of, of short horror fiction easily, I think. But, you know, Billy, we, we should mention to the listeners, you and I both, we haven't read the original tale by August Derleth. I've had a hell of a time tracking it down. I did find an online version of it, uh, a, a free online version that you could read. I'll, I'll send it. I'll, you know, put the link on Sink into the Weird. But I think, you know, you don't even need to read that story because this this story is just so great. Unless you're really, really into August Derleth himself, you don't even have to look at that. If you're into horror, just read this comic book tale because the art of Murato alone, wow. I mean, that definitely eclipses the original story at least you know even before i've read it i'm just gonna go out on a limb and and make this wild assumption so uh, yeah a classic horror story so yeah so, you and i yeah. talked too off mic about how uh, especially under roy thomas marvel was pretty faithful with adaptations you know whether it was you know the conan stuff or whatever they they did a pretty good job you know obviously you have to condense things down a bit you know if they wrote a you know, a, a 500 or 1,000 page story and you're trying to make it into a, you know, 20 page comic book, you have to make some concessions. But they were they were pretty good with uh, with adaptations, Definitely. being faithful to them. Definitely. No, I fully agree. So, uh, Billy, you got a synopsis for us um, chronicling mm-hmm. the events of this uh, issue. Yep, absolutely. OK, so like I said, Tony Isabella script, <clears throat> Esteban Moroto art. All right. Deep in the Wisconsin woods, we see a light flicker inside a cabin. Ernest and his wife, Claudetta, are visiting her Aunt Mary. An older woman, Aunt Mary, is disturbed when she finds that the curtains have been drawn away from the window. For some reason, she wants the curtains on the west windows to never be drawn at night. Cousin Henry shows up in the middle of a blizzard and remarks that they'll possibly be snowbound. Later, as Henry, Claudetta, and Ernest peek out the window, they see two forms in the storm. Aunt Mary then decides to tell them the family horror story. Years ago, Ernest's grandfather found his son fooling around with a servant girl. He then casts her out in the middle of a blizzard just like tonight's. The girl was found the next morning, frozen to death. But years later, one night, Ernest's grandfather heard someone from outside the house calling to him. When he went outside to investigate, he was attacked and killed by a form resembling the servant girl, except she was now a vampire. Okay, and I'm going to stop there because I want you and I just to get into the the real meat of it, uh, yeah, that sets it up nicely, Billy. Very nicely. Yeah. Um, so this is a story takes place in the uh, Wisconsin woods, as they say, mm-hmm. during the middle of winter. So they're already kind yeah. of snowbound. I mean, even the people showing up at the mm-hmm. house mention how difficult it was to get to this house. And um, so you've got the setting, you know, of isolation, you know, and uh, isolated settings in horror, Billy, you know, immediately 
straight off that's going to work because you know when you're isolated there's no way you can call for help you know cabin mm-hmm. fever might set in uh, causing you not to only have um, external horrors to deal with but also the internal you know uh, horrors courtesy of psychological breakdowns or whatnot and um, you know yeah. you've got this within the first two pages of this issue you've got that setting of isolation and, and horror so uh, Morato Antonia Isabella sets it up nicely so you just basically, as a reader, you're just waiting for the coin to drop. You're just waiting for the mm-hmm. the blood to hit the fan. <laughs> yep. And then you've got Murata drawing, um, you know, the ladies again. Now you've got the the second page. You you see um, Aunt Mary, this old lady who owns the house, and then you've also got her. Uh, is that her granddaughter, or or her? I, I don't know who who what what you would call uh, Claudetta. Um, because I think Ernest is her family, isn't it? Or is it Claudetta? I wasn't quite sure about the family line. But I think Ernest is her grandson. And Claudetta yes. is yeah, yeah, his yeah. either his sister, I think so, so or his wife. I'm not sure. You know, um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they never make that clear. But you know, it doesn't matter. Ernest and Claudetta are there visiting Aunt Mary. And then you've got mm-hmm. Aunt Mary showing up, warning them off. For, because Claudetta's looking out at the drifting snow through the windows, the western windows, and mm-hmm. she's immediately berated by uh, Anne Mary. And I just found that character interaction, if you look at the faces of, the, you know, as they uh, go back and forth and, and have this argument, it's so well done. You know, like you've got the rage showing on Anne Mary's face, and you realize this, this they've stepped over a huge line here. The, the boundaries have been crossed, and this woman's, you know, very, very upset. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you've got the next page where you have and Mary sort of um, just telling them, you know, I'm not going to tell you right now. You're going to think I'm crazy, but I'm going to just keep the, yeah. the the windows closed. And that's also great art. So, you know, even though you don't see any of the horror yet, you just see a lot of uh, faces. Wow, it's so compelling because Billy, you know, the way he draw, uh, Esteban Morato draws facial expressions. You can really mm-hmm. feel this argument. And there's even this panel where there's no dialogue. It's just Aunt Mary pronouncing something um, ominous. And then you've got uh, Claudetta looking up at Ernest. And Ernest is smoking his pipe. And you can see on their faces like, oh, w- what the hell does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very disturbed. Do, do you know which? Pa- yeah. I think it's page three or page four uh, where mm-hmm. uh, Aunt Mary says, I didn't think it wise to explain why I made such a request, but there is a very definite danger in drawing away the curtains. Ernest has heard that before, yep. but you, Claudetta, have not. You know, so mm-hmm. then you, you got that panel where they just look at each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then that's, yep. um, they intercut with the image of the drifting snow outside, just um, oh, covering this house. How what gorgeous. Beautiful. Oh. I'm telling oh. you, Murato, he should draw snowy stories all the time because, well, just look at the swirling snow that he puts mm-hmm. on the page. It's just amazing. And then Henry shows up, um, another family member, and he is <laughs> covered. He, he looks like an icicle <laughs> walking. Mm-hmm. He, he kind of looks like the icicle from DC, you know, the the, the villain. Uh, yeah. Man, he, he must be close to death. Hypothermia setting in. But you know he's he survives. He eats a warm meal and then he's fine. And and then you know you f- you see like another panel on the next page where they show the drifting snow again, Billy. But this time, they show an Im- a shape, a human form, in the snow, mm-hmm. and that really scared the 
the hell out of me when I read this for the first time. You know, suddenly yeah. they cut away from the house and you see the horror starting to emerge. And uh, they're in the full-blown blizzard at this point, I think. Don't you just love yeah. the way Murato draws... Uh, okay, obviously, Claudetta is a very beautiful woman, but look at the way he draws her eyes, Billy. You know, yeah. she's obviously got some, you know, eyeshadow on and, and, and eyeliner, but wow, I just love the this, the look of her. Like, how did he do that? He plays with the blacks and the shadows so well. And, um, mm -hmm. and then on the very next page, you see another snow snowy image with two figures emerging walking towards yep. the house and you know obviously and mary has retired at this point in time and you've got henry that young ass <laughs> just saying <laughs> hang the old biddy i i happen to like the view from these windows and he then seals his own doom <laughs> by opening the curtains and glancing out and they see those two figures in the snow now, Claudetta, you know, she's not really placed under their spell right off. She runs to Aunt Mary to report what they've seen. And then Aunt yeah. Mary tells her the truth because she wants now Claudetta to realize the, 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 full, the full importance of, of why it's so important to close the windows. And then we get that lovely uh, background tale, that tale of how, you know, this, um, these figures in the snow came to be. Um, and that's another great sequence of panels. In one page, the entire story is told of how these uh, these uh, snow monsters or snow vampires had their origin. Because, in fact, it turns out that the, the figures in the Drifting Snowbilly, they are, in fact, vampires. Now, we don't know how they became vampires, but obviously, like you said in your synopsis, the servant girl was put out, well, you know, kicked out of the, the house by Ernest's grandfather after he found yeah. them, you know, uh, engaged in a bit of a, you know, tryst in the barn or wherever. I don't know where it was, but she freezes to death. And then her body's found, but then subsequently she returns as a snow vampire. So it could be that in this case, if someone had been wronged, their spirits, you know, linger and they, you know, re-enter the body to become a vampire. We'd never know. But she was not bitten by another vampire to transform into a bloodsucker. She just became a snow vampire because of this, the horrible thing that had been done to her in life. So you, you get yeah. that sometimes, right? You, you get that happening in stories. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure you hear about that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so this is totally plausible for me. This is just uh, Derelith playing with some of the, um, you know, uh, uh, stories of old. And then, of course, uh, Tony Isabella running with this. And then, you know... The, uh, I think Claudetta manages to to uh, take Aunt Mary back towards the, the living room. And at that point in time, you have Henry, who's now completely under the spell of these snow vampires. He wants to make a run for it outside. And he's even like calling her his lovely, his beauty, you know, uh, a little hand touched mine, he says, you know, drifting and falling about her. <laughs> the snow, the beautiful snow. And then you've got one of, um, I think, the... The groundskeepers, or at least one of, yeah. um, you know, Aunt Mary's uh, helpers, Sam. Yeah, Sam. Mm -hmm. He says, look, and points towards the windows. And then we have the money shot, Billy. Now, you want to talk oh. about that? The, one of the most beautiful comic book images I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, you get like a, a half page, but vertical, not horizontal. A half page splash and... It shows this beautiful vampire woman, and 
you know, there's a little bit of snow and ice drifting around, but she looks to be pretty much naked. Uh, <laughs> yes. But, you yes. know, they, they, they have her, you know, uh, the, the snow and the wind and things drifting around, so you can't really see uh, <laughs> the, 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 the womanly parts, but it looks absolutely gorgeous. I mean, and it's, again, it's a black and white magazine, so it's just all with black and white. And then at the bottom, you see the people from inside the house, and they're just all you know, it's all black and just like their outlines. It is just a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Uh, uh, like it's, you could almost use this as a pinup. Like it, it's just incredible. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And she, she seems should to have be... made a black light poster out of it or something. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And she seems to be wearing some kind of a crown, but it's, it might just be her frozen hair standing up in spikes, but it's done yeah, it's to, to tell. Re- kind of resemble, you know, the, the, the Disney um, villainess Maleficent, you know, it, oh, it kind yeah, of looks yeah, like yeah. that. But her eyes are stark white. There's There are no uh, pupils to speak of. And then, Billy, let's not beat around the bush here. Snow-encrusted nipples. Little yeah, icicles. Ice, ice pasties. Ice pasties. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically, that she retains her modesty simply because of the snow having frozen over her, her, her female parts. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. I don't mind that. She's just absolutely beautiful. And then you've got light like scintillating bursts of, of, of light, you know, um, reflecting off of these ice crystals covering her body. And then in the background, you see the grandfather leering, you know, <laughs> lasciviously almost, you know, ready to, to snack. He, he's, he's probably going to, you know, take her sloppy seconds because <laughs> you know, she's obviously uh-huh. having the, for the, the first choice of, of who's going to be the next meal. And uh, then, you know, you've got Henry going absolutely ape, and he just screams, I'm coming, my love. I'm coming to you. And he knocks yeah. Aunt Mary out of the way and runs into the snow. <laughs> and disappears. Yeah, he's thinking thinking with his wang here, not with his, <laughs> his brain. <laughs> Damn, wouldn't you too, Billy? I mean, I would be well, totally yeah, enraptured. Some naked lady dancing around outside your window. It's like, well. <laughs> but a lady like this, she probably doesn't even need the Ooh. vampiric hypnotism. She just, you know, just by her look uh-huh. alone. And then even the yeah. next panel, after, uh, the next page after that, Billy, is amazing. You have Henry walking into the snow and Sam keeping Ernest and Claudetta from helping him. They're keeping them within the doorway. And Henry's standing in front of these two vampires. And then this is something you and I both enjoy about a great written horror tale. You don't actually see Henry's death. You just see the faces of the um, the rubberneckers, <laughs> people observing what's happening. <laughs> And then you've got this scream. Every person's face is is uh, delineated in this one singular horizontal panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, white faces against the dark. And you've got this scream. Yeah! And that's how Henry uh, buys the farm. And you have um, Aunt Mary then saying, that's it, he's done for. And then she uh-huh. says, tomorrow we have to go and find his body and possibly the bodies of the other two and stake them. And then they do find Henry's body frozen the next morning, completely frozen. And then these hand marks, the uh, dainty little handprints on his face, blood prints, mm. right, Billy, where she caressed his yeah. face before draining him of blood. And that is a wonderful ending to a horror tale where you see the actual results of, of you know, Henry's actions displayed to you by the great art of Murato. So what a wonderful final page. And the page just before that being the, the, the one of the greatest pages in horror comics of all time. 
you have this yeah. excellent final page finishing it. Billy, what a comic. What? I, oh. I don't know how to describe this thing further. It's just, oh man, it's it's amazeballs. <laughs> yeah, I could literally look at this story for hours. It's just a, what a, like if I was going to say to somebody, you know, how do you write a short horror story and then illustrate it? This would be the first thing I would give them. It's just incredible. I mean, like we were talking to you said about that page where it tells that whole backstory in one page. I mean, there's literally like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all different shaped and sized panels. But on one page, you know, when Aunt Mary's telling them about, uh, you know, who the people are that are outside. But the page right before that, they say to her like, hey, there's somebody outside. And she's like, oh, and Aunt Mary says, oh, and Claudetta says, then there is someone out there? And Aunt Mary says, yes. And Claudetta says, then we had better take them in, Aunt Mary. And Aunt Mary's response is, and her face is just stone cold. She says, we can't take them in, Claudetta, because they're not alive. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. oh, it's so yeah. good. Yeah. Oh, it's mm. You know, um, Billy, this, gotcha. this, this story kind of reminds me of... Um, a Stephen King short story. You know, um, it, it's based in the Salem's Lot universe. Now, you know Salem's Lot, you know, you know the story. Oh, so good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what basically happened, you know, in Salem's Lot at the end of the novel, I'm not, I don't want to spoil. So if, if anybody hasn't read the novel and, and you're planning to, you know, just skip ahead, you know, 40 or so seconds. But basically at the end of Salem's Lot, the vampires are not all destroyed. You know, the town is burned down. You know, but it's not. It's it's hinted at that there are more vampires around because the town is then abandoned. Nobody lives there anymore, and for years afterwards, it still has this sinister reputation. Now, in the middle of winter, sometimes travelers pass to Salem's Lot, and then you know, if they have a breakdown or their car, you know, is is stuck in a snowdrift or whatnot, then you know, the Salem's Lot vampires come out and they you know have a bit of a, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> a, a cat and game of cat and mouse with these snowbound yeah. travelers, and um, mm-hmm. it's just uh, there was a story that Stephen King did. I think it was in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, uh, where he talked about this um, town adjacent to Salem's Lot. Now I can't quite think of of the story. I'm, I'll try to find it here. Um, mm-hmm. it, basically, what happens, Billy, is this family. They're they're in the car. And their car is, uh, you know, stuck in the snowdrift. And then the the mother and the daughter are left in the car, and the father walks towards the the nearest town for help. So he turns up at the town, and then he tells the folks what happened. And the folks said, "Oh, what, what, where, where did your car get stuck?" And he says, "Oh, right, right on the outskirts of Salem's Lot." And the folks say, "Oh man, this this is bad news." So then the folks from the adjacent town start debating. They're two old folks. Should they go out there? Should they help this this mother and daughter stuck in the car? And then eventually they do. You know, they 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 go with the the father. I think it was, and they go towards the car. And then the car is empty, and it's too late. And they just observe these footprints in the snow. You know, leading yeah. off towards um, you know some other foot to be joined by other footprints. And so they know what happened. But the father is you know racked with grief. He doesn't know what happened. He just thinks what what would compel them to leave the car. You know, he was literally just gone for an hour. So, you know, um, uh, that's that's a great tale. I'll, I'll come up with the name and then later, listeners, I'll mention it. So, Billy, mm-hmm. uh, similar to that, I love stories about 
you know, snowbound tragedies where you have a horror in that kind of setting. You know, yeah, you kind of, kind of scary. The Shining, The Shining <laughs> is a good example, you know, of that, you know, yeah. stuck in this hotel mm -hmm. where you can't leave. So um, brilliant tale, but this def definitely gives something new, brings something new to the table. Uh, this is a unique story in, in itself. Yeah, and I mean, 1939 is when the, the story, the original story was written. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no Cthulhu mythos in sight. This is just August Derleth doing straightforward vampiric uh, horror. Um, you know, you don't get anything from his, uh, what he became famous for later or infamous for later, I, I'd say. If you look at some Lovecraft fans, they didn't actually like what August Derleth did with Lovecraft's stuff. But, you know, yeah. um, I, I am of the mind that he did kind of bring Lovecraft to prominence again, you know, because he established Arkham House and they published a lot of Lovecraft material. So he probably wouldn't have, Lovecraft wouldn't have been as well known as he is today if it wasn't for August Derleth in some uh, fashion or other. But um, you're right on the money there. This guy knew horror. Let's just throw mm -hmm. that out there, Billy. August Derleth will forever be associated with horror. He knew how to write a great horror tale. And um, Murato and Isabella did a, a wondrous job, a glorious, you know, um, uh, job adapting that tale. So, Billy, yeah, absolutely. I think um, we can head on, straight on into um, uh, Mighty Marvel Mistips and Bronze Age Brilliance, but I'm going to be uh, a blasé and say, listen, we don't even have to mention Mighty Marvel Mistips. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want to talk about that brief uh, interjection of politics in Morbius. <laughs> but both of these, I'm hard-pressed to find anything wrong with, with these two tales that we talked about. What about you? No, they're, they're, I mean, if I had to rate them, for me, Drifting Snow is a 5 out of 5, and Lighthouse of the Possessed is a 4 or 4.5 out of 5. They're both just so, so good. You, you can't go wrong with either of these. They're, they're fantastic. Agreed. Like you said, you want to nitpick something a little tiny bit but the only thing is like that one last page looked a little funky in lighthouse of the possessed like the the one we tried to describe where uh the axe goes into uh well the girl's name uh, her um, mother's head yeah amanda saint's mother. amanda's amanda's saint's mother's head it looks a little wonky like the way it was drawn from one panel to the next it's kind of hard to figure out how that actually happened but other than that, it's just, I mean, that's like a tiny little nitpick. It's its a really fun story and great artwork, fun story. Can't yeah. go wrong. Yeah, I agree. So, listeners, we've decided our uh, Mighty Marvel missteps is defunct, at least for this episode. But uh, Bronze Age Brilliance, we probably share the same um, uh, Bronze Age Brilliance that we've picked because I'm going to go with that panel of Esteban Morato's. How can anyone not that as the most yeah. brilliant wow wow we're gonna post that of course listeners on sink into the weird but many of you might already know which panel we're referencing just check out sink into the weird.com where we'll have the podcast agenda post that panel will be featured prominently that single image yeah, I mean, of the snow vampire uh beauty yeah i mean moroto he sets the mood from page one like you you can just see with a, a snowbound cabin how good that story's going to be it's just the mood is set right there you you know what you're going to get it's and it's great that's right that's right so um billy we're agreed uh, that is our bronze age brilliance the art of esteban morato and that single panel just cemented but every other 
panel he also drew in that issue is incredible. Um, it's ris- it's astonishing mm. the the you know the way he drew that issue. Um, I mean, yeah, I want I want to say it's his um, his masterpiece, but you can't really do that because you know he's drawn so many beautiful comics for eerie and creepy and and vampirella. So yeah, yeah, you can't really go that way. But just this this is how talented the man is. All right, so Billy, then um, uh, since Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel Missteps is um, over and done with, uh, we can head into our very next segment, which will be Shop Talk. So stay tuned, listeners. Don't go away. Okay, this week for our Shop Talk segment, Billy, I'm going to go first. Um, Basically, listeners, this is something I've been wanting to talk about ever since I discovered uh, that it's slated to be released. Uh, Since we're talking Morbius, it also seems appropriate that I do it on this show. And that is that uh, Marvel has confirmed next year, May, they will be publishing a Morbius omnibus. Morbius the Living Vampire an omnibus mm. containing every Bronze Age appearance and even a bit of the um, Marvel Modern Age. We've got Morbius showing up here in this omnibus. It's going to be an 864-page eight, omnibus slated to be published Oof. in in May of 2020. And listen to this, Billy. This is what it's going to contain, okay? Um, <clears throat> Spider-Man 101 to 102, first appearance of Morbius. Grant and I talked about Mm -hmm. that on our, I think, episode four of Into the Weird. Marvel team up, three to four. Adventures into Fear, 20 to 31. My absolute favorite run of Morbius. You know how (laughs) wacky that stuff got, Billy. Oh, those eyeball creatures. Oh, Oh. you know how I hate them, but I love them. But I hate them. (laughs) Giant size superheroes, number one. Marvel Premier 28. Marvel 2-in-1, number 15. Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man 6-8 and 38. Savage She-Hulk 9-12. And listen to this, listeners. Giant size werewolf, number four. And Vampire Tales, 1-5, 7-8. And 10 to 11, including Marvel preview number 8. So you've got all the Morbius' Adventures into Fear appearances, plus the Vampire Tales. Mm, That's so great. How can you go wrong with that? Okay, I've I've gone on record and I said in previous shows that I don't like Omnibuy because they're too heavy and clunky and and unwieldy. But um, this is only an 864-page Omnibus. And, um, you know... The ones that I really have a problem with are the ones that exceed a thousand pages, right, Billy? We gotta yeah. pick this up. How can we not, Billy? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, just think. Yeah. I mean, anybody if... that's like been watching, you know, uh, and reading newer stuff that has Morbius in it, and if you're into it, you don't have any of this old material. You know, if you at this point in 2019 would think, "Oh, I'm gonna start collecting the single issues of that." First of all, good luck, because a lot of them are so expensive in any kind of a decent shape. This is going to be your best bet to just wholesale, get all that material at the click of a button. And, you know, if you have a, you know, an LCS that, you know, subscription service and stuff like that, you'll be able to get a discount. Uh, There's there's all sorts of, uh, well, like in stock trades, places like that. The majority of them are like 35, 40, 45 percent off. You're going to be able to get a good deal on this. Order it, get it. It's well worth it. 
Yeah. Now, Billy, obviously the reason uh, that they're finally publishing an omnibus featuring Morbius' uh, tales from the Bronze Age is also because the movie featuring uh, Mm -hmm. or that's going to be starring Jared Leto or Leto, however Uh you pronounce it. Yeah. uh, That's going to, you know, possibly come out next year. It's going to be released next year. I'm not quite sure about that. I haven't really been following that movie because I'm not uh, too hot on the casting. I, I like Jared Leto. Uh, ever since Fight Club, um, you know, he's he's a pretty boy, but he's got some serious acting chops. But I, I don't know. I just don't see him as Morbius. But um, yeah. still, no. you know, I'm glad there's going to be a Morbius movie. I'll watch it, but I'm I'm gearing up to be disappointed. You know what you and I are like, Billy. We're curmudgeons. <laughs> we're not always, you know, we're very pessimistic when it comes to, and negative when it comes to movies. But with comic books, we're more you know, optimistic and, and, you know, but the movies, I don't know, they've been disappointing me of late. So I'm not too, too, too psyched about the movie, but I'm so happy that the fact that they're going to have a movie is leading to all this Morbius stuff being reprinted. So thank you to the dark Lords out there who have made this happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you know what else too, like I was saying about, if you think you're going to try to hunt down the back issues, you know, as well as I do the movie, the closer it gets to it, it's just going to drive all the prices through the roof oh, for yeah. those back issues. Exactly. So yeah, get yeah. get the trade. Get the omnibus. Because <laughs> there is no other trade with Morbius, is there? I don't think there's. Has there ever been a Morbius trade? I don't think so. No, 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 never. No, not that I. I mean, obviously his appearances and stuff like Legion of Monsters, but nothing featuring him alone. I mean, even that short four issue mini series they did a, a while back on on Morbius, yeah. which I didn't really yeah. enjoy. That wasn't collected in a trade, I think. So, um, but you know, like I say, I'm a fan of, of Doctor Strange and of Morbius and of Man Thing in the Bronze Age. I, I almost like yeah. none of their um, modern day appearances. So I'm, that's just what I'm like. Sorry, listeners. I will, however, <laughs> give every new series a try. I will definitely try them out and I'll, I'll try to be as objective as I can about it. But it's hard, you know, because it's a character we oh. love. Now, Billy, this leads yeah. into, this is sort of a segue that leads into our our next uh, bit of discussion that we want to have. And listeners, before we do that, I'm going to quickly put in something that some of you have been missing. At least that's that's what we've been hearing from some feedback we've been gotten, uh, we, we've been getting. And uh, Billy, I'm going to pause and I'm going to play something and then we're going to come back and you'll, you'll see a return of an old segment, listeners, because Billy's got something to discuss. So, uh, <laughs> you know, hold on to your labels because we'll be back in a sec. Get off my lawn. Listen, old man, you don't want to fuck with me. Did you hear me? I said get off my lawn now. Are you fucking crazy? Go back in the house. Yeah, I blow a hole in your face and then I go in the house and I sleep like a baby. You can count on that. And we're back with a very unorthodox appearance of Get Off My Lawn. (laughs) Billy, Mm -hmm. we just had to feature this segment again, if only uh, once more. Who knows? We might do it in the future again when we've got something serious to discuss. But Billy, you mentioned something to me today, but but actually yesterday on Twitter. But today we talked about, about it a bit more. What has been happening and what has disturbed us enough to bring back get off my lawn well as you said earlier uh we have a lot of favorite characters from the bronze age and one at the top of the heap 
you know, insert, you know, laughter <laughs> Ooh, here. I see what you did there. Is, yeah, is a man thing. And I was trolling through Twitter and I saw somebody post, <clears throat> I don't know if it was from CBR, one of the, the news sites saying, oh, there's going to be a new man thing book. And I saw the image and don't get me wrong. The artist, I love the artist's work and he's a real nice guy too. But the image just was very unsettling to me of this new man thing book. It looked like he was uh, a soldier <laughs> with like guns and stuff like that, and like a, a military style helmet on. It just it looks uh, not good. Yeah, and so I was like, oh no, why what are they, they doing, doing the man thing? Why oh. are they doing this to him? I mean, giving man thing a gun, uh. giving him ordnance, giving him weapons. Come on, this is almost worse you know than giving him speech bubbles or thoughts you know or you know thought bubbles mm. i don't i don't know billy this is just horrendous i mean last episode i already or two episodes back i already complained about blade having a man thing fungal pet on his shoulder now they've got this what are they doing to manny i mean sure they made him a teleporter you know a while back but he was still essentially man thing and he was hanging out you know, with the Thunderbolts when Luke Cage was was helming the team. But I like that because he was Man-Thing. Even though he could teleport, basically he could just step through, you know, back to the nexus of rea all realities. And that made sense for me. But now him being a soldier, and they call him Manslaughter. <laughs> oh. oh, that's just horrendous. What are they doing? Come on. I don't know. If they would have told me, if there would have been a solicit... And I haven't bought a new comic in a long time. But if there was, you know, if somebody would have put a solicit up and it would have said, "Well, there's a new Man Thing miniseries coming out, and it's going to have, you know, somebody like Jam DeMatteis writing it, and the artist that's doing this new one." Even if it would have said he was the artist, Cause like I said, he's a good artist. I like his artwork, and it would have shown some, you know, preview pages or something. And it was, you know, an old school Man Thing story, you know. I would be like, you know what? I, I think I might buy this comic. I might have to check this out. But when I saw what it was, and I, I didn't even see a writer's name attached to it, I just saw an image, and I thought, I, I can't. There's no way I would even spend, like, if they said, oh, the first issue's a dollar, I wouldn't even spend a dollar on it just because it looks so crazy. No, exactly. I think, isn't the artist Kyle Holtz? Um, I yeah. Think, yeah, yeah. He's great. I love him. I love the stuff he does for things mm -hmm. like Dark Horse, and he had that great run where he did a Billy the Kid kind of written by Eric Powell I think from the Goon fame yeah he did a Billy the Kid series uh, where Billy the Kid fights supernatural <laughs> entities and but uh, now okay Carl Holtz we love him still I, I don't know who's going to be I think it might be Benjamin Percy doing the writing I've got this mm. in front of me right now I quickly looked it up okay yeah but Carl Holtz uh, we love him it's just a shame that you know they're showing no respect for the 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 man thing because this is not man thing you know he's not a, a rambo type swamp man you know uh with uh gatling guns what is up with that oh, oh yeah no. and you know what too i just he yeah he's a good dude the first thing he ever did that i saw his work was a limited series and i think it was a max book um uh, simon garth the zombie Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember something like he, that. He mm. did like, yeah, I think it was like a four-issue series, and I'm not sure who wrote that, but visually, it was wild. You know what I mean? Like, that, And that was the first time I ever saw it, and it, it almost reminded me like, almost like uh, 
Bill Sienkiewicz or somebody like that. You know, what I mean, like a little more on the abstract side. Yeah. But it was wild, and that was how I got to know his work. And then, you know, I'm friends with him on social media and stuff like that. And again, he's like the coolest guy ever. He is right. such a good guy. Right. But man, I saw that and I thought, yeah, I have absolutely no interest in this. Like, if it would have been a picture of, you know, man thing, you know, swinging an alligator around, hey, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but just this. I just no 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 thank you <laughs> yeah no same here sorry guys we're gonna have to uh, for those um, people looking forward to to reading this comic um, we don't blame you of course you know I was all up up and up about you know oh, I, I loved the Punisher when he became Frankencastle so I can't really I'm sounding hypocritical here but you know the Punisher like I mentioned to you Billy before he's not someone I really have a strong connection to I do love some of his comics especially written by Garth Ennis but you know, he's very a one-dimensional character. Now, lots of people will argue with that. They will say, like, look at what Garth Ennis wrote. Look at how he went into the Punisher's past, and how he they they spoke about you know how when he was still a Vietnam, you know, soldier, and he he still had a shred of humanity left. But you know, uh, it's not really true. He's always been a psychopath. You know, he's always been in love with killing. So you know, one-dimensional character for me, the Punisher. But I do love some of his stories. But the man man thing is not like that. He's very close to our hearts. We love him, and now they're completely changing the character going a complete 180 and just saying okay now the man thing's a soldier he can can shoot you know he can use guns <laughs> he oh, oh. Man, no, no 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 i don't even want to think or about it anymore or he's blades pet you know what i mean come on what are <laughs> okay, they no, doing no, no, that like is... they're just oh yeah now they say that that might not be <laughs> the man thing that might be some sort of yeah. uh, outgrowth from the man thing but you know since he's the only man thing appearing in comics i saw that as the man thing you know so yeah. um but but this is actually supposed to be man thing this uh, you know rambo version uh, so terrible billy so listeners you can understand why we brought back get off my lawn because we just don't just yeah. want these guys to get off our lawn we want them to get out of our swamp <laughs> yeah i mean hey look anybody that's listening to this and you're actually going to buy that let us know what you think for sure. You know, if you think it's great, let us know. If you think it's terrible, let us know. Yeah, give us some feedback about it. But yeah, from the onset, I'm uh, I'm good to go. I'm not going to be investigating that at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I guess that's it, Billy, for our shop talk and our uh, get off my lawn segment. We sort of uh, married the two segments <laughs> today and made a bit of a uh, <laughs> an amalgamation of the two, and it came out smelling quite badly <laughs> but um yeah listeners we'll stay tuned because we'll be back with our new segment which hopefully will um be a lot more positive and upbeat the recommendations of ragador so don't go away oh god not this again halloween is a busy time for dormammu and i don't have time for this childish recommendations that billy and Herman keep insisting upon. Read their books, that is all. Goodbye. All right, we're back with our recommendations of Ragador. Billy, I'm going to let you lead off with this one since this is technically your brainchild and um, you've recommended some great things to me in the past. Uh, so I'm really eager to hear what you've got on this the slate today. So what do you have to recommend to us uh, courtesy of Ragador? Okay, so... This one is in keeping with Halloween, and it's one that you and I have talked about before. It's uh, an original graphic novel, but it's not thick. You know, it's like one of these thinner ones. Um, 
and it's one of my favorite Halloween stories ever. It's just so good. And it's by Howard Mackey and Lee Weeks. It's called Ghost Rider Captain America Fear. I know we've talked about this before a while ago. It might have even just been off mic, you and I. But it's a thinner OGN from, I think it was like uh, maybe 1992. And it's just so good. It's um, a story involving the Scarecrow. Now, sometime in the, I think it was late 80s, mid to late 80s, the name Scarecrow with Marvel transitioned from a supernatural being that ended up being called the straw man. And then this new character that was called uh, scarecrow and it's this crazy guy and he's all jacked up and uh, Oh, it's such a good book. I mean, it's really good and it's visceral. I mean, it is, it's almost like something you'd expect to see out of, you know, a max book from the you know late nineties, early two yeah. thousands, like very, very bloody, very action packed, but it's, to me, the, the writing, it gets Ghost Rider and it gets Captain America perfectly. I mean, it's almost like a – it almost reminds you of a Batman story because there's – you know, the police are very involved in it too and there's a cop and he kind of reminds you of Commissioner Gordon. I don't know if they're trying to rip him <laughs> off or what, but he's got glasses and gray hair and all. But it's, it's really good. Definitely, definitely check this out. You, you will – anybody that's a fan of Captain America, Ghost Rider, you know, or, you know – a good horror comic and a really crazy ending to it too. You know, something you wouldn't think that was going to happen, but definitely check that one out. Yeah. It's a jaw dropping ending for sure. Yeah. Billy, if I'm not mistaken, I think our pal, you know, former into the uh, weird co-host and founder of the show, Grant Richter, he's doing the Sentinel of Liberty podcast. He might be talking about this in the future, might even be uh, discussing it for Halloween. We don't know, but I, I think he mentioned something like that. I might be wrong, though, listeners. Oh, that would be so, great. Yeah, it might be something that he wants to talk about later on. But he mentioned this, and, uh, you know, he also, he's a huge Ghost Rider fan. And, of course, um, mm -hmm. uh, Cap being his prominent superhero featuring in a horror comic, he's definitely going to talk about that. And, you know, he might have you on as a guest or, or even me. I'm not sure. But um, he Grant likes his horror. You know, so eventually, you know, since yeah. you and I do a lot of horror shows, he's going to ask us. He, he did ask us if we're available. And I'm always av available to talk with him. Sometimes our scheduling, you know, doesn't work out, you know, um, because, yeah. you know, he's very busy with, with family and he's also studying at the moment. So, but, you know, we'll try to make it work and we might be able to discuss this on his show. I've wanted to talk about this with you, maybe on Magazines and Monsters. But since Grant is, you know, the expert on Captain America these days, I really... Uh, want to be on his show and talk some horror there so we're, we're sort of mm -hmm. you and i were leaving that open you know to talk so grant if you're listening hint hint you know if you're planning on this <laughs> on talking about this we, we might definitely be able to sit in and and talk about that it would be an honor so um billy then um as for me i'm recommending something that isn't actually marvel and I'm sorry about this, listeners, but every now and then I do that. You know, in the past, I've recommended Strontium Dog for, from 2000 AD. You know, I've recommended mm -hmm. Alric, even though Alric does have the Marvel connection with the Marvel graphic novel, you know, um, and others. I've recommended the books, and I've recommended Grady Hendrix and his horror novels, his comedic horror novels. Yeah. And we've recommended movies. So I'm thinking this is fine if I recommend something that's not Marvel. And uh, since it's Halloween 2 coming up, this is something that you listeners might want to uh, take note of and sink your teeth into. It's uh, uh, a collection of short stories published by Dark Horse. 
and the original publication was a hardcover in 2014, but it quickly went out of print. But this year, mm. August, they published it as a paperback. The Dark Horse did. And this is Edgar Allan Poe's Spirits of the Dead by Richard Corbin. Ha-ha! Oh, wow. And Richard Corbin being one of my favorite horror illustrators, right after Bernie Wrightson. And then, you know, you, you, mm. you, we've got our Mount Rushmore of horror comic illustrators, right? I believe there's Bernie, there's uh, Tom Sutton, you know, there is Mike Plug. And then, of course, I must, personally for me, I must put Richard Corbin right up there because I've loved him ever since I picked up heavy metal way back as when when I was a kid and I saw his stuff in heavy metal it's just so grotesque and horrifying but beautiful at the same time how how does he do it so yeah. he is a big fan of lovecraft he's done a lot of lovecraft comics but he's also um a massive uh, expert on the universes or the universe of Edgar Allan Poe so this book it's 200 odd pages and it contains lots of Edgar Allan Poe tales adapted by R Richard Corbin featuring his stunning art, but also colored. Uh, so this is something you don't normally see. It's, it's, well, you do see a lot of modern Richard Corbin art colored, but this is him, you know, doing um, his trademark art and it's all in color. It's just a beautiful thing to behold. Now I'm going to read the, the table of contents, Billy. Okay, you've got Spirits of the Dead, which is an 1827 poem. Um, from Edgar Allan Poe. That's the first story. And then you've got Alone. And then you've got The City and the Sea, The Sleeper, The Assignation, Berenice, Morella, Shadow, The Fall of the House of Usher, The Man of the Crowd, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Mask of the Red Death, The Conqueror Worm, The Premature Burial, and then The Raven, another poem. But uh, Corbin adapted that into a short story like he did with Spirits of the Dead. The Cask of Amontillado, <laughs> And then you've got a cover gallery at the very end as well. So this is an amazing collection. It arrived mm. uh, a month ago and I've been reading it. I've been posting some Corbin stuff, but I didn't want to post too much because I don't want to be too transparent for the listeners when they when they <laughs> see stuff on Twitter. I've, I've been doing some Corbin, but you know, I wanted to save it for our recommendation segment so that I can recommend this. Pick this book up. Billy, you too. Find it. Read it. It's amazing. It's just... Um, jaw-droppingly uh, beautiful art. I, can't, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Five out of five stars, 10 out of 10. Um, a superlative e effort by R Rich Corbin. Just glorious the way he you know, did the Poe stories. He, he actually brings something new to um, Edgar Allan Poe's, Poe's tales of terror. So, listeners, yeah, I, yeah that's I think it. I, I think I got those when they first came out, the single issues. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, he, he did, in Dark Horse, publish um, miniseries, uh, most of these stories as a miniseries. This is the collection of them. Yeah, so yeah, you might not, have some of them. I didn't get all of them, but... Yeah, I didn't get all of them, but I know I have some of them. I yeah. definitely have some of them, because I was really heavy into Dark Horse for a while there. I was just, you know... Yeah, same here. Yeah. With the, the main thing being BPRD, but I was still getting, you know, some other things, too. Like, I got some of those stories... And I got Baltimore, Baltimore, some of that, too. You mentioned too. that in the past. And, and you know, of course, yeah, the Hellboy stuff. Great stuff. Yeah, still going strong. Yeah. Yeah, Dark Horse has got some awesome stuff. But every now and then, I mean, they're predominantly horror. And they will yeah. put out some, some collections that are 
just stupendous. And then, you know, Richard Corbin through them also has Shadows of the Grave, which I did a, I, I recommended mm. on Long Box of Darkness not a while back. That's also his original yeah. short horror stories in black and white that he did over a seven-issue series, and it's been collected in a nice hardcover. So, you know, lots of cool Richard Corbin stuff. I think Dark Horse also yeah. put out the uh, Creepy Presents Richard Corbin, which is all of his stuff from Creepy. Um, and yeah. that is amazing as well. So I'm, I'm hoping Heavy Metal will eventually reprint all of his Heavy Metal tales because that's what he's actually known <laughs> for and where I encountered him first in the Heavy Metal magazine. So listeners, check out those recommendations. Cool. Billy's Captain America Ghost Rider one and my Richard Corbin one. Uh, I think they'll um, do us proud and do you proud when you read them for Halloween. <laughs> if you can get them in time yep. for Halloween because we've literally just got five days left before Halloween. <laughs> and that's it, listeners, for another episode of Into the Weird. We'll leave you with some contact details. Billy, I'll let you go first. Where can the folks find you this happy Halloween on the interwebs? Well, definitely on Twitter, uh, at Billy D underscore Licious for sure. Uh, and then also Magazines and Monsters, my blog. Definitely keep an eye on us on Twitter, though, because using the hashtag 31 Days of Horror, keep an eye out. We've been uh, rolling through the entire month with a, a horror movie a day for all of October. Hashtag throwing up, you know, the, the movie poster and, you know, some uh, preview and, you know, stuff like that and trailers and stuff. Definitely, uh get involved in that and then you and i are also uh plotting uh maybe a live tweet of a certain film that we'll uh announce uh, sooner than later as well so be on the lookout for that and listeners if you're in the mood for more horror this halloween you can check out the show i did with billy on his magazines and monsters podcast episode one where we talked hammer horror films specifically dracula has risen from the grave a classic and if you want to hear more from Ryan Daly, you can look at his or listen to his Midnight Podcasting Hour episode 23, which featured Clinton Robinson and myself. Clinton and Ryan talked House of Mystery, I think number 265, while Ryan and I discussed Bernie Wrightson and Len Wein's Swamp Thing issue 4. And speaking of Mr. Clinton Robinson, he recently released a new episode of his seminal coffee and comics and I think that's episode number 42 uh, which featured me as a guest as well we talked ghosts number two an old horror comic from the golden age and that was a glorious episode thank you again Clinton for having me on and so finally our lengthy four-hour marathon of a Halloween special comes to an end listeners I hope you enjoyed it I hope I didn't put you out with all of this uh, segments and chapters and whatnot I'll try to provide timestamps in the podcast feed this episode will be available on both into the weird and long box of darkness but um, Halloween's almost at an end and I hope you get to listen to this before Halloween if not I hope you enjoy it afterwards when this horror season has died down. But come what may, thanks again for supporting the Long Box of Darkness and Into the Weird for two years running. Um, love you all and stay weird. Keep watching and reading horror and take care of yourselves this Halloween. Pleasant screams, dear listeners. Until we hear from each other again, this is Herman Lowe signing off. 
for Into the Weird and The Long Box of Darkness.